Your lecturer is Martin Oliver. Dr. Oliver is a senior professorial lecturer at American University. As a scholar of religion and Islam, he has published widely in both academic and popular publications, and has made media appearances on CBS and NPR. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. According to traditional accounts, sometime around 610 of the Common Era, a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, living in Mecca, a small city in central western Arabia, had developed a practice of spending time alone in the foothills outside the city walls. While on one of these retreats, as the story goes, Muhammad heard a clear, sudden voice command, Ikra. In Arabic, Ikra means to recite or read aloud. Bewildered, Muhammad is thought to have asked, Read what? The voice responds, Read that which is written upon your heart. Again, according to tradition, it's said that Muhammad then felt as if the following lines had been permanently inscribed within him. Ikra, in the name of your Lord who created, he created man from a clinging form. Ikra, your Lord is the most bountiful one, who taught by the pen, who taught man what he did not know. Terrified by what he'd just experienced, Muhammad fled to his wife, Khadijah, to tell her what had happened. Afraid that he'd been possessed by a spirit or suffered an hallucination, we're told that Khadijah listened calmly, spoke with her husband, and, finding nothing else apparently amiss, assured him that he seemed healthy and himself. Perhaps, she wondered, he might listen to this voice. This short story about the origins of what eventually becomes the Quran, the text sacred to Muslims the world over, raises any number of important questions. What or who was the voice that spoke to Muhammad? To whom was this message meant to be delivered? What happened after this initial moment of revelation to Muhammad? Or perhaps most importantly, what was the message of this encounter? What did it have to say? This course is designed to begin an in-depth examination of the Quran, from its major themes and figures, to its interpretive history, to its centrality for Islamic practice and culture. While there is no doubt that the Quran is the central component of the Islamic tradition, to say what the Quran is is a trickier question than you might assume. And to make claims about what the Quran says or means is fraught with problems and is perhaps impossible. What we can do, however, is give a history of the text from the cultural milieu into which Muhammad was born up through contemporary Islamic practice today and trace how and why the Quran has been interpreted over the course of 1400 years. The major themes, figures, tropes, and literary characteristics of the text can be examined, 
and the traditions and sources of authority used to interpret the text can be outlined. If, as Islamic tradition holds, the Quran is the revealed word of God, to make claims about knowing the true meaning or intent of the text is hubris that borders on heresy. But the Quran itself invites us to study it, to ponder its meaning, and to reflect on its implications. This we can and perhaps must do. To begin, it's helpful to clear up a few common misperceptions about the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad, and Islam in general. First, if you're familiar with Christianity, you might think that it shares clear parallels with Islam. For example, Jesus and Muhammad are both central prophetic figures, each claiming to bring the word of God to a skeptical audience. The second parallel is between the Bible and the Quran. Here we have two books, the record of the word of God, both read and adored by the practitioners of these two faiths. These parallels, however, are what linguists might call a false cognate. Yes, Jesus and Muhammad are both men, and the Bible and the Quran are both books, but for believers, that is where the similarities end. For Christians, Jesus is a man, but also God. He is man and God together, the divine made real on earth. Muslims think no such thing about Muhammad. While Muhammad is adored and respected above all other humans, he is still just a man, mortal, potentially fallible, needing food and sleep and love like all others. For centuries, it was common for Westerners to refer to Muslims as Muhammadians, betraying an ignorance about the role and status of the Prophet and the nature of Islam. While Christians worship Jesus, Muslims believe that the worship of any human, Muhammad included, would constitute idolatry. In similar fashion, while many Christians accord the Bible the highest status, most recognize that it is the work of many hands over many years. In this sense, the Bible has a history, even if divinely inspired, that differentiates it from the incarnation of God in Jesus. But the Quran, the Quran is something different. It is God's word made perfectly manifest in this world. To be succinct, for Christians, the Bible is the human vehicle through which is revealed the perfection that is Jesus. For Muslims, Muhammad is the human vehicle through which is revealed the perfection of God's word, the Quran. The initial comparison is thus upended. Let's put it differently and more accurately. As Jesus is to Christians, so is the Quran to Muslims. As Muhammad is to Muslims, so is the Bible to Christians. This reversal is not perfect. The Quran is not worshipped as Jesus is worshipped. But if we use the analogy to understand how God is revealed and made real in this world, then the comparison is apt. Christians seek to know God through Jesus as told through the vehicle of the Bible. Muslims seek to know God through the Quran as told through the vehicle of Muhammad. Keeping this in mind can help us better understand why questions about the nature of the Quran are perceived as so essential, but also so problematic for many believers. 
For example, many Christians have grown used to the idea that the Bible has a history, but the belief in Jesus as divine is less open for debate. Similarly, it's acceptable for Muslims to investigate Muhammad's life as an historical phenomenon, but an exploration of the history of the Quran is, in a sense, to call the text divine status into question. That is to say, to claim or believe that the Quran is the perfect and infallible word of God means that critical questions about the creation of the Quran involving human activity and therefore the possibility of error is to question the foundation of faith. As an historian of religious ideas, I think the nature and history of Jesus, the Bible, Muhammad, and the Quran ought to be objects of investigation. What believers claim about their central figures or texts ought not be taken at face value. At the same time, at least in the scientific sense, there will never be proof about the divine nature of either Jesus or the Quran. When we raise questions about either one, we should be aware that we are treading on someone's sacred ground. Polemical arguments are rarely helpful and too often circular. Instead, from a scholarly point of view, I think it valuable to understand how a figure, text, or idea functions from within the tradition. For Muslims, the text of the Quran is simply what it is, a record of God's word delivered perfectly to Muhammad and then perfectly recorded. We arrive then at something of a dilemma. Believers accept a certain narrative about both the history of the Quran, as well as what scholars call its hermeneutical status. Without being too fussy, hermeneutical means thinking about how we know what we know. Believers accept the Quran as a perfect vehicle. Scholars, often for good reason, resist both the traditional narrative about the Quran's formation, as well as claims about the divine character of the text. Thus, there is a kind of inherent friction between how insiders and outsiders consider the nature of the text. Given this tension, how can we think about approaching or interpreting the Quran? What sorts of preferences or assumptions do we need to make about the history and nature of the Quran in order to understand it? To help resolve this situation, at least for our purposes in this course, I want to make two suggestions. Let me warn that this first approach might, might sound radically impious, but bear with me. When I was in graduate school, a professor in my department, Dr. Paula Fredrickson, a scholar of early Christianity, was fond of saying something like this. It doesn't matter whether or not Jesus was the Son of God. All that matters is that for 2,000 years, billions of people have believed him to be so. What she meant and I find her advice useful in many different ways, is that arguing over the divine status of Jesus or the Quran can be counterproductive. Yes, we should examine the history of the Quran as a text, but making claims about its validity as a divine phenomenon isn't the job of a scholar. That's for theologians to debate. Instead, I think knowing the history of the transformation of the Quran from revelation to page can yield insights into the book for us as readers of it. 
In the same way, one can accept that a text is divine for a given group of people without needing to render a judgment for oneself. Recognizing this, however, helps us to understand how and why a text has been read over time, while also revealing tensions in our contemporary thinking about it. The second option is to think about the text as literature. What I mean by this is that we can suspend judgments about historicity or divinity and approach the text as it appears to us. I do not mean that we neglect these questions, but rather that we can note such concerns as they arise while remaining focused on what the text itself says, what the interpretive traditions have said the text means, and how Muslims today understand the text. A Quran as literature approach can also allow for a more personal interpretive engagement, analyzing the text while equipped with historical and cultural information, but without reliance on traditional or religious precedents. This is not an ahistorical or non-contextual reading, but rather one that preferences the text above and before what others have said the text means. Nor must such a reading tend toward literalism. It can instead reveal literary and rhetorical nuances unencumbered by traditionalist constraints. A literary reading is not without critique, but does offer the possibility of encountering the text afresh. It is, in short, an effort to understand the Quran with the seriousness and sensitivity that we ought to give any other great work of literature. Taken together, these two positions can make it possible to read the Quran in such a way that we respect the long and impressive Islamic interpretive tradition. At the same time, we need not be constrained by the expectations of one school of thought or another. Indeed, the Islamic tradition as a whole often exhibits disputes between different exegetical, that is, interpretive schools. Highlighting the disputes between different interpretive traditions can, I think, be of a great benefit, as it reveals to the outside reader the rich and various readings that surround and elaborate the Quran. Indeed, the Quran has never been understood to say one thing and one thing only. Instead, it is the sort of text that demands interpretation, and the different interpretive methods born from this demand mean that the Quran remains a text open to dispute and argumentation. Where does that leave us, then? Insider and outsider accounts of the text's creation are disputed. Insider and outsider accounts of the text's divinity are disputed. Insider and outsider accounts of the text's meaning are also in dispute. This is not any different from any religious text, but perhaps in our world today, answers about these questions seem more pertinent than ever. And even if answers prove hard to come by, the investigation itself is relevant and enlightening. So, Let's return to Muhammad in that cave outside of Mecca. In the next lecture, I'll talk about why he was there, why someone in the early 7th century would spend time alone in the wilderness. And just a hint, it wasn't to take in the view, as the very idea of nature walks wouldn't be invented until at least the 18th century. But there he is, alone, 
commanded to recite. And recite he does from the year 610 until his death in 632, 22 years in all. Muhammad is said to have received messages from this divine voice. These revelations were, we are told, unbidden and unexpected, reducing Muhammad to a momentarily debilitated state until he emerged from the experience with new words from God. I'll have more to say about the nature and character of the revelatory experience. But most important for us now is this time frame, 22 years of sporadic and disjointed revelation, and of course, a sudden cessation upon Muhammad's death. Following Muhammad's death, tradition holds that his close companions and successors engaged in a concerted effort to collect and codify the entirety of this 22-year period of intermittent revelation, resulting in a final, universally agreed-upon text within perhaps two decades of the Prophet's death. We'll explore this process in great depth later, from perspectives both within and outside of the tradition. But for now, it's enough to know that Muslims believe the Quran was inerrantly passed from Muhammad's lips to the written page, and has passed on to us still today. At this point, I hope you're intrigued about the nature of the Quran and the many questions it poses to us as readers. Indeed, the Islamic tradition itself might be understood as the process of interpreting questions of these sorts. For example, the historicity of the message was of concern to Muslims in the 10th century, just as it is today. And what we call Islam is that set of traditions and practices that have served as interpretive models at any given time or place. With that in mind, I want to offer a roadmap for this course. First, we will address the historical and cultural context of 7th century Arabia at the time of the revelation. Included in this, a consideration of Muhammad's biography and the cultural and literary tropes that would have been familiar to his initial audience. We'll also explore how the oral revelation of the Quran was transformed into the written book that we know today a process that I'll argue was the first great interpretive act of what becomes the Islamic tradition. From there, we'll move into the text itself, beginning with the division of the Quran's surahs into Meccan and Medinian passages. That is, understanding how the text was revealed at different times and in different places. We'll see how the rhetorical aims and devices of the Quran differ between these two subdivisions and establish a foundation for understanding the specific concerns and themes that characterize the Quranic message. Our next set of lectures will address some major themes within the text itself. We'll explore the nature of God, faith, obedience, and judgment. We'll encounter some important characters that may be surprisingly familiar to you, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus among them. We'll see how the Quran encounters and addresses the circumstances in which it was revealed, speaking both in timely and eternal terms to a diverse audience. Having established this working knowledge of the contents of the text, 
we next turn to the interpretive traditions that have sought to understand and apply the Quranic message over the intervening 1400 years. We'll begin with the principles of interpretation itself. That is, the Islamic tradition developed various modes of interpretation in relationship to sources of authority that combined to create specific schools of thought. These schools partly explain Islamic sectarianism, such as the Sunni and Shia divide, but are also more amorphous. Interpretive questions are still an issue today, and noting how the Quran remains a living text is an important part of understanding Islam as a religious tradition. One question of interpretation has to do with what is called the Ummah, the community of believers, and how they are meant to perform Islam in daily life and ritual practice. A second category is the much-discussed Sharia, the legal formulas and opinions that establish what we might call institutional Islam. Sharia is one of those scary words, which, along with jihad, tends to excite people in various ways. We'll examine many of the instances of jihad in the Quran and explore how they relate to the development of interpretive practices during Islamic history. Finally, we'll discuss the classical schools of interpretive thought, beginning with Kalam, or the theological tradition, where questions about the nature of God, of revelation and belief are debated. Closely related to this is the philosophical tradition, a fascinating mixture of the Quran, theology, and rational thought, oftentimes in conversation with other philosophical thinkers, such as Plato and Aristotle. Also related to theology and philosophy, but concerned more with the matter of religious experience, Sufism is the mystical tradition of Islam, which can likewise be understood as an interpretive mode. In this case, insight into the Quran comes not from legal prescription or philosophical method, but rather from the experience of the heart, an experience cultivated through the ritualized remembrance of God. The overarching aim of our examination of the Quran will be to understand the text as central to the interpretive process that generates the Islamic religious tradition. While textual interpretation is common to nearly all religious traditions, this course will illustrate the unique ways the Quran is understood, contextualized, and interpreted. The hope is that you'll leave the course equipped to approach the Quran with nuance and insight when questions about it or Islam inevitably confront us. Two short items before we dive in. One, throughout the course, we'll hear a number of Arabic recitations of the Quran. Given the importance of oral recitation of the text for Islamic practice, indeed, reciting passages from the text are required for every ritual prayer, five times a day. Hearing the Quran is essential. Toward that end, our reciter is Tahira Ahmad, a Muslim chaplain at Northwestern University and a widely regarded and award-winning Quranic reciter. If you're surprised to hear the Quran recited by a woman's voice, your surprise is not unjustified. Most recordings of Quranic recitation feature male voices, and this in part stems from the prohibition in some Muslim communities of women leading men in prayer. 
This prohibition is limited to religious observance, however, and is not generally applied to non-religious situations such as our course. And it should be noted that the role of women in Islam is a constantly shifting question, as it is in many of the world's religions. Especially in North America, but also in other parts of the world, women are occupying an increasingly visible position in the practice of the faith. Ms. Ahmed herself is evidence of this. In 2013, she was chosen to recite the Quran at the annual convention of the Islamic Society of North America, indicating an increasing openness to the practice, even in religious context. Second, you'll note that throughout the course I refer to the deity in the text as God, and I resist applying gendered pronouns to God. This might surprise some of you, especially as the term Allah is commonly known, and also because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all routinely resort to the masculine he or him when referencing God. We'll unpack these decisions in greater depth in a later lecture. But I wanted to raise the issue here at the forefront. The short answer is that Allah is not the name of the Muslim God. Instead, Allah is rather simply the Arabic term for the God. And it's the same word that Arabic-speaking Christians use to refer to God. In the Injil, the Arabic version of the New Testament, Allah is constantly evoked. As for God and gender, it is typically just convention that God is referred to in the masculine, partly due to translating Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, or Arabic into modern languages. Another factor, I think, is also a kind of conventional traditionalism. When God is referred to as a father or a king, we have a tendency to equate these functions with human gender roles. However, most theologians of any of the great monotheistic traditions would be reluctant to assert that God is male like humans are. That is, while traditionally masculine traits are often associated with God, God is not embodied in a literal sense. For Christians, the obvious exception to this embodiment is Jesus. But even then, the form God takes in Jesus is differentiated from God the Creator. As I said, these issues will be taken up in greater detail later, but it's useful to recognize that the ways we imagine God or refer to God can sometimes interfere with the way God is described in a text, particularly the Quran. Taken together, I think these two considerations point to the thesis of this course. The Quran must always be understood as an object of interpretation. We can never say what the Quran truly says, because the history of the Quran illustrates that its many truths are debated and disputed. However, by exploring the means by which the Quran has been understood in both theory and practice, we can come to a better understanding of how and why it continues to play a central role in our common human experience. Perhaps it is appropriate then to conclude this segment with those lines that were ultimately chosen to open the whole of the written Quran. Surah 1 is often thought of as a succinct summary of the entirety of the Quran, so it too serves as a roadmap for our course.
اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم الحمد للہ رب العالمین الرحمن الرحیم مالک یوم الدین ایا کن عبود و ایا کن استعین اہدین الصراط المستقیم صراط الذین انعمت علیہم غیر المغضوب علیہم ولا الضالین صدق اللہ العظیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. Praise belongs to God, Lord of the worlds, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. Master of the day of judgment, it is you we worship, it is you we ask for help. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those you have blessed, those who incur no anger, those who have not gone astray. And thus, questions surely arise. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. As we heard at the end of the last lecture, the Quran's opening line begins with a phrase repeated over 100 times throughout the text. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The typical translation of this is, in the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. Although variations might follow a formulation like, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. As they sound, the two terms conveying mercy and compassion, Rahman and Rahim, are etymologically related. Translating these terms entails conveying subtle but important differences. After all, these are our introduction to God's character. We might think of Rahman as the mercy dispensed by a king or a ruler, whereas Rahim is the mercy or compassion of a parent toward a child. Thus, in this opening line, God's character starts to be revealed as one who is both above us in power while simultaneously as close to us as a loved one. But who or what is this compassionate and merciful God? Would Muhammad's audience in 610 of the Common Era, his fellow Meccans initially and then others in the surrounding areas, have been familiar with God and God's character? Or was this a totally new idea and concept? Additionally, was the God spoken of in the revelation to Muhammad the same as or different from other conceptions of God known during the era, be it Jewish, Christian, Zoroastrian, or other? 
We'll get into what the text says about God much more in a later lecture. But to start answering these questions, we must spend some time outlining the religious milieu of Mecca, as well as the customs and traditions of surrounding communities and empires. Muhammad's message did not erupt into a vacuum, but instead joined an already fervent conversation with a variety of pre-existing religious, cultural, and political ideas. Indeed, to understand the Quran, it's necessary to understand the customs and practices into which it was originally introduced. Traditional accounts of Mecca's religious character at the time of Muhammad's birth tend to emphasize the polytheistic practices common to the Arabian Peninsula. According to this account, the various tribes that populated Mecca and its immediate vicinity were accustomed to worshiping their own individual tribal deities. And in fact, Mecca as a flourishing community was economically reliant upon this diversity of religious practice. Despite lacking strategic, material, or environmental riches, Mecca's success as a polity hinged upon an ancient stone structure within the city walls, the Kaaba. This square building was used, we are told, to house the idols of the various tribal gods, literally a house for the gods. The custom was that for one month of the year, local tribes would suspend any disputes between themselves and journey to Mecca to visit their deities, and, of course, to trade. In this way, Mecca's economy was built upon this shrine to the gods, and the prohibition of weapons or fighting within the grounds of the city enabled a robust trading atmosphere. Muhammad himself was born into a tribe, the Quraysh, who were charged with the maintenance and protection of the Kaaba. However, Neither of Muhammad's parents were near the center of power, and when they died, leaving Muhammad orphaned, his social standing was endangered. Identity in the 6th century Arabia was reliant upon familial connections, and orphans lacked, by definition, those social threads that could spell future success. Luckily for Muhammad, he was taken in by his uncle, Abu Talib, a relatively prominent member of the Quraysh tribe enabling the future prophet to avoid a bleak future. Abu Talib figures into this story for more reasons than just serving as a surrogate, parent, or guardian, as we'll soon see. But keeping our focus on the traditions of Mecca, the so-called polytheism of southwestern Arabia was a complicated affair, and our knowledge of it is somewhat opaque. It is believed that the local deity to whom the Kaaba was dedicated was called Hubal, but other figures that were honored or housed in the shrine might have included the goddesses Alat, Al-Uzza, and Manat. Some accounts suggest that during Muhammad's time, some 360 different deities were kept within the Kaaba, perhaps corresponding to the days of the year. Interestingly, it's also suggested that Isa and Maryam, who perhaps you know as Jesus and Mary, were also represented here, along with another name, Allah. We should take a moment to discuss Allah, both the word and the figure. As I previously discussed, Allah is nothing more than the Arabic term for the God. Broken down, Allah is better understood as Allah, 
where al is the definite article, the, and la is the generic term, God. In this sense, Allah is not the proper name of some particular deity, but is instead a descriptor. Allah is linguistically related to similar words in other Semitic languages, as we might see in the Hebrew cognate Elohim and Allah in Aramaic, both of which mean simply the God. As a figure, there is scarce but intriguing information about Allah's character prior to the Quranic revelation. Some evidence implies that Allah was thought to be a creator deity or sky god. Muhammad's father was named Abdullah, meaning servant of God. But how exactly Allah was understood in pre-Islamic times is largely unknowable. Nevertheless, it's apparent that a variety of deities were worshipped at the Kaaba, and some of these deities are figures still known and worshipped today. A few of these, most notably the goddesses, are specifically addressed in the Quran. Surah 53, verses 19 to 23, reads in part, Consider Alat and Al-Uzzah, and the third, other one, Manat. Are you to have the male and he the female? That would be a most unjust distribution. These are nothing but names you have invented yourselves, you and your forefathers. God has sent no authority for them. This verse is somewhat enigmatic, but the assertion that some gods are nothing but invented names without authority becomes a trope throughout the text, rejecting idols of all sorts. We'll soon address the Quranic attitude towards idolatry in greater detail, but this reference illustrates the polytheistic practices believed to be customary in Mecca at the time of Muhammad's birth. In addition to localized polytheism, traditions that could entail much more discussion than I can provide now, other religious practices circulated throughout the Arabian Peninsula during Muhammad's lifetime. Perhaps the most immediately prevalent was Judaism. Since at least the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era, and perhaps dating all the way back to the first great Jewish diaspora in 586 BCE, various Jews and Arab converts to Judaism made homes in Arabia. Often identified as distinct tribes, these groups likely exerted a noticeable if modest influence on Arabian religious life. Because these tribes were widely dispersed across the peninsula, it's also likely that most Arabs were familiar with Judaism as a distinct practice. The presence of Jews in Jewish literature will play a significant role in our evolving story of the Quran. But the initial and most significant impact is fairly simple. Familiarity. Many first-time readers of the Quran are surprised to find the Quran is replete with characters from the Hebrew Bible. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon, to name a few, all play significant roles in the text. And their presence answers a question about the original audience of Muhammad's recitation. That is, had the inhabitants of Mecca been familiar with only the tribal gods I mentioned earlier, the recurring Quranic rejoinder to remember Moses or remember Abraham would have been baffling. 
But because the text treats these characters so familiarly, we can also assume that Jewish stories were already a prevalent part of the Meccan oral tradition. I'll have more to say later about the role of Judaism in the Quran, but I've already hinted at other characters who were not part of the Jewish scriptures, Jesus and Mary. Jesus is, in fact, one of the most prominent figures in the Quranic text, rival only by Moses and Abraham. Mary, for her part, has an entire surah or chapter named after her, and she is repeatedly referred to as the Virgin. So we can also assume familiarity with Christian ideas and concepts. But what sort of Christianity would have been present in Arabia in the 7th century? Here, too, we need to make inferences from a deficit of historical evidence. But we can make some educated assumptions. Christianity at the time of Muhammad's birth was anything but a settled affair. In fact, the ecumenical councils that debated Orthodox Christian belief and practice were still ongoing, and the decisions from these councils were still reverberating through and contested by the growing movement. Byzantine Christianity, from which we get Catholicism and the Orthodox traditions, was the most significant expression of Christian doctrine, but by no means was it the only. Many additional Christian communities clung to their now heterodox beliefs about the nature of God and Jesus. It was especially these outsider groups that might have made their way to Arabia, effectively outside the control of the Byzantine Empire. In particular, disputes about Jesus' divinity were still raging, as were questions about the status of Mary. Was Jesus God and man combined? Was Jesus just a prophet? Was Mary holy in some particular manner? These debates within the broader Christian community matter for our understanding of the Quran because they lend some insight into what sorts of Christian ideas might have been familiar to Muhammad's audience. For example, Surah 5, verse 17 reads, Those who say, God is the Messiah, the Son of Mary, are defying the truth. Say, if it had been God's will, could anyone have prevented him from destroying the Messiah, Son of Mary, together with his mother and everyone else on earth? Control of the heavens and earth and all that is between them belongs to God. He creates whatever he will. God has power over everything. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack here, but for now I want to highlight a couple of key elements. First, Jesus is clearly identified as the Messiah, a title he bears in the Islamic tradition. Second, Mary is mentioned here twice, illustrating her importance, but is described only as Jesus' mother without additional titles. Third, and most importantly, is the explicit rejection of Jesus' divinity. The Jesus of the Quran is absolutely the Messiah, but is also absolutely not divine. In this sense, the Quran is weighing in on the disputes about Jesus' character that were prevalent during and contemporary to Muhammad's lifetime. At the same time, the mere mention of Jesus and Mary tells us that Muhammad's audience would have heard of them. To have mentioned Jesus and Mary without context would obviously have been confusing, I think it's safe to assume that Meccans had indeed heard of Jesus and Mary and were at least passingly familiar with the fact that their nature was in dispute, 
even if the Meccan audience was not privy to the theological details. We'll delve more deeply later into Jesus and Mary and their role in the Quranic text. But for now, the point to take with us is that, as with Judaism, it seems as if the Meccan and later Medinian audiences for Muhammad's revelation were already familiar with many of the main figures from the Christian narrative and had some broad understanding of the disputes about their natures. I should add here an important note. In outlining the presence of both Jewish and Christian communities in 7th century Arabia, some critics of the Quran in the past have used this information to disparage the Quran and Muhammad, suggesting he was only recombining bits and pieces of other traditions like a pastiche. I don't think such an approach does anyone any favors when it comes to understanding the Quranic text or the Islamic tradition. As I tried to stress earlier, I find it most helpful to take the Quran on its own merits. In this sense, examining Jewish and Christian figures in the text is not meant to be evidence that the Quran is of either divine origin or that it is a purely human invention. Instead, by placing the Quran in its religious context, we can understand why it treats these figures as it does. Muhammad's audience did not exist in a vacuum. The discussion of Moses and Jesus and the others reflects the ways in which the Quran met its audience where they were. There is one other religious tradition that deserves our attention before moving on. In addition to the Byzantine Empire, the other great geopolitical force that bordered Arabia was the Persian, more properly the Sassanid Empire. The dominant religious tradition of the Sassanids was what we today call Zoroastrianism, although at the time might more accurately be thought of as Mazdaism, the worship of Ahura Mazda as the supreme wise lord, as prescribed by the prophet Zoroaster. There is less evidence for the influence of Mazdaism in the Quran, save for one verse. Surah 22.17 says, As for the believers, those who follow the Jewish faith, the Sabians, the Christians, the Magians, and the idolaters, God will judge between them on the day of resurrection. God witnesses all things. The reference to the Persian tradition is the Magians from the word Magi. As with the three Magi in the Gospel of Matthew who visit the infant Jesus, Magi were the high priests of the Persian tradition. The verse itself raises a number of questions, though it leaves open the suggestion that in any dispute between the variety of belief traditions, God will sort them all out in the end. There are a few more oblique references to fire worshippers, which might also be a reference to the role the sacred flame plays in the worship of Ahura Mazda. The other unfamiliar name here, the Sabians, is even more unclear. It likely refers to a group of Gnostic monotheists that were sparsely spread throughout Arabia and the Near East. They are perhaps related to the Mandians. Little is known about either tradition or practice, however. The takeaway, again, is that the Quran is aware of a variety of competing religious claims. The passage just cited suggests that one needn't be overly concerned about these disputes, as ultimately God will decide. Although the further implication, naturally, is that one would be safest accepting the Quranic message. 
the references to these traditions, I think, illustrates a kind of situational awareness on the part of the Quran. Introduced into a complicated, multi-religious context, the Quran addresses this diversity head-on. If we've established that the Quran participates in a complex and ongoing religious conversation, a subsequent question might be about how these different religious ideas were shared and transmitted. Tradition holds that Muhammad was illiterate, at least in the sense that we understand the term today. It's highly unlikely that he read or wrote with any great facility in any event. And this would have been the norm, not just in Arabia, but worldwide, as global literacy is really only a modern phenomenon. Instead, as with most people in the 6th and 7th centuries, Muhammad and his fellow Arabs would have struggled with reading and writing, but would have excelled at the literary art of storytelling. The richness of the oral tradition cannot be overstated. The most popular form of entertainment at the time would have been recitations of poetry and heroic epics, usually public affairs that would gather large audiences. The audience, in turn, would have been adept at remembering these verses and tales and would likely have passed them along to friends and family. It was by word of mouth that news was spread, that stories were told, and that religious ideas were promulgated. Indeed, it is in pre-Islamic poetry that we have our best surviving examples of literature prior to the Qur'an. And it gives evidence of social mores and customs, as well as insights into the grammar and vocabulary of classical Arabic. As scholar Michael Sells argues, Muhammad recited to an audience that had developed one of the most finely honed and scrutinizing tastes in the history of expressive speech. This love for language had been associated with the prophetic utterances of pre-Islamic seers, and especially the poets of Arabia, who had developed over unknown centuries of oral tradition, a poetic heritage that, along with the Quran, was to become the wellspring for the new Arabic-Islamic civilizations. These poems, as works of art, were most highly valued for their melodic eloquence and were often less concerned with narrative cohesion. In this sense, the literary traditions that preceded Muhammad are also reflected in the Quran short verse-like phrases and snapshots that cohere as tonally evocative. And, like other oral traditions, repetition and rhyme serve as mnemonic devices for the reciters and mental signposts for the audience. So, what is our takeaway from this examination of the religious and literary context into which the Quran was introduced? First, I think it's important to recognize that the Quran anticipates its audience. This shouldn't be surprising. Any successful religious movement needs to speak to the people where they are. Doing otherwise would be to doom the movement to failure before it began. Second, and on the other hand, the Quran often challenges the assumptions of its audience. The simplest evidence of this is the repeated admonishment of idolaters and disbelievers, such as this passage from Surah 84. I swear by the twilight, by the night and what it covers, by the full moon, you will progress from stage to stage. So why do they not believe? Why, when the Quran is read to them, do they not prostrate themselves to God? No, 
The disbelievers reject the Quran. God knows best what they keep hidden inside. So give them news of a painful torment. But those who believe and do good deeds will have a never-ending reward. Remember, the foundation to Mecca's economy was the worship of tribal idols in the Kaaba. To hear, then, a warning against this practice would have been shocking. We'll soon see how this premise was simultaneously dangerous and effective as an idea. Finally, we mustn't forget the role of orality in either the literary traditions of the time nor in the creation of the Quran as a text. As we continue to unpack the Quran as a book, it's valuable to remember that it was not composed as our modern books were. It began as an oral phenomenon, passed along among the growing adherents to Muhammad's warning. When it came time to write the book down, the oral character of the text remained a feature, not a bug. If we are to understand the Quran on its own terms, its orality must remain central. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. There's a wonderful phrase in Italian that captures the dilemma of approaching the Quran today. Tradutore, traditore. Literally, translator, traitor. Less succinctly, the notion is that any attempt to translate a text from one language to another will involve some level of betrayal to comprehension, meaning, or nuance. Something is always lost in translation. This truism is obviously relevant to the attempt to translate the Quran from Arabic into English or any other language. But it speaks also, I think, to the challenge of translating an oral text into a written text. In the previous lesson, we explored the centrality of oral recitation in the cultural milieu of 7th century Arabia. The Quran was delivered by Muhammad as an oral text for an audience intimately accultured to an oral tradition, meaning his audience heard and even saw the performance of the Quran as an experience quite different from the solitary reading that is our typical experience of text today. As an example of how different the experience of oral recitation versus reading might be, think about how listening to the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. conveys a very different understanding than simply reading his speeches in the quiet of the library. King's tone, tenor, cadence, his crescendos and pronunciations all convey meaning in their own right, and all are lost in the dryness of the written word. Or think of the annual State of the Union address in the United States and how the president's audience factors into the rhetorical effect of the speech. The Quran is no different, and indeed I think is much more enriched by hearing it than even the speeches of Dr. King or a State of the Union address. The oral recitation of the Quran remains central to Muslim religious experience today. Schools of recitation are well established and contests are regularly held for reciters. Even if one does not understand Arabic, the recited Quran conveys an emotional resonance 
that is impossible to capture on the page. Let's take, for example, Surah 100, which reads in English, In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, by the charging steeds that pant and strike sparks with their hooves, who make dawn raids, raising a cloud of dust, and plunging into the midst of the enemy, man is ungrateful to his Lord, and he is witness to this. He is truly excessive in his love of wealth. Does he not know that when the contents of graves are thrown out, when the secrets of hearts are uncovered, on that day their Lord will be fully aware of them all? Compare that to the auditory experience of the same text by a professional reciter. Because of the structure of Arabic as a language, there are elements of the text that are nearly impossible to recreate in English, including alliteration and rhyme. But the tradition of Quranic recitation also emphasizes a kind of plaintive yearning, a feature of the text that is only illuminated as an oral phenomenon. Aside from the experiential difference between the oral and written Quran, we are faced with three other problems. First, during the time of Muhammad, Arabic was not yet a fully developed script. That is, the Arabic language was complex and sophisticated, but the orthographic mechanisms for transforming or translating spoken Arabic into a written form were underdeveloped. The earliest extant fragments of the written Quran known today are composed in something called the Hijazi script, which, while visually arresting, is deficient for reading. It lacks diacritics for vowels and other markings like punctuation, useful for deciphering not just meaning, but differentiating even one letter from another. Another early script used for fragments of the Quran is called Kufic, which suffers from similar drawbacks and is likewise difficult to read for anyone not trained in ancient Arabic manuscripts. The net effect is that our earliest evidence for the written Quran is rife with potential interpretive problems. Words that share letters but have wildly different meanings are difficult to decipher. An example in English might be the words grape, gripe, grope, and group. When written without vowel indicators, GRP, one might be hard-pressed to determine the exact intent. Certainly, context can help us narrow the possibilities, but we are still left with numerous examples where different readings are feasible. At the same time, these early written manuscripts were not meant to be read as we read text today. 
Instead, they were an aid memoir, a kind of mnemonic device for reciters who already knew the text but could benefit from an occasional reminder. I'll have more to say about the transformation of Arabic as a written language shortly. But our takeaway should be that the translation of Muhammad's oral recitation into a written form was complicated and lengthy. Additionally, the composition of the Quran as a text has a history. The journey from early fragments into a cohesive whole accepted by the broader community, that is complicated as a theological matter. Believing Muslims maintain that the Quran as we have it today, at least in Arabic, is a perfect representation of God's message delivered to Muhammad and then proclaimed to 7th century Mecca and Medina. However, Textual and literary scholars cast doubt upon the reliability of this assertion. The archaeological evidence suggests that, while many parts of the Quran were written down in some form within the first decades following Muhammad's death, it took many years for the Quran to emerge as a complete, finalized, and universally accepted document. So the religious claims about the authenticity and exactness of the Quran as God's word are challenged by our documentary evidence. Could any changes or variations to the text have been introduced in the intervening years between Muhammad's life and the final codification of the Quranic text some decades later? As I've suggested earlier, this might not necessarily concern us. It might be enough to say that Muslims today accept the standard form of the Quran as accurately reflecting Muhammad's message. And thus, we can read the text as we have it without needing to chase the fool's errand of discerning absolute historical fidelity. However, many theological debates, both between Muslims as a broad community and between Muslims and non-Muslims, often hinge on this question of textual reliability. While my approach is to take the Quran as it is today, the fact that the Quran's accuracy as a text is a subject of debate can and should inform our discussion of it. Our final problem regards how we all encounter the text today, and especially for non-Arabic speakers. As is the case in any act of translation, source languages lose their complexity and illusion in translation. You might think of this as the challenge of translating a pun or a joke, Such figures of speech are notoriously difficult to translate because they so often rely upon double meanings, cognates, or figurative references for effect. One can literally translate a joke, but the joke itself is nearly always lost in the process. In the same vein, the Arabic of the Quran is rich, dense, and filled with linguistic allusions, qualities that are inevitably sacrificed in the process of translation. With all of this in mind, we can say that there are four main issues of translation that concern us here. One, the experiential difference between an oral text and a written text. Two, the literary problem of transforming an oral text into a written text. Three, the theological question of whether we can accept the Quranic text as we have it today as an accurate reflection of Muhammad's recitation. And finally, the contemporary problem of translation, how non-Arabic readers can encounter a text that is deeply reliant upon its source language 
for meaning and nuance. Let's take each of these four points in turn. One of the most remarkable features of the Quran as an historical document is the evidence we have for early written forms of the text. Some of the partial manuscripts date to the early 8th century, and some fragmentary writings date to the late and even mid-7th century. In other words, it's obvious that people were committing the revelation to the written page at the latest within 50 years of the Prophet's death. There is scholarly dispute, of course, about how we ought to consider the various fragments and pages still preserved. While the details of these disputes need concern us here, a few general considerations should be noted. First, and as I've already mentioned, early written forms of the Quran appear in either what is called the Hijazi or Kufic scripts. In both cases, these scripts lack the linguistic markings of modern Arabic and thus present various historical challenges. Was there any dispute about the meaning of particular words? Were some passages eventually excluded from what became the standardized text? Were some passages not authentic to Muhammad? In short, was anything lost or anything added in the journey from the original recitation to the final form? While we cannot definitively answer these questions, we can adopt what scholar Michael Sells calls a theologically neutral stance, towards the text where debate about authorship becomes secondary to the text itself. As he describes this, such attributions, now also common for the Bible, allow for a text to be discussed without constant and tendentious assumptions about its authorship. I think it's useful to assume this position, at least for the time being. In doing so, we can focus on how the Quran was experienced in its earliest formative decades. As I mentioned earlier, the written fragments of the recitation were created for a specific and practical reason, as aids for the public recitation of Muhammad's message, so that others might hear and perhaps memorize for themselves the revelation. Such public recitals were especially important following Muhammad's death in 632. The audience for this revelation was particular and specific in terms of their sophisticated appreciation for orality. It should be no surprise, then, that the Quran in recited Arabic plays upon that expectation. Again, turning to Michael Sells from his important work approaching the Quran. The complex Quranic sound patterns and the relation of sound to meaning, what we might call the sound vision of the Quran, are brought out and cultivated in Quranic recitation. No translation can fully capture this sound vision, a lyricism comparable to that of the Psalms. It's useful, I think, to again have an auditory experience of what Professor Sells is referencing. In this case, here is Surah 94 in English. Did we not relieve your heart for you and remove the burden that weighed so heavily on your back and raise your reputation high? So truly, where there is hardship, there is also ease. Truly, where there is hardship, there is also ease. So when you are free, work on and direct your requests to the Lord. Now, let's listen to that same passage in Arabic. 
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألم نشرح لك صدرك ووضعنا عنك وزرك الذي أنقض ظهرك ورفعنا لك ذكرك فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا إِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ يُسْرًا فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانصَب وَإِلَى رَبِّكَ فَارْغَب There is something in the stylized recitation of the Quran that is impossible to convey in either the written Arabic or in any translation no matter its literary felicity. All the more reason, then, that the early written forms of the Qur'an capture the recitation as precisely as possible. The Hijazi and Kufic scripts mentioned earlier began to give way to ever more sophisticated representations of the Arabic language. In this way, the development of the Qur'an as a written text was ineluctably related to the oral recitation of it. The early fragmentary crib sheets quickly morphed into devices for spreading the text, and ever greater orthographic detail and precision was necessary so that the memory of a companion of Muhammad might be accurately transmitted to those who did not have the advantage of first-hand listening. As a result, during the course of perhaps 150 years following Muhammad's death, the writing of Arabic evolved in order to assure the accurate transmission of the oral phenomenon. Similar to how the works of Shakespeare are often credited with inventing English as a modern language, the Quran in this sense forced the invention of modern written Arabic. At the same time, very few people either in Arabia or globally in the 7th and 8th centuries could read. While this might seem like a problem from our point of view, the practical effect was that the dissemination of the Qur'an in both oral and written forms was tightly controlled by scholars who had worked hard to master the text in both its forms. The written texts were always at the service of the communal experience of reciting the revelation aloud to an audience. And the recitation itself likewise developed schools of transmission to ensure accuracy. The takeaway here is that the experience of the Qur'an as an oral phenomenon dictated the terms by which the Qur'an became a written text. The shape of that text, however, is our next subject. I don't mean to belabor the issue of the development of the Qur'an as it parallels the development of written Arabic but it's difficult to overstate its importance. Following the death of Muhammad, his close followers, those people who become the so-called companions of the Prophet, had to address the issue of how they were to maintain and spread his message. As I mentioned earlier, the tradition holds that Muhammad was illiterate, meaning at least that he did not write down the revelations himself. In addition to Muhammad's own memory, his companions had taken to trying to memorize the revelation, and it's said that one of Muhammad's wives, Aisha, possessed written versions of some of the revelations. But there was no composed, written, final version of the Quran in existence 
at the time of Muhammad's death. In this sense, our historical record aligns with the tradition. The Quran was not yet a book in the modern sense when Muhammad died. And it's evident that Muhammad's companions recognized this as a problem. At this point, however, the story becomes murky and contested. Some hold that Muhammad's political successor, Abu Bakr, began to collect different fragments of the text. Perhaps the second successor, Umar, did the same. Most Muslims agree, however, that it was the third successor, Uthman, who, given the rapidly expanding empire newly under Arab control, grew concerned that there were discrepancies being introduced into the revelation. After all, military conquests had stretched the reach of a newly united Arab polity into Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, and beyond. This wide geographic sprawl meant that those who were closest to the Prophet weren't able to monitor and correct the spread of Muhammad's message. What would happen if the success of the revelation led ultimately to its corruption? The tradition in Islam holds that at this point, Uthman deputized Zayd ibn Thabit to collect, correct, and preserve the revelation. Thabit is said to have served as Muhammad's scribe in addition to having memorized numerous revelations himself. By asking Thabit to gather and sort all recorded and remembered versions of the revelation, Uthman hoped to enshrine Muhammad's message in an uncontested form. Thabit's efforts apparently included gathering any written versions he could locate, as well as interviewing and recording memorized portions of the revelation from trusted followers of Muhammad. Weeding out specious or disparate lines, Thabit assembled a final compilation known as the Uthmanic Codex, copies of which are said to have been distributed to the major cities in the rapidly expanding empire. Thus, according to traditional accounts, the initial Ikra had become Al-Qur'an, the recitation. This process was theoretically completed less than 25 years after the death of Muhammad, a remarkably short amount of time in terms of religious history. And in this way, Uthman and Thabit saved the revelation from corruption. Unless, of course, that isn't the whole story. Here we encounter a major obstacle. There is no verifiable edition of Uthman's Codex still available to us. In fact, there is no existing whole and complete copy of the Quran until the early 10th century, some three to 400 years after the Prophet's death. What we do have, and it is a remarkable treasure in the aggregate, are pages and pages of the recitation, often loose-leafed and incomplete, though also highly standardized, written upon vellum, palm leaves and early paper, inscribed in stone, or painted onto decorative tiles, including within the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. These were the sorts of written versions that Zayd ibn Thabit would have been collecting in his effort to construct the whole of the Quran. Checked against his own memory or that of others, it would have been theoretically possible to collate an edition of the text that came relatively, perhaps even nearly perfectly, close to Muhammad's utterances. But again, we have no copy of Thabit's efforts. 
To be blunt, the literary question of the Quran hinges on the discrepancy between what tradition holds about Zayd ibn Thabit's collecting and standardizing efforts versus the evidence available to us. There is a historical gap of some 200 years between the earliest fragments of the Quran and a complete version of the text that corresponds to the Quran we know today. But lack of evidence isn't evidence to the contrary. Indeed, the fragments of the Quran we do have, including manuscripts only found in the 1970s in the attic of a Yemeni mosque, illustrate a high degree of correlation. In short, while the textual evidence for the Quran is incomplete, it is remarkably consistent in form and structure. Likely you're thinking, could this really be possible? Would not the text have already been terribly changed in the 20-plus years between Muhammad's death and Thabit's collating efforts? Not to mention the centuries that passed before indisputable evidence for a complete Quran? Perhaps. But we must also remember that memorization of text was the common practice at the time. Before broad literacy, before books were commonplace items, it was entirely reasonable for people to remember verbatim long passages of text that we today would be hard-pressed to recall. And, in fact, a good many Muslims still today make it a practice to memorize the whole of the Quran. One can learn the Quran by heart. During his time, no one would have thought Thibit's endeavor was impossible or unlikely on the face of it. At the same time, there is evidence of variant readings, some of them also attributed to close and trusted companions of the Prophet that did not make the final version of Uthman's Codex. Why was this? What are we to do with this information? Did Thibit manage to collect all or even nearly all of the Prophet's revelation? Or did editing occur? Were some verses or words changed or left out in order to support differing political or theological agendas? Again, we can't answer these questions with certainty, but we now have a sense of how the text evolved from fragmentary pieces into a cohesive whole. The solution, whether at the hand of Thibit or some later, more gradual compendium, was to create thematically organized chapters called soras. We've encountered a few of these already. Some of them are clearly whole and complete moments of revelation, while others are pastiches of different revelatory moments. What belonged with what, and who decided? The answer is unclear, but a rough outline has been deduced. In general, Muhammad's prophetic career is divided into two parts. The first is the 12-year period from the start of the revelation until he and his followers fled to the safety of a neighboring city, Yathrib, known today as Medina. These so-called Meccan passages bear the hallmark of the burden Muhammad faced in converting Mecca's resistant citizens. They are often pleading in character, seemingly bereft at the unwillingness of the audience to listen to their clear warning. Tonally, at least, there is general consensus about those revelations that come from the start of Muhammad's prophetic career. Once the revelations were sorted into chapters, the question of order came next. Aside from Al-Fatiha, the brief, evocative opening chapter of the Quran, the final order is roughly from longest to shortest. 
That is, Sora 2 is a lengthy and holistic exposition on social engineering, and each subsequent chapter is generally a smaller and smaller unit. The final 20 or so Soras are so short as to be nearly aphoristic, poetic in character, and rich with imagery. And, it just so happens, these shorter Soras typically correspond to the Meccan period of Revelation. So, if you wanted to recreate a roughly chronological order to the text, you might begin at the end and read forward into the text as you grow accustomed to longer and longer passages. Doing so can help trace, albeit imprecisely, the chronological evolution of Muhammad's prophetic career. I'm guessing you think that order according to length is a strange way to organize a book. However, aside from one surah, the chapter on Joseph, there is no narrative arc followed from beginning to end in the Quran. Even the lengthier Medinian surahs, that is, those revealed after the migration to Medina, often jump from topic to topic. That is to say, the Quran is not meant to be read as we read modern books, from front cover to back, but instead was always understood as a text you can dip into, one where order or context of revelation is not necessary to understanding its meaning. Indeed, when children first learn the Quran, they always begin at the end. If for no other reason, then the shorter surahs are easier to memorize. It might also surprise you to learn that organization according to length was a fairly common practice at the time. For example, in the New Testament, the letters of Paul are organized both thematically and generally by length, not in terms of their chronological composition. In both the Quran and the New Testament epistles, when they were composed or written is not the prevailing factor in where they appear in the text. Indeed, many of Paul's letters were likely written before any of the four Gospels achieved their final state. So, we've now addressed two parts of the translation process, from Muhammad's original utterances to a completed text. First, the oral recitation was written down in ever more elaborate orthographic form, corresponding to the development of standard Arabic. Second, these written forms were collected into a cohesive whole, which, although the exact contours of its collection are debated, leaves us with a written and ordered text that is held by the Muslim community to be the complete and unadulterated rendition of Muhammad's original revelation. This belief about the text is fascinating, but leaves me, and I would guess you, with a lot of questions. Didn't the revelation come to Muhammad during a very particular time and in a very particular place? Does it not reflect that historical time and culture during which it was first recited? Were the words uttered by Muhammad ibn Abdullah nearly 1400 years ago perfectly transposed in the editions we can buy or read online? To ask these questions and to give credence to some of the scholarly objections to the traditional account, as I have, is to suggest that the Quran has a history. And to say the Quran has a history is to engage in a theological dispute. Why is that? 
Well, it wasn't always the case. But over time, the orthodox view about the Quran became that the text was God's eternal and uncreated speech. Eternal, meaning that it has always existed. And uncreated, meaning its final form, the Arabic version we have today, was not the work of human hands. The position of the Muslim community is that the Quran as we have it today is the inerrant word of God as transmitted to the Prophet Muhammad. To be clear, this inerrancy is most directly attributed to the oral version of the Quran, at least in the sense that this was the original mechanism for transmission. The written Quran is a reflection of and thus secondary to the oral text. That's the theological stance. The scholarly opinion is more mixed. While there is a great degree of uniformity among the early fragments of the Quran, the variations that are known, and the lack of evidence between the earliest folios and the finished product introduce sufficient doubt that the Quran as we know it is inherently reflective of Muhammad's message. That there is scholarly skepticism is, I think, to be expected. But the questions raised will become important as we elaborate on the meaning and purpose of the text. For instance, did cultural assumptions about social norms infiltrate the text in ways that allow us to dismiss some elements of the text? Or, if not, how are we to understand passages that seem to allude to specific historical situations? In this sense, the history of the Quran as a book has bearing on the interpretive tradition of the text. We'll be exploring this in greater depth as this course continues. But, as I tried to make clear earlier, perhaps the tension between tradition and historical evidence doesn't matter. That is, whether or not the printed text of the Quran as we have it today is perfectly representative of Muhammad's message is less important than the fact that billions of Muslims have believed it to be so. Today, the Quran can be found in numerous translations, readily available on the internet, as cheaply mass-produced copies or crafted into exquisite art pieces. But the Quran can also be profoundly confusing, especially for first-time readers. It's abundantly clear that parts of the Quran we have today were in wide circulation, well-known and agreed upon very early within the tradition's history. But we cannot know that the whole of the text is perfectly representative of the words recited by Muhammad. And we will never know this with absolute certainty. Today, we have a text shared by the nearly 2 billion Muslims the world over. Only a fraction of Muslims read and speak Arabic, however. So it is in translation that a great many Muslims and non-Muslims alike encounter the Quran. The text has been translated into a majority of the world's languages, and in the case of English, dozens of times. These translations all grapple with the history of the Quran as a text in different ways. And perhaps this is as it should be. From an historian's point of view, I think it is reasonable to conclude that the final version of the Quran is the result of human effort. It was collated and collected and perhaps edited by people working in the wake of Muhammad's legacy. Indeed, many elements of the text that are today assumed, chapter divisions and titles, verse number indicators, are clearly ipso facto inventions. 
even if we assume the very best of intentions of Thibit and whoever followed him in the construction of the Quran, it's clear that editorial and thus interpretive decisions were made. Whatever the case may be, we have now arrived at our final canonized text of the Quran. After the prayer-like opening surah, a series of chapters in roughly descending length, which themselves roughly correspond inversely, to the chronology of their revelation. Subsequent scribes would add verse breaks along with other grammatical interventions, as well as titles for each chapter. All of this contributed to the interpretive tradition of the text, but still the Quran remains an object of dispute and question. What we will embark on next is a thorough examination of the text in its details beginning with the earliest passages delivered to Muhammad in Mecca and proceeding to contemporary debates within the Muslim world. Along the way, we should bear in mind that interpreting any text, especially one whose origins might be divine, is always an act of translation. Something will always be lost, but we must also caution against adding too much of ourselves. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. What can the Quran itself tell us about the earliest moments of Islamic history? The revelation of the Quran is routinely divided into two distinct categories, those surahs or chapters revealed in Mecca, and those revealed after the Hijra, or migration to Medina. This division is more than a geographic one, however, as the locale is also an indicator of tonal, thematic, and content differences in the revelations. Once Muhammad and his followers established residence in Medina, the community needed social and organizational guidance, and the Quran provided it. But before the text could provide a blueprint for how the community of believers should organize themselves, the community first had to be created. The Meccan Suras are dominated by what we might call an evangelizing mission. The audience for Muhammad's recitation was a community of diverse but specific religious and cultural customs. Predominantly, the Meccans valued the various idols and figures housed in the Kaaba, which would likely have included a variety of Arabian deities, as well as perhaps some Christian iconography. In addition, since pilgrimage to Mecca was a primary source for the local economy, allegiance was not just to the figures themselves, but also to the very practical benefit that being home to a site of ritual pilgrimage provided. In short, Muhammad's revelation was both a religious and economic challenge to the entrenched powers of Mecca. The Quran's message in the earliest surahs radically challenged the status quo, disrupting Meccan social and economic customs and becoming, after a while, a dangerous endeavor for Muhammad. Additionally, the worldview of the Quran would have struck its earliest audience as strange and foreign, especially those passages that envision the end times and divine judgment. That is, the emphasis on an ultimate judgment day, 
during which God will weigh our deeds and offer us entrance into a garden paradise or conversely, send us to an eternal punishment. This vision was not common in 7th century Arabia. While some nominal notion of heaven and hell may have been familiar from Christian or Zoroastrian merchants, the more common belief was what we might call an epic ethos. Death is final and non-negotiable. So one's legacy came through fame, fortune, or family. The advantage of this worldview was that it was easy to make an accounting of one's status before death, as what you had and where you stood are readily ascertainable. But the vision of cosmic justice supplied by the Quran was of a different existential order. Finally, the language the Quran employs in the earliest surahs exhibits a keen sense of audience. As we know, public recitation of epic poetry was a popular and sophisticated art form during Muhammad's time. Seemingly attuned to this, many of the Meccan surahs employ tropes and figures of speech that would have been familiar to listeners at least at the outset. But the Quran often subverts the expected conclusions. Let's look at an example. In this case, my favorite surah from the Meccan period of the Quran Surah 100. We heard this surah in recitation earlier. It reads, In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, by the charging steeds, panting and striking sparks with their hooves, who make dawn raids, raising a cloud of dust, and plunging into the midst of the enemy, man is ungrateful to his Lord, and he is witness to this, He is truly excessive in his love of wealth. Does he not know that when the contents of graves are thrown out, when the secrets of hearts are uncovered on that day, their Lord will be fully aware of them all? This remarkable passage would have, and I think still does, hit with a kind of concussive, visceral force. The opening lines paint a scene that would have been familiar and exciting for 7th century Meccans. Powerful horses bursting out of the desert in a tumult as if to raid a lucrative trading caravan. The martial imagery calls to mind the epic ethos of pre-Islamic Arabia, one in which glory in battle and the spoils of victory are the only sure reward. Muhammad's audience would certainly have made these connections for themselves and would be primed to hear a tale extolling these familiar virtues. The scene, however, pivots abruptly with the plaintive judgment of human greed. Man is ungrateful to his Lord, and he is witness to this. He is truly excessive in his love of wealth. Rather than praise for daring do, the Sura instead critiques the values of warfare and raiding, upsetting both the expectations and the values of the audience. This reversal of both the assumed direction of the story and of the moral framework common to 7th century Arabia marks the genius of the early Meccan surahs. Time and again, the earliest revelations begin by playing to the expectations of the audience, using images and tropes one might hear during any poetry recitation, and then upends those same images with a clarion call for moral re-evaluation. 
The moral judgment is accompanied by another significant revision to pre-Islamic tradition. Prior to Muhammad, death was understood as either an ultimate end, or if an afterlife was imagined, it paralleled the shadowy underworld familiar to us from Greek thought, a place of dim, ethereal existence where all are equally cut off from the joys of embodied life. Perhaps the key innovation of the Quranic revelation, then, is the repeated insistence on a day of reckoning, Yawm ad-Din. As Surah 100 describes it, when the contents of graves are thrown out, when the secrets of hearts are uncovered, on that day their Lord will be fully aware of them all. Here, death is not the final end. Instead, God will remove us from the grave to judge. That Surah 100 phrases this as a question, does he not know? Implies that Muhammad's audience did not readily accept this eschatological vision. Let's take another example. Surah 101 reads, The crashing blow. What is the crashing blow? What will explain to you what the crashing blow is? On a day when people will be like scattered moths and the mountains like tufts of wool, the one whose good deeds are heavy on the scales will have a pleasing life. But the one whose good deeds are light will have the bottomless pit for his home. What will explain to you what that is? A blazing fire. Similar to Surah 100, a violent, perhaps exciting image is first evoked. But here again, this image is almost instantly turned on its head. Rather than the valiant warrior vanquishing a foe, the crashing blow is instead the crushing realization that we will be judged for our deeds on an apocalyptic day. When people will be scattered like moths and the mountains like tufts of wool. The precision and vividness of the language was surely effective in appealing to the literary tastes of the Meccan audience, a rhetorically persuasive effort. Because of the heavy lift of convincing the Meccans of this new vision, the early Sora's appeal again and again to familiar imagery combined with these stylistic twists. Another recurrent theme is the use of oaths for a kind of formula. For instance, Surah 92 begins, By the covering night, by the radiant day, by the male and female he created, the ways you take differ greatly. Here we are given contrast, night and day, male and female, to serve a threefold purpose. One, God is credited with the whole of creation. Two, the stark contrast served to illustrate the Surah's intention of distinguishing between the path of the believer and disbeliever, the latter of whom is bound for a raging fire. And third, the invocation of an oath by the covering night serves as a declaration of truth and authenticity. Just as we today swear an oath to tell the truth or defend the Constitution. The Quran asserts its honesty in reference to all of the created world, and it does so many times. Surah 93 begins, By the morning brightness and by the night when it grows still, your Lord has not forsaken you. Similarly, Surah 95 reads, By the fig, by the olive, by Mount Sinai, by this safe city, we created man in the finest state, and reduced him 
the lowest of the low. The compounding effect is an assertion of honesty and authenticity about the recitation of Muhammad. In addition to the revelation itself, God's role as creator of the universe and the reality of Judgment Day are the most prevalent themes of the earliest surahs. Clearly, the task at the outset of Muhammad's prophetic career was to advocate for the validity of this message in general and for these two theological principles in particular. Why was God's creative power and the truth of Judgment Day so overtly emphasized? Likely because these two ideas were most fundamentally at odds with Meccan custom and belief at the time. I've already mentioned how the existence of an afterlife was either discounted or minimized in the traditions of 7th century Arabia. In addition, and as I've discussed in a previous lecture, the economic engine of Mecca was the shrine of the Kaaba, where tribal gods were housed and venerated during an annual pilgrimage. The assertion that God, Allah, was the sole creator of the world was a direct affront to the pantheon of pagan Arab gods and to the economy of the city. This dual threat was likely responsible for the broad resistance to Muhammad's message in the early years of the revelation. Did this new vision intend to completely upend the established practices and traditions of Mecca? Yes, and it did. But before Mecca's pagan customs were abandoned, the entrenched powers in Mecca sought to expel Muhammad and his growing cadre of followers. In 622, 12 years after beginning his prophetic preaching and after a variety of assaults, including an assassination attempt, Muhammad sought refuge in a moderately sized city northeast of Mecca called Yathrib. Tradition holds that this was a mutual agreement. Not only was Muhammad searching for a place of physical safety, but the citizens of Yathrib had endured their own civic turmoil and were in search of new leadership. As the story goes, Muhammad was invited to relocate to serve as a kind of mayor or governor of Yathrib, and his followers were welcome to come and establish their community without physical threat. There is a longer story about this emigration called the Hijra in Arabic, uh, but the short version is that Muhammad did manage to construct a new and relatively united polity in Yathrib, and one that eventually grew strong enough to challenge Mecca militarily. The most significant obstacle in the initial years was the presence of three different Jewish tribes in Yathrib, each of whom had varying degrees of suspicion and acceptance of the presence of this new community, and theological vision. The negotiations with and suppression of those who objected to Muhammad's new political authority is an important historical detail because it sheds light on the shift in message of the Quranic verses revealed while Muhammad was in Yathrib. Since Muhammad had been invited to the city, and because he arrived with a band of committed believers, the main challenge was no longer convincing the people of the authenticity of the Quranic vision. Instead, Muhammad had to establish an enduring community, and the revelations he subsequently received are often directed to this purpose. Instructions about marital and sexual relationships, inheritance, taxation, and support for the poor— 
the proper conduct of war and what we might call today uh, foreign affairs increasingly become main themes of the Quranic message. Nowhere is this better exemplified than in Surah 2, the cow. The longest chapter in the Quran, Surah 2 is said to have been revealed over the course of a number of years and as a result is exhaustive in its vision of what a new community of believers ought to look like. Using the story of the Israelites in the desert as they journeyed with Moses to the promised land as a counterpoint, Surah 2 consistently reaffirms God's grace and plan for his people, provided they do not waver in their devotion. It begins, naturally enough, revisiting the different faiths of the believers and the rejectors. Those who believe in the revelation sent down to you and in what was sent before you, those who have firm faith in the hereafter, such people are following their Lord's guidance and it is they who will prosper. As for those who disbelieve, it makes no difference whether you warn them or not, they will not believe. God has sealed their hearts and their ears, and their eyes are covered. They will have great torment. The effect of this distinction is to draw lines around the community, an act of definition. As the community can now clearly identify itself as such, the works of social institution building can begin in earnest. Exhorting the believers to remember the stories of Adam and Eve, Moses, and other familiar figures, the revelation then establishes a relationship between the followers of Muhammad and other believers. The believers, the Jews, the Christians, and the Sabians, all those who believe in God in the last day and do good will have their rewards with their Lord. No fear for them, nor will they grieve. This important verse creates a relationship between the followers of Muhammad, here called the believers, or Mu'minun in Arabic, and others who hold the core beliefs of God's reality, judgment day, and the virtue of good acts. All of these, the message says, will be rewarded. The implication was and remains that the message given to Muhammad was in concert with these other communities and that there needn't be inherent tension between them. This description of what comes to be called the people of the book, Al-Al-Kitab, is followed by various allusions to Moses and Jesus and the struggles they endured in convincing people of the truth of God's word. The implication here is clearly a struggle between a vision of a broad and inclusive community and the reality that Muhammad's message was not universally accepted. Muhammad was still working to unite disparate groups, and so the appeal to the prophetic exemplars of Moses and Jesus had obvious rhetorical value. The Quran makes this explicit. When it is said to them, believe in God's revelations, they reply, we believe in what was revealed to us, but they do not believe in what came afterwards, though it is the truth confirming what they already have. Say, Why did you kill God's prophets in the past if you were true believers? Moses brought you clear signs, but then while he was away, you chose to worship the calf. You did wrong. As in other Medinian surahs, 
References to biblical characters are used repeatedly as reminders directed towards Jewish and Christian groups, as if asking, do you not recall how all the previous prophets were criticized? Do you want to make this mistake again? The effectiveness of this line of argument was mixed. The Jewish tribes in Medina remained largely opposed to Muhammad's message. But as the community of believers continued to grow, increasing numbers of both Jews and Christians converted. The early history of Islam was enriched by these converts, and the Quran's strategy of appealing directly to their most prominent figures seems to have been a success. About a third of the way through Surah 2, we are given a fascinating and somewhat surprising story. Starting with verse 125, the text reads, We made the house a resort and a sanctuary for people, saying, Take the spot where Abraham stood as your place of prayer. We commanded Abraham and Ishmael, Purify my house for those who walk around it, those who stay there, and those who bow and prostrate themselves in worship. As Abraham and Ishmael built up the foundations of the house, our Lord, accept this from us. You are the all-hearing the all-knowing. Our Lord, make us devoted to you. Make our descendants into a community devoted to you. This is a watershed moment in the history of Muhammad's followers. While mentioned elsewhere in the Quran, the impact of what this story is meant to convey cannot be overstated. In brief, Muhammad had initially directed his followers to pray like the Jews in the direction of Jerusalem. However, following these new revelations, it came to be understood that the Kaaba in Mecca had in fact originally been built by Abraham and his son by the slave Hagar, Ishmael. The Hebrew Bible is silent on the fate of Hagar and Ishmael once they are driven from Abraham's tent by the jealous Sarah. The Quran picks up on this silence and fills the gap by telling how Hagar fled with the young Ishmael to Arabia where Abraham apparently paid visits to his firstborn son. While on such a visit, it's argued that they together built a house, the Kaaba. This sanctuary to the one true God fell into idolatry in subsequent centuries, but the Quran argues for its restoration. Once the Quran established this heritage, the community changed their direction of prayer away from Jerusalem and toward the Kaaba which Muhammad would subsequently cleanse of idols once Mecca submitted to the growing power of Muhammad's community. While the direction of prayer apparently upset some Jews who were inclined toward the revelation, the adoption of the Kaaba as part of the Abrahamic lineage meant that many Arabs felt reconnected to Muhammad's message. Reasserting the sacredness of the Kaaba, establishing it as intimately connected to Abraham, apparently helped ease acceptance of the Quranic message. In many ways, this move epitomizes the message of Sora too. If we read it as the establishment of a cohesive community, we can see how it struggles to unite disparate groups while maintaining elements that would appeal to what we would today call special interest groups. Jews, Arabs, and Christians, all three groups could find something that connected them to this new vision a kind of syncretism of the dominant communities into which the Quran was revealed. While skeptics might call this blatant pandering, it can also, and I think more accurately, be read as political genius. 
Of course, the tradition maintains that this was God's genius, but whoever is responsible for it, the effect cannot be argued with. Before he died in 632, Muhammad not only brought Mecca into his political control, but he managed to unite, through various means, nearly the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. For a territory that had not previously known political unity, this was a monumental achievement and foreshadows the success of the community over the next 1,000 years. Well, much remains to be discussed regarding any of the chapters of the Quran I've mentioned here. The remarkable narrative arc is the transformation of a relatively minor member of society into the undisputed religious and political leader in Arabia, all within 22 years. That Muhammad's success was driven by a religious message initially at odds with nearly all of the prevailing local traditions is even more remarkable. The revelation rejected much of what was believed in the various pagan traditions and significantly modifies much of what Christians and Jews understood about their traditions. Nevertheless, at the time of the death of the prophet, the Quran's message was rapidly spreading across North Africa and throughout the Middle East. As it spread, new communities would turn to the book, searching for ways to understand the revelation and find in it models for making a new community. The successors to Muhammad worked to compile the revelation in a standard text. As the newly united Arabs initiated a vast imperial project, the longer-lasting impact would be the spread of the message of the Quran into every corner of the earth. To understand the Quran then requires that we see its origins in 7th century Arabia, but also how it came to be read as a universal text. In the end, both things remain true. While obvious tensions arise in reading the Quran as both historically situated and universally applicable, it is that interpretive history that becomes the history of Islam itself. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. Who is God? What is God like? How can we know anything about God? These questions are perennial and perhaps ultimately unanswerable. Humans have been asking about God's character and nature as far back as we know. The questions of the ancient Indian Vedas, the creation myths from Mesopotamia like the Enuma Elish, the great pyramids of Giza, or the even more ancient structures from Gobekli Tepe in modern-day Turkey. These ancient texts and monuments all have indications of ritual activity likely centered around some conception of the divine with Gobekli Tepe stretching back nearly 12,000 years into early human life. Clearly, we've wondered about God, or the gods, for a very long time. Given this, the question of God seems like an appropriate place to start as we move away from the historical context of the Quran's creation and into the content of the text itself, where we'll spend quite a bit of time over the next few lectures. To start with the obvious... What does the Quran tell us about God? Is this something new or something old? Or is it perhaps a combination 
a new story about an old God, maybe the only God, that has been only recently, at least in absolute terms, revealed to us. By any measure, God is the central concern of the Quran, featured in the very first revelation to Muhammad and the touchstone around which all subsequent verses are organized. If nothing else, the Quran is profoundly theocentric. God is the animating and recurrent motif of the text, as well as its professed narrator. At the same time, God in the Quran remains elusive and ineffable. That is, God is rarely described in any concrete form, and the divine nature is made evident only through our interpretation of God's instructions to us. While God is given expected qualities like mercy and justice, we are likewise confronted with a God described in the via negativa. That is, we are told what God is not. God is neither male nor female, not mortal, not plural, nor even imaginable. Part of what we learn about the divine from the Quran is an acute appreciation for how God is not like things we know how God's nature remains a profound mystery, even as we are given glimpses into what God desires of us. God is wholly other. So what can we say? Is there a via positiva, a concrete and graspable notion of God that appears over the course of the Quranic revelation? In this lecture, we will grapple with that question, both in the text of the Quran itself and in the ways the Islamic tradition has addressed the elusive nature of the divine. Before we do, however, I want to revisit some things I noted in the first lecture about how we'll be talking about God. You might have noticed that I've yet to refer to God using any gendered pronoun. I've not called God he or she or even it. This isn't because Arabic as a language doesn't allow for this. Indeed, like French or Spanish, Arabic is a gendered language, assigning a gender, somewhat arbitrarily, to all nouns. The Arabic word for God, Allah, is in the masculine-neuter form, meaning him or it are both appropriate pronouns to associate with God, at least grammatically. But God's own relationship to gender is resisted, and anthropomorphizing God is anathema to the Quranic tradition. Suffice it to say, God is referred to in gendered language, and standard translations of the Quran are rarely shy about referring to God as he. But such a choice conveys neither the complexity of the Quranic vision nor the judgment of the theologians. As God is not like us, does not possess a body like us, God cannot be said to be male or female, and is instead of another sort altogether one for which human gender categories are simply inadequate. The convention of referring to God as he certainly predominates in translations of the Quran, but to infer from this any sense of literal gender is to misunderstand the uncreated nature of God. I also want to again note my decision to refer to the divine as God and not as Allah. This is a somewhat problematic issue. On the one hand, the scholar Bruce Lawrence has argued in his book, Who is Allah?, that because Allah is the Arabic term for the divine, 
And because the Arabic of the Quran is held in special reverence, there is thus a certain sanctity in the word Allah. Furthermore, the English word God comes with its own cultural baggage, particularly the Christian notion of God as embodied in Jesus. In this line of thought, God does not equate to Allah because of the association many Christians might make to their own tradition. On the other hand, if the Allah of the Quran is also the God of Abraham, as the text so emphatically insists, then Allah is in many senses the same God as is worshipped by both Jews and Christians, even if not all agree on the messengers of God. Considering this, to use the word Allah when addressing an English-speaking audience creates a kind of artificial distance, suggesting that Allah is some different God, an alternative or a competitor. It's for this reason that I've chosen to translate Allah as God in these lectures, as a way of lessening the perceived distance between ideas about the divine. While this act of translation is not without its problems, it seems to me that conveying the sense of divine commonality is preferable to insisting on theological exactness. With those considerations in mind, let's turn to the Quran itself. As we learned in a previous lecture about the first revelation to Muhammad, Surah 96 states emphatically that God is the creator. Read, in the name of your Lord who created, he created man from a clinging form. This first vision also gives us God as Lord, uh, perhaps an entirely expected title for the creator. But we also see the gendered pronoun he makes an appearance too. If we add the Bismillah to this passage, uh, we learn that God is the most merciful. In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. Thus, in two short lines, God is characterized as merciful, the creator, our Lord, and is signaled using a gendered pronoun. In some sense, this is a fairly standard depiction of God, and in no sense different from Jewish or Christian notions of the divine. But it is worth reflecting further upon the first words of the Bismillah. Michael Sells translates the Arabic Bismillah, Rahmani, Rahim, as in the name of God, the compassionate, the caring. He then goes on to note, this phrase is frequently translated in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. But traditional scholars have emphasized that the terms Rahman and Rahim are based upon an Arabic etymology linked to the word for womb, haram. In addition, mercy as a quality of forgiveness has been strongly marked by Christian associations with the doctrine of original sin, whereas the Quran does not posit the notion of original sin. For these reasons and for the purposes of euphony and alliteration, I've used the translation, the compassionate, the caring. The shared etymology of Rahman and Rahim is something I noted in an earlier lecture, and Professor Sells is using it here to navigate a variety of important and interrelated points about God in the Quran. In addition to attending to the tricky question of how to convey the sonic quality of the Arabic Quran, here choosing the alliterative terms compassionate and caring, 
Selz's mention of the root word for Rahman and Rahim introduces interesting information about how the original Quranic phrase would deepen and complicate our understanding of God. The association with womb, an inherently female attribute, pushes our image of God beyond the static associations that the male pronoun might suggest. God is creator, mother-like, and the Lord, all wrapped into one. The more standard translation of the Bismillah as meaning compassionate and merciful suggests an additional, if still incomplete, vision. Compassion as a concept implies a horizontal relationship. We feel with, or more literally, suffer with, someone close to us. Mercy, on the other hand, suggests a vertical relationship, as mercy is handed down from above to the undeserving. While these two terms do not indicate a maternal relationship, they do give a sense of how God is with and above us simultaneously. God feels our pain through proximity, but extends mercy as our superior. This dual nature suggests the ways in which God is intimately involved in human life, while at the same time utterly unlike humans, superior in every way. While God feels with us, God also stands in position of judgment. God is both beside us and above us. If the nature of God that is beginning to emerge here is one in which God's character exceeds our capacity to understand, other passages of the Quran give more particular instructions. Surah 112, among the briefest in the whole of the text, is also bracingly direct. It reads in its entirety, Say, He is God the One, God the Eternal. He begot no one, nor was He begotten, no one is comparable to him. Some traditions hold that this brief statement was considered by the Prophet Muhammad to be equal to one-third of the Quran, emphasizing, as it does, the most fundamental characteristic of God in the Islamic tradition, Tawheed. Al-Ahad, the word here translated as the one, along with Al-Wahid, or the single, are the roots for Tawheed, the idea of God's unitary singularity, one and only one, indivisible, admitting no associations, the like of which can be compared to nothing else. Theologically speaking, much is packed in to this simple declarative. The assertion of God's tawhid or oneness is the positive affirmation of what we might call radical monotheism and is an explicit challenge to both the polytheism of 7th century Arabia as well as Christian conceptions of a Trinitarian divinity. While the term begotten has an especially Christian ring to it, it's helpful to know that three pre-Islamic goddesses, Alat, Manat, and Al-Uzza, were sometimes considered daughters of God, 
And this passage can be understood to be a direct repudiation of that. Regardless, the rejection of God as being in any way involved in begetting suggests that such activity, bordering as it does on the sexual, is especially antithetical to the Quranic vision. We'll learn in a later lecture how Jesus, a prominent figure in the Quran and the Islamic tradition as a whole, is configured. But for now, it's enough to say that Jesus is a prophet, but nothing more. The assertion of Jesus' divinity in Christianity is categorically rejected, as are any other notions that God is constituted in a physical form. While the universe is God's creation, the universe is not God. The final line of the text, no one is comparable to him, continues and expands the understanding of Tawheed. Because God is one, not only is nothing associated with God directly, but nothing ought to be associated with God. This requires some explanation. You're probably aware of the general anti-iconic tradition in Islam, the refusal to create images, statuary, or other physical representations of God's form. The resistance to physically representing the divine begins with this verse. Not only is no one comparable, but no thing can be said to represent the divine. God is beyond our ability to depict, and the danger of idolatry suggests we ought not even make an attempt. This opposition to divine iconography has been historically consistent. While opinions have varied greatly regarding general figural representation, including that of the Prophet Muhammad, the opposition to the depiction of God has been resolute. That is, with one possible exception, the Quran itself. In previous lectures, I've discussed how the recited Quran is understood as God's revealed words. How literally should we understand that? Is the language of the text God's language? Can the Arabic revelation of the Quran be thought of as God's self in some manner? While most Muslims would reject the notion that the Quran is a substantiated form of God, that it is God embodied in a linguistic capacity, the proximity of the Quran to God's own nature is reflected in the care for and illumination of the text. Quran reciters are held to a high degree of exactitude, lest error be introduced into God's words. The printed Quran is treated with reverence. Think of the elaborately decorated Quran stands used for reading the text. And most tellingly, the development of Arabic calligraphy and the non-figural illumination of the Quran speaks to the ways in which the word of God is treated as a sacred thing through ornate decoration. While the Quran is not God, it is as close to the divine as we can get in the physical world and as such is deserving of the best of our attention, skill, and art. In this sense, then, there is a direct line to be made from the Quran itself to God's nature. This is not only about the words of the Quran, although they matter inherently, but about the Quran as revelation. One way to see this is in those moments where the text becomes self-referential, Repeatedly, the Quran conveys what seems to be transcriptions of God speaking to the Prophet. For example, after a disquisition on the reluctance of people to listen to Muhammad's message, Surah 11, verses 12 to 14 read, So, 
Are you going to abandon some part of what is revealed to you and let your heart be oppressed by it? Because they say, why is no treasure sent down to him? Why has no angel come with him? You are only there to warn. It is God who is in charge of everything. If they say, he has invented it himself, say, then produce ten invented suras like it and call on whoever you can beside God if you are truthful. If they do not answer you, then you will all know that it is sent down containing knowledge from God and that there is no God but him. Here, the Quran challenges skeptics to exceed it themselves, to produce lines of comparable value and worth. Tradition holds that a few Meccans indeed did attempt to best the Quran and that their words were found wanting. But what I think is most interesting for us is the explicit characterization of the Quran as containing knowledge from God. Here, housed in this recitation is a glimpse of God's wisdom. In a similar vein, and more expansively, Surah 15 says, These are the verses of the scripture, a Quran, that is a recitation, that makes things clear. The disbelievers may well come to wish they had submitted to God. So leave them to eat and enjoy themselves. Let false hopes distract them. They will come to know. Never have we destroyed a community that did not have a set time. No community can bring its time forward, nor delay it. They say, Receiver of this Quran, you are definitely mad. Why do you not bring us the angels if you are telling the truth? But we send down the angels only to bring justice, and then these people will not be reprieved. We have sent down the Quran ourself, and we ourself will guard it. The obstinacy of the skeptics is a clear and persistent theme, and the Quran is self-aware of this. Here God speaks in the royal we, and speaks directly to the audience, vouching for the authenticity of the message and the promised comeuppance for those who doubt. For those who would question the lack of evidence given to Muhammad, some were said to have asked that he perform miracles as proof. The Quran replies that it is the Quran itself that is the sign of God. So let's take stock of what this all tells us about God in the Quran. God is the one who sends messages, who warns, and who does so in a very specific form. The recitation is a scripture, and the Quran elsewhere affirms the scriptures given to previous prophets like Moses and Jesus. And it is via scripture that God speaks to humankind. This, I think, is a rather remarkable feature. God reveals God's self to us through words. Or, to be more blunt, God is literary. To characterize God as literary is, I would propose to you, an essential and not just incidental element of the Quranic vision. Take, for example, the repeated reference to the al kitab the people of the book. This phrase is usually interpreted to refer to Jews, Christians, and Muslims in the collective, a Quranic version of the contemporary term Abrahamic faiths. As the term evolved along with the expansion of Islam, the three traditions were understood as part of the same prophetic lineage. As such, 
Jews and Christians under Muslim rule were afforded special protection. Although they lacked the final revelation given to Muhammad, they were recognized as being in possession of an authentic message from God and thus part of the broader community of believers. However, I think we can read much more into it. The people of the book are the people of God, and God is in this sense equated with the book. I don't mean to propose a tautology here. This isn't a philosophical or a theological assertion, the way, for instance, the book of John equates God and the Word in the New Testament. Instead, to say that God is revealed through literature is a mechanism to create a community of believers. To be part of this community means to know God through Scripture. Insofar as Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all part of one community, they are collectively differentiated from the idolaters and polytheists. This is telling. God cannot be represented as a sculpture because God can be compared to nothing. God is not many because God is by nature one. But God is of the book. If your tradition has a book from God, the Hebrew Bible of the Jews or the Gospels of Christians, then you are of God's people. This straightforward approach was not without its complications. When the newly expansionist Muslim empire encountered other religious traditions as it emerged out of the Arabian Peninsula, one of the primary concerns was to determine if these people too were of the book and thus included in the broad community. Perhaps the earliest example of this is the encounter with the pre-Islamic religion of Persia, what we today call Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is a very modern term and is somewhat problematic. In the 7th to 10th centuries, it might be better described as the worship of Ahura Mazda, the wise lord. The worship of Ahura Mazda dates back to at least the 6th century BCE, nearly 1,200 years earlier than the revelation to Muhammad, and might date back another 1,000 years before that. Zoroaster, the Greek term for the Persian prophet Zarathustra, advocated for the sole worship of Ahura Mazda, and it is the name of the prophet that became associated with the ancient practice. For our purposes, it's important to note that Abraham and the other biblical prophets are not part of the Zoroastrian system. That is, it is not directly linked to the same prophetic lineage of Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Additionally, the centrality of fire to the worship of Ahura Mazda was met by the new Muslim powers with great skepticism, suggesting a worship of the elements rather than of God. Most problematically, the conception of an evil force, Ingra Minyu, led some to think of Zoroastrianism as dualistic, and thus contrary to the monotheism required by the Quranic vision. Nevertheless, there was much about the worship of Ahura Mazda that corresponded to the basic requirements of faith in the Quran. The worship of one God, the performing of good deeds, and the reality of God's judgment at the end of time. First, Ahura Mazda was unequivocally a singular deity, and his status as creator corresponds to the Quranic conception of God. Second, the tradition has a specific sacred text, the Avesta, in which the revelations of Zoroaster are recorded, along with instructions for the importance of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Finally, the belief in a judgment day at the end of life 
during which the righteous are rewarded and the evil are punished is not only central to the tradition, but might be the origin for the very idea of heaven and hell as understood by Christianity and Islam. All of this meant that Zoroastrianism closely paralleled the required beliefs outlined in the Quran. The question for the early Muslims was, are these people of the book? For all intents and purposes, Islamic rule of Persia granted this status to them. The presence of the book of one God and of God's judgment satisfied the criteria. This matters for our understanding of God, and especially of God as a literary figure, because the Quran does not limit God's text only to Muhammad. It's therefore not only feasible, but imminently reasonable to assert that God provided revelation to many others before Muhammad. That the worshippers of Ahura Mazda, the wise Lord, a name not antithetical to the Quranic conception of God, might have been recipients of an earlier revelation was entirely possible. To extend a Quranic injunction, we make no distinction between any of his messengers, and thus the Zoroastrians became people of the book. Another example of God's literary character comes from the use of metaphor and comparison. In Surah 2, the text says, God does not shy from drawing comparisons even with something as lowly as a gnat or higher. The believers know it is the truth from their Lord, but the disbelievers say, what does God mean by such a comparison? One way of reading this passage is to recognize that the text is advocating for a literary imagination. God uses the natural world to make similes or allusions, to speak, in a sense, as a poet. An example of this comes from Surah 95, one of my favorite chapters in the Quran. By the fig, by the olive, by Mount Sinai, by this safe city, we created man in the finest state, then reduced him to the lowest of the low. But those who believe and do good deeds will have an unfailing reward. After this, what makes you deny the judgment? Is God not the fairest of judges? The evocation of the fig, the olive, and Mount Sinai are literary illusions. Their meaning is not plainly evident, and we must work to interpret how they function in this passage. God is speaking in what we might call poetic language. Let me be clear. I'm not saying the Quran is or is simply poetry, but rather that throughout the text, God is portrayed as speaking in sophisticated literary ways as a poet might. The references to various biblical figures and events is another different example of literary illusion. We are asked to remember when Moses or Jonah or Pharaoh did or said various things, and thus to draw lessons from these actions. To say, then, that God's people are people of the book is not just a reference to shared prophetic lineage, but is instead a suggestion that God's revelations, and thus God's nature, are literary. To know God's will means we must read and interpret God's divine library. The concept of a library has its own Quranic precedent. In Surah 18 we hear, Say, if the whole ocean were ink for writing the words of my Lord, it would run dry before those words were exhausted. Even if we were to add another ocean to it, say, 
I am only a human being like you, to whom it has been revealed that your God is one. Anyone who fears to meet his Lord should do good deeds and give no one a share in the worship due to his Lord. Clearly, God has much to say, and the image of an ocean of ink only further supports the notion that God's use of language is vast, undulating, deep, and mysterious. And it is also clear that, no matter the details or intricacies of God's verbal manifestation, oneness and devotion are non-negotiable. My discussion of God in the Quran has thus far been relatively conceptual, uh, teasing out of characteristics from central and repeated themes. One other way to think about God in the Quran is through the names ascribed to the divine. Surah 20 says obliquely, God, there is no God but him, the most excellent names belong to him. What are these names? Surah 20 doesn't tell us, turning instead to a story about Moses, and so we must search the text for clues. Probably the most comprehensive list of names or attributes of God comes in Surah 59 and begins with an evocative metaphor. If we had sent this Quran down to a mountain, you would have seen it humbled and split apart in its awe of God. We offer people such illustrations so that they may reflect, He is God, there is no God other than Him. It is He who knows what is hidden as well as what is in the open. He is the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy. He is God. There is no God other than Him, the controller, the Holy One, source of peace, grantor of security, guardian over all, the Almighty, the compeller, the truly great. God is far above anything they consider to be His partner. He is God, the creator, the originator, the shaper. The best names belong to Him. Everything in the heavens and earth glorifies him. He is the Almighty, the wise. Here, perhaps at last, we are given an assertive vision of God's nature, a list of characteristics that might help us understand who God is. But if we look closely at the list, we are still left somewhat in the dark. Creator, originator, and shaper are all similes of a sort. And while there are fine distinctions between each, What new information about God are we really given? Likewise, guardian over all, almighty, compeller, and truly great are all sorts of superlatives. Yes, God is stupendous, but who is God really? I can't say. Not for sure. And I'm not sure that the Quran wants to tell us. At least not as biography or character sketch or illustration. Instead, God as encountered in the Quran is a fullness of being, perhaps akin to what the German philosopher Martin Heidegger called Dasein, being in itself. In the Islamic tradition, one manifestation of the elusive character of the divine is what comes to be called the 99 beautiful names of God. These names, all derived from the Quran, although not wholly comprehensive of Quranic reference to the divine, are said to be the inimitable traits of God. But rather than being used as a sort of profile for God, they become ritualized. That is, these names are recited by the devout, 
especially among the Sufis, the mystical branch of Islam, as a kind of meditative remembrance of God. Similarly, artists have used these names written in ornate calligraphy as some of the primary decorative motifs in what is broadly called Islamic art. What I think we ought finally take away from all this is that God in the Quran is not defined. Indeed, God's nature is undefinable by nature. But instead that God is experiential. On an existential level, God is encountered on the last day when we will be judged for the righteousness of our lives. On a theological level, God is indescribable, known only and forever impartially. Phenomenologically, God is literary, accessible to us, at least in part, by the text revelation, but with the caveat that any revelation is always and only partial. And practically, God has qualities, creator, judge, and compassionate chief among them. We can use these qualities to approach a knowledge of God's character, but only with the understanding that our sense of these terms is based on human experience, which God transcends absolutely. The words, again, will only get us so far. As students of the Quran as a text, what we have in the end is a God who is central to the existence of the text, who is revealed somehow with every word, but in the end still remains hidden. People may be of the book, but God is beyond it. In this sense, the text can only serve as an introduction to an experience. The experiential nature of God and the Quran is, of course, best described by the Quran itself. And so I'll leave you with Surah 93 and its evocation of the refuge we might find in the divine. By the morning brightness and by the night when it grows still, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor does he hate you. And the future will be better for you than the past. Your Lord is sure to give you so much that you will be well pleased. Did he not find you an orphan and shelter you, find you lost and guide you, find you in need and satisfy your need? So do not be harsh with the orphan and do not chide the one who asks for help. Talk about the blessings of your Lord. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. Perhaps the most curious and typically confounding feature of the Quran is its lack of linear narrative. Unlike, say, the book of Genesis, there is no in the beginning or origin story. The Quran is simply a different kind of book from what modern readers are conditioned to expect. Despite this lack of linear narrative, however, the Quran offers an array of riches when it comes to the story of Adam and Eve. Although they are presented in disparate snippets spread throughout the whole of the text, the story of the first humans and their temptation and disobedience are given ample attention in the Quran. And, inseparable from the story of the first humans, the story of Satan, typically called Iblis in the Quran, is more fully realized than in the Bible. In fact, the role of Iblis at the beginning 
is a central feature of the creation account. In this lecture, we'll examine the depiction and characterization of Adam, Eve, and Satan, and explore how they serve specific themes in the Quranic text. Their story emphasizes two main features. First, and perhaps obviously, is the depiction of God as the creator, presented in the text in contradistinction to the pagan gods. Second, the story of God's creation and Iblis's reaction to it becomes a discourse on obedience and disobedience. As we shall see, the drama of Iblis's temptation of the first humans hinges upon the question of who will be the most obedient to God's will. But significantly, the role of Eve, and indeed the ways in which her character is undeveloped in the Quran, represents a significant revision of the biblical story of creation. Indeed, Eve is nowhere named in the Quran. When thinking about the beginning of the world in the Quran, there are at least three different choices for where one could, well, begin. Uh, the first chapter of the Quran, Al-Fatiha, usually translated as the opening, is a logical place to start, but we find that it acts simply as a kind of statement of faith and a prayer for beneficence and succor from God. The opening chapter begins the book, but not the universe. While God is praised as Lord of the worlds, there is no specific delineation of his role as creator. However, if we turn to what most scholars believe to be the first revelation given to Muhammad, there is something of the creative moment. Surah 96 reads, Recite, in the name of thy Lord who created, created man of a blood clot. Recite, and thy Lord is most generous, who taught by the pen, taught man that he knew not. We see here, in the very first moment of the tradition, an insistence upon God as the one who created, an association that not only demarcates this God from the false, non-creative gods of pagan Arabia, but also situates God as the one who created and taught via revelation. I would argue that this is both Genesis 1 and the Gospel of John, chapter 1, rolled into two short sentences. What I mean by this is that the first revelation establishes God's creative power at the beginning, and it is combined with what could be read as an echo of the Gospel of John's first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this sense, the first Quranic revelation combines the creation of humankind and the primacy of textual revelation into an inseparable whole. God created us. And we know God created us because God has told us so. As I noted in a previous lecture, God's revelation to us is inextricably related to textualism. If we piece together different moments in the Quran, this vision of divine character is reiterated with a recognition that this message had not yet been revealed to the Arabs. Surah 32 reads, This scripture free from all doubt, has been sent down from the Lord of the worlds. Yet they say, Muhammad has made it up. No, indeed. It is the truth from your Lord for you, 
to warn a people who have had no one to warn them before so that they may be guided. It is God who created the heavens and the earth and everything between them in six days. Then he established himself on the throne. He runs everything from the heavens to the earth and everything will ascend to him in the end on a day that will measure a thousand years in your reckoning. I've given this extended citation from the Quran to draw our attention to some key details. In addition to asserting the divine origin of the revelation and trustworthiness of Muhammad, we are here given the six days of creation that are familiar from the book of Genesis. As the text continues to describe God's authority over all of creation, we are then given a reference to Judgment Day, which is said to measure a thousand years in your reckoning. This is not accidental. It suggests a metaphorical rather than literal reading of the days of creation, a reading supported by Surah 70. In that Surah, the day of judgment is described as a day whose length is 50,000 years. For these reasons, the Quran can be read as technically endorsing the six days of creation in Genesis, but gives wide interpretive latitude for how we ought to understand the length of those days. In part, this interpretation reflects other moments in the Quran where things ascribed to God are qualified as metaphor, lest we be tempted to think that the divine is held to our own human understanding. So while the text says six days, we cannot say we know what a day entails. God's measures are not our measures. Surah 32 continues, He created man from clay, then made his descendants from an extract of underrated fluid. Then he molded him. He breathed from his spirit into him. He gave you hearing, sight, and minds. How seldom you are grateful. There are three key elements in these verses. First, the extract of underrated fluid, elsewhere translated as mean water or sordid fluid, is usually taken to be a reference to semen, and in this sense is simply descriptive of how human life is propagated after the initial creative act. Second, and more importantly, is the description of humans as created from clay. This too echoes the account of Genesis, but here Genesis 2, what is sometimes called the second creation story in the Hebrew Bible. The earthen character of humanity becomes a distinguishing characteristic in the Quran and differentiates humans from other beings, especially the jinn, or those spirits said to be created from fire. Third and most enticingly is the image of God breathing from his spirit into him. It is the notion of God's spirit being breathed into Adam, to which I want to turn next. The inspiration of Adam, as it were, is fascinating from a philosophical perspective. But in the Quran, it serves mainly as an opportunity for a larger drama. Surah 15 gives a more detailed account of this creation of humankind, and one that is worth recounting at length. We created man out of dried clay formed from dark mud. The jinn we created before from the fire of scorching wind. Your Lord said to the angels, I will create a mortal out of dried clay formed from dark mud. 
when I have fashioned him and breathed my spirit into him, bow down before him. And the angels all did so. So far, so good. This account parallels the tale from Genesis 2 in terms of the material used to create the human, reiterating God's power and direct role in the generative moment. Likewise, God breathes his spirit into Adam, providing that divine spark of life that distinguishes humankind. However, Sora 15 adds details about the jinn, beings that were a common part of pre-Islamic thought and figure prominently in the Quran, and from which we get the fanciful idea of genies. The jinn and humans are both separate creations of God, but the angels are only instructed to worship the humans. And then Surah 15 continues. But not Iblis. He refused to bow down like the others. God said, Iblis, why did you not bow down like the others? And he answered, I will not bow to a mortal you created from dried clay formed from dark mud. Get out of here, said God. You are an outcast rejected until the day of judgment. Iblis said, My Lord, give me respite until the day they are raised from the dead. You have respite, said God, until the day of the appointed time. Iblis then said to God, Because you have put me in the wrong, I will lure mankind on earth and put them in the wrong, all except your devoted servants. This, one of the longer accounts in the Quran of the story of creation, curiously focuses most intently on the dispute between God and Iblis, the disobedient angel who becomes synonymous with the Christian Satan or Lucifer. But the nature of Iblis's disobedience differs substantially from both Jewish and Christian accounts and is a topic worth exploring in greater depth. The refusal of Iblis to prostrate himself to the human creature illustrates the central theme of the Quranic creation narrative, obedience and disobedience, God's will. It's useful for us to contrast this theme with the biblical account. In Genesis, an unnamed serpent tempts Adam and Eve into eating the forbidden fruit. Upon discovery, God curses the serpent Adam and Eve in turn, and bars all three from the garden. The serpent is later interpreted as Satan, and the eating of the fruit is understood, particularly by Christians, as the first sin, a kind of hereditary stain upon humankind. In contrast, the Quran provides a backstory to this moment, a dispute centered upon Iblis's refusal to worship God's creation. That refusal is the first act of disobedience, and Iblis' punishment for it leads him directly to the temptation of Adam and Eve, thus implicating them in a second act of disobedience. As Fazlur Rahman writes in his important study titled Major Themes in the Quran, the consequence of this refusal is dramatic. Satan, therefore, starts his career together with Adam. They are coevals. And the Quran constantly speaks of Satan, not so much as an anti-God principle, although he is undoubtedly a rebel against God and indeed personifies this rebellious nature, but rather 
as an anti-man force, perpetually trying to seduce man away from his natural straight path into deviant behavior. This characterization of Iblis, or Satan, is uniquely Quranic. The rebellious angel cannot challenge God's power. By definition, such a challenge would be impossible and would be to equate something with God. But rather, in his refusal to obey God's command, Iblis becomes the preeminent challenger to humankind. We are seduced by Satan into disobedience and away from our natural inclination towards obeying God's will. Rather than some notion of original sin that inherently tarnishes humankind, we are instead born predisposed in God's direction, but are tempted by Iblis's whispers. We are given another variant on the nature of this struggle in Surah 2 this time with additional details that parallel the biblical story. When we told the angels, bow down before Adam, they all bowed. But not Iblis, who refused and was arrogant. He was disobedient. We said, Adam, live with your wife in this garden. Both of you eat freely there as you will, but do not go near this tree or you will both become wrongdoers. But Satan made them slip and removed them from the state they were in. We said, get out, all of you. You are each other's enemy. On earth, you will have a place to stay and livelihood for a time. Then Adam received some words from his Lord, and he accepted his repentance. He is the ever-relenting, the most merciful. We said, get out, all of you. But when guidance comes from me, as it certainly will, there will be no fear for those who follow my guidance nor will they grieve. This iteration of the story most closely resembles the account in Genesis, including reference to a forbidden tree, Satan's role in tempting Adam and his spouse, and ejection from God's presence as punishment for their collective disobedience. But what this story lacks is most telling. There is no curse put upon the man or the woman, no laboring by the sweat of the brow, nor pains in childbirth. Instead, repentance and forgiveness happen almost immediately, and God assures his creation that guidance will inevitably come to them. While there is mention made that Iblis and the humans will be each other's enemy, this reads as more descriptive than punitive. While the punishment of being banished from the garden is the same for both Satan and the humans, God's guidance and mercy are immediately extended to Adam, in stark contrast to the eternal punishment meted out to Iblis. Obviously, humans are depicted as naturally prone to both falling away from but also returning to God's good graces. The relationship between humans and the divine, at least as told through this story, is one of a continuous effort and engagement While we might routinely forget our duties, we are also quick to beg forgiveness, and God is likewise quick to grant it. There is still one other detail that is missing from the Quranic account of creation, however. Eve. Nowhere in the Quran is she named, and her role in that initial act of disobedience is markedly different from that in the Bible. Eve's absence, however, is itself a kind of presence and requires further examination. 
While Eve is not given a name in the Bible until the end of Genesis 3, well after the temptation by the serpent and immediately following the curse from God, Eve is not named at all in the Quran. Tradition holds that her name in Arabic is Hawa, which is etymologically related to her Hebrew name, as Adam is related in both Arabic and Hebrew. And subsequent Islamic interpretations suggest that she might have played a central role in disobeying God's command. But none of that is included in the Quranic account, so let's explore the few details that are, in fact, in the text. Two other verses provide hints as to the Quranic understanding of Eve's creation and role. First, in Surah 4, the text reads, People, be mindful of your Lord, who created you from a single soul, and from it created its mate. And from the pair of them spread countless men and women far and wide. This alone is the most direct indication of Eve's creation alongside Adam, as no other passage in the Quran explicitly mentions her generation. The biblical account of Eve's creation presents an interesting contrast and a quandary. In Genesis 1, male and female are said to have been created together. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. However, in Genesis 2, we get the more famous creation of Eve out of Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So which is it? Were Adam and Eve created at the same time, or was Eve literally derived from Adam? The Quran does not explicitly endorse either option, nor does it offer a clear alternative to them. We humans are made from a single soul, and yet the male's mate is portrayed as at least a second action. Likewise, none of the other creation accounts portray Eve as simultaneous with Adam. Instead, God creates Adam from clay and instructs his angels to bow to him, fights with Iblis, and then, as if by magic, mentions Adam's wife. Where did she come from? When in this chain of events was she created? Is the single soul that humans share the same as the clay and dark mud used to construct Adam? Or does it instead suggest that spirit that God breathes into his creation? The interpretive tradition contains a few references to the biblical account, seemingly to support Eve's secondary creation. But because this is never made explicit in the Quran, the question remains open and subject to debate. The net effect, however, is that Eve in Islamic thought is much less often portrayed as derivative of and secondary to Adam. Their essential equality is further established in verses like this passage from Surah 20. When we said to the angels, bow down before Adam, they did. But Iblis refused. So we said, Adam, this is your enemy, yours and your wife's. Do not let him drive you out of the garden and make you miserable. In the garden, you will never go hungry, feel naked, be thirsty, or suffer the heat of the sun. 
But Satan whispered to Adam, saying, Adam, shall I show you the tree of immortality and power that never decays? And they both ate from it. Again, Eve appears from seemingly nowhere, as if she existed when God ordered his angels, although they are not instructed to bow down to her by name. And she is apparently at Adam's side when God instructs him about avoiding Satan's temptation. Similarly, Satan whispers about the temptations of the tree of immortality to Adam alone, though both eat of the forbidden tree. Because Adam consistently occupies the central role in the narrative of creation, Eve's secondary, almost invisible presence has the consequence of largely absolving her of primary blame for their disobedience. Adam cannot blame her, as he does in Genesis, for tempting him. God instructed Adam, Satan tempted Adam, and then Adam and Eve eat together. In a very real sense, though perhaps ironically, the emphasis on the male becomes a theologically liberating opportunity for the female. Eve's relative absence in the text means she cannot become a literary or theological scapegoat. Be this as it may, both humans are told to get out, feel shame at their nakedness, receive absolution from God, and go on to be the primordial founders of the human species. Throughout this examination of the Quranic creation account, I've explored the characterization of God as creator, of the centrality of disobedience as the thematic concern of the creation narrative, and highlighted some of the significant differences between the Quranic and biblical stories. Theologically, the results of these differences are significant. The Islamic tradition has no concept of original sin. Humanity is generally considered to have been created from the same substance rather than Eve being derived from Adam. And the consequences of and blame for Adam and Eve's disobedience do not fall primarily upon Eve. The tempter in this narrative is obviously Iblis, and it is his arrogance that assumes central importance. And yet, that's not the end of the story. At different points, Iblis explains his resistance to bowing down to Adam. Sora 7 reads, God said, What prevented you from bowing down as I commanded you? And he said, I am better than him. You created me from fire and him from clay. This idea that Iblis' resistance has to do with the quality or nature of humankind is intriguing. In that same chapter, we hear the similar banishment and request for respite. But then Iblis gives further insight into his thinking. Because you have put me in the wrong, I will lie and wait for them all on your straight path. I will come at them from their front and their back, from their right and their left, and you will find most of them are ungrateful. Later interpreters, especially those mystically or philosophically inclined, uh, Muslims called Sufis, dig deeply into this passage. Why does Iblis say that God put him in the wrong? Why does Iblis wish to elicit and highlight humankind's ungratefulness? 
Could it be that Iblis was on to something? One option is that Iblis was, in fact, exemplifying total devotion to God, a devotion so absolute that he risked disobedience. That is, we might presume from the rest of the Quranic text that the worship of God alone is the central and non-negotiable commandment. What to do then when God tells you to worship something other than God, especially when that thing is a mud and clay humanoid? Is such a thing worthy of prostration? Some mystical interpretations answer this last question with an emphatic no. In a sense, Iblis illustrated his profound devotion to God by refusing to bow down to anything other than the divine, even at the risk of punishment. In fact, Iblis's principal disobedience is in direct contrast with one of our next figures, Abraham, famous for his obedient willingness to do the unthinkable. Once the punishment is handed down, Iblis's only recourse is to then devote himself to illustrating that we humans were never worth adulation in the first place. This is, as you might expect, a minority interpretation. But I think it also suggests the rich exegetical tradition of Islam. As we continue working through figures and themes in the text, we'll see how what might appear to be inconsistencies or equivocations in the text instead lend themselves to dynamic and creative interpretive traditions. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. Maliki Yaumi Yaddin. For me, these are the most arresting words of Surah Al Fatiha, the first chapter of the Quran. In traditional recitation, they conclude with a descending plaintive scale, the sound of deep disappointment or foreboding, maybe even doom. The typical English translation renders them as something like master of the day of judgment, although Maliki is sometimes given as king or sovereign. But none of those really convey the full tenor of the phrase, something both rich and sparse simultaneously. True, Malik is simply master or king, and Yaum is unambiguously day. But Dean, Dean is a different story, and changes the whole of the clause, constructing an imagistic apocalypse, pregnant with both promise and peril. In contemporary Arabic, Dean is typically translated as religion, and indeed in many translations of the Quran, it's likewise rendered as religion. But to say day of religion doesn't mean much of anything to a modern audience and suggests that the 7th century understanding of Dean was something else altogether. If you turn to classical definitions of Dean, you learn that it could mean system, power, supremacy, ascendancy, sovereignty, or lordship. Dominion, law, constitution, mastery, government, realm, decision, definite outcome, reward, and punishment. On the other hand, this word is also used in the sense of obedience, submission, and allegiance. So, 
while there are places in the Quran where any of these terms might be more contextually appropriate, it's apparent that the phrase as a whole means to convey something like that day when the absolute sovereign exercises absolute judgment in all matters. This moment and its precise workings becomes a central motivating theme throughout the whole of the revelation of the Quran, accounting for perhaps 10% of the entirety of the Quran. From the earliest revelations to the last, the Quran returns again and again to questions about the last day, paradise, and hell. What happens on the day of judgment? Is it a universal event or a personal individual reckoning? When is the day of judgment? And once judged, what is the sentence? Is there reward for the righteous and punishment for the wicked? These questions will occupy this lecture, revealing how the Quran uses Yawm din as a motivating concept and organizing principle. In the elaboration of the Day of Judgment, we enter the realm of Islamic eschatology, the consideration of last things, or, in short, what happens when we die. To understand the Quranic vision of Judgment Day, Paradise, and Hell, it's important to first consider the beliefs and traditions that were prevalent prior to Muhammad's time. This is necessary not just to understand what people believed at the start of the 7th century, but also to know how the Quran challenged, affirmed, or otherwise modified these beliefs. On one hand, the Quranic eschatology was a radical departure from pre-Islamic tradition, while on the other, it can be understood as a unique synthesis of various ideas that were percolating but not yet mature. Taken together, the Quran provides a fully realized description of the afterworld, far more detailed and explicit than what is to be found, for example, in the Bible, either Jewish or Christian. To set the stage, the standard history of 7th century Arabian beliefs suggests that there simply wasn't a sense of life after death. From the scant evidence available, pre-Islamic literature is decidedly this-worldly, emphasizing glory, honor, and pleasure, as well as defeat, dishonor, and pain, as experiences of physical life on earth that cease upon death. One could be said to live on only through heroic fame or patrimony. Where there is a suggestion of an afterlife, it seems to mirror the ancient Mesopotamian or Greek view of a shadowy existence in another world, home for both the righteous and the wicked, a pale reflection of life on earth. To the extent that disbelief in an afterlife was the prevailing position, we can well understand both why the Quran emphasizes the Day of Judgment, as well as Muhammad's difficulty in convincing his kinfolk of its reality. As we have seen, however, this was not the only opinion available to Muhammad's contemporaries. Zoroastrian, Jewish, and Christian ideas were also present in the region and provided an array of ideas about the afterlife. We don't have time to present a full view of these visions, but let me offer you a few salient points. First, the Zoroastrian tradition pioneered the idea of divine judgment, eternal paradise for the good, and torment for wrongdoers. Specifically, souls that are judged to belong to the house of lies 
are there punished in accordance with their sins. This relationship between sin and punishment, what is later called contrapasso in Dante's exquisite treatment in the Commedia, became later integrated into a wide variety of traditions. Second, Jewish and Christian ideas about an afterlife were still relatively contested. For Judaism, Sheol was the shadowy underworld where all souls existed after death, although by the 7th century it had become common to imagine that there were different chambers or territories where one resided according to one's righteousness or lack thereof. should note that this vision of the afterlife bears resemblance to the ancient Greek and Mesopotamian ideas. For Christians, a more particular idea about resurrection had developed, although whether resurrection was of the soul alone or of soul and body together, there is yet no agreement. Writing in the 4th century, Augustine of Hippo imagined four different components of the afterlife, again corresponding to levels of sin and salvation. One common, if contested, source for visions of the afterlife, however, was the apocryphal Book of Enoch. This text, still accepted by Ethiopian Christians, provided a vivid description of both paradise and hell. The portions of this text that detail this afterworld are thought to have been written sometime during the 3rd century. What we can take away from this all too brief history is that the precise nature of the afterlife was an evolving concept, but one very much on the minds of many communities throughout the Near East. If we take this background as context for the Quranic vision, we might imagine that Muhammad's audience consisted of a variety of opinions, some who outright rejected any notion of life after death, some who accepted a version of a shadowy netherworld, and others with a more elaborate notion of judgment, reward, and damnation, although the specifics of that system were still in a nascent stage. Given this, it ought be no surprise that the rhetorical emphasis of the Quran is on the reality of Judgment Day, particularly in the Meccan surahs. This became a sort of first principle in the Quranic message. To be among the believers means to believe in God's judgment after death. As the Quran repeatedly says, all those who believe in God in the last day and do good will have their rewards with their Lord. One particularly evocative description of Judgment Day comes from Surah 101. The crashing blow. What is the crashing blow? What will explain to you what the crashing blow is? On a day when people will be like scattered moths and the mountains like tufts of wool, the one whose good deeds are heavy on the scales will have a pleasing life. But the one whose good deeds are light will have the bottomless pit for his home. What will explain to you what that is? A blazing fire. This surah, ascribed to the Meccan period, provides a synopsis of Judgment Day and its consequences, one elaborated upon elsewhere in the Quran as well as in the traditional interpretation of the text. First, the day is characterized as something specific and particular, a moment of apocalypse. 
The Quran itself offers only vague clues as to whether Judgment Day comes upon the death of an individual or if it is a universal day. Many passages in the text suggest a shared and precise moment, but the Quran is not unequivocal on this. Regardless, on that day, the world is turned upside down in both literal and figurative ways. In Surah 101, humans become like moths and mountains like wool, the tangible and solid transformed into ephemera. The disordering of the physical world is accompanied by a literal measuring of one's deeds as scales weighted by our acts. As Surah 99 describes it, on that day, people will come forward in separate groups to be shown their deeds. Whoever has done an atom's weight of good will see it, but whoever has done an atom's weight of evil will see that. This passage, revealed later in Medina, reiterates and reinforces the process of universal judgment, as well as the prevailing focus on our behavior. While faith is clearly a central concern for the Quran's vision, Judgment Day itself returns again and again to our actions. In this sense, at least, there is a balance between thought and deed in the Quranic conception of eschatology. To return to Surah 101, the phrase that those whose good deeds are heavy on the scales will have a pleasing life is a telling one. As scholar Narina Rustamji describes it, Muslims enjoy an afterlife within the parameters of a physically described afterworld. I'll have more to say and show about this world shortly, but the immediate takeaway is that life following judgment can be pleasing, or conversely, that one finds the bottomless pit for his home. The physicality of this is central, and the depiction of the two realms of the afterworld are explicitly imagined. The title of Rustamji's book plainly lays out these worlds, the garden and the fire, heaven and hell in Islamic culture. You might read Dr. Rustamji's book to get a sense of the full scope of how the Muslim tradition elaborates this vision. But for now, it is clear from the text that paradise is viewed as a garden of physical ease and contentment, while hell is an infernal pit filled with physical pain and suffering. These conceptions might sound familiar indeed, especially for those who have read Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. This correlation might be more than circumstantial. In 1919, Miguel Asin Palacios, a Roman Catholic priest and scholar of Islam, proposed a theory that the story of Muhammad's mihraj, his night journey from Mecca to Jerusalem upon the mystical creature Burak, and then visitation to heaven, was Dante's model for Paradiso. In other words, the physical materiality of Dante's vision that makes his Commedia so compelling as a drama may have been borrowed from the Quranic depiction of heaven and hell. So let's turn now to these two realms and their treatment in the Quran. Al-Akhira is the Arabic term for the afterworld, which we might translate as the last place. In this place, there is both a heaven and a hell. Heaven or paradise is most typically referred to as al-jana 
or the garden or some variation of that. But those who believe and do good deeds will be given the gardens of paradise. There they will remain, never wishing to leave. This garden is said again and again to be a place of lush repose. We shall admit them into gardens graced with flowing streams, and there they will remain forever. They will have pure spouses there, and we shall admit them into cool, refreshing shade. This description from Surah 4 is typical of the references to the garden, which nearly always feature water and regularly shaded places of rest. Elsewhere, it's said that the garden is replete with food and drink in abundance, honey, wine and milk, pomegranates, dates and grapes. The vision of paradise is unabashedly physical, a literal garden of delights. Surah 56 provides a detailed and cohesive view of the garden and is worth quoting at length. On couches of well-woven cloth, they will sit facing each other. Everlasting youths will go around among them with glasses, flagons, and cups of a pure drink that causes no headache or intoxication. There will be any fruit they choose, the meat of any bird they like, and beautiful-eyed maidens like hidden pearls, a reward for what they used to do. They will hear no idle or sinful talk there, only clean and wholesome speech. They will dwell amid thornless lote trees and clustered acacia with spreading shade, constantly flowing water, abundant fruits, unfailing, unforbidden, with incomparable companions we have specially created, virginal, loving, of matching age, for those on the right, many from the past and many from later generations. Perhaps surprising to a non-Muslim, the text is unapologetic in its depiction of sensuous reward, a reward of the body. This physicality extends also to sex. You might have heard of the infamous 40 or even 72 virgins promised to martyrs. I hate to disappoint you, but there is no such passage in the Quran. The beautiful-eyed maidens is a translation of hurin, the huris, that are indeed said to be companions in heaven. But as we've also seen, believers are joined by their spouses. That is, while never explicit, it is assumed that sexual pleasure would be a natural component of paradise. Those who enter paradise married will be joined by their spouses, while the unmarried, or God forbid, those separated at Judgment Day, would have companions for them, virginal, loving, of matching age. As Christian Lang describes it in his book Paradise and Hell in Islamic Tradition, In comparison with the culinary pleasures and the extravagant material riches enjoyed by the blessed, sexuality in the Quranic paradise is a rather subdued affair. The Huris are of modest gaze, who comply with what the Quran enjoins upon pious men and women on earth, namely to lower the gaze and safeguard chastity. As for married couples who enter paradise together, the Quran delicately intimates Congress by noting that they recline on couches in the shade. In other words, all those things that bring us pleasure in this world and this life are perfected in heaven and available for eternity. 
Spouses are said to be made pure for one another, and divinely appointed companions appointed for the rest, lest the rewards of heaven be given only to some and not others. This speaks, I think, to the frankness about sexuality that is likewise a feature of the Quran. Sexual union and enjoyment are assumed to be good and righteous parts of life in this world, and that goodness extends to heaven. But paradise isn't simply physical. Surah 9 says, God has promised the believers, both men and women, gardens graced with flowing streams where they will remain, good, peaceful homes and gardens of lasting bliss, and, greatest of all, God's good pleasure. That is the supreme triumph. Elsewhere, it's said that all that will remain in the end is God's face. These and other more intangible hints lead some interpreters to argue that the true joy of heaven is communion with the divine. Regardless, the physical rewards of the garden are central to the Quranic vision, while also serving as a counterpoint for the opposite, the torments of hell. Hell, in the Quran, is a visceral, physical punishment. The fire, called al-nar in Arabic, is given a specific name in the tradition, Jahannam or Gehenna, and is referenced in some 400 different verses throughout the text. Typically paired with a reference to the garden, the fire recurs again and again as the unambiguous place of punishment for those who reject God's message and commands. As recounted in Surah 88, have you heard about the overwhelming event? Some faces on that day will be downcast, toiling and weary as they enter the blazing fire and are forced to drink from a boiling spring with no food for them except bitter dry thorns that neither nourish nor satisfy hunger. In many ways, the fire is the inverse of paradise, suffering and work instead of ease and repose, fire and boiling springs instead of shade and lush springs, bitter thorns instead of abundant fruits. Just after the description of the garden in Surah 56, we are given an account of its opposite. They will dwell amid scorching wind and scalding water and the shadow of black smoke, neither cool nor refreshing. Before, they overindulged in luxury and persisted in great sin, always saying, What? When we are dead and have become dust and bones, shall we then be raised up? And our earliest forefathers, too? Say, the earliest and latest generations will all be gathered on a predetermined day, and you who have gone astray and denied the truth will eat from the bitter tree of Zakum, filling your bellies with it, and drink scalding water, lapping it like thirsty camels. This will be their welcome on the Day of Judgment. Elsewhere, the peer spouses or divine companions are replaced with the Zabaniya, translated as the guards of hell, who drag the sinners down to hell. The physicality of the torturers in hell, like the physical pleasures of heaven, are thus reliant on the literal resurrection of the body. The rhetorical question of the disbelievers, shall we then be raised up, 
is evocatively affirmed. When that resurrection occurs is a question of some dispute. Will the damned go immediately to the fire or will there be a brief reprieve in the grave prior to the Yom Din? The ultimate fate is unambiguous. Perhaps the most innovative element of the Quranic hell is the contrapasso punishments I mentioned earlier. In Surah 17, those who were blind in this life will be blind in the hereafter. The initial blindness in this life is clearly an unwillingness to see the truth of Muhammad's revelation, a spiritual blindness made literal in the next life. In other passages, the punishments for rejection and refusal are visited upon the body. Those who turned their metaphorical backs on the Quran have their backs or faces burned or roasted. While not as gruesomely descriptive as Dante or other medieval depictions of hell's torments, the presence of contrapasso punishment in the Quran makes sacred this device as part of God's divine judgment. To the extent that it echoes the tortures of the fire as found in contemporary texts like the apocryphal Book of Enoch or the Apocalypse of Paul, the Quranic vision of hell legitimizes popular and prevailing eschatological ideas from the 7th century Near East. The Quran's emphasis on and elaboration of Yawm din Judgment Day, the pleasures of the garden and the terror of the fire-fueled apocalyptic imaginings for centuries to come. At least as it's presented in the Quran, Judgment Day and the afterworld are a completely sensible set of consequences. All will be judged for their deeds, with the righteous rewarded and the evil punished. Reward and punishment are corporeal affairs, and lest we risk the latter, it behooves us to embrace the reality of God, God's message via Muhammad, and the truth of God's ultimate justice. While belief in God and the Quran are obviously advantageous to avoiding the fire, God's mercy will prevail for those whose goodness outweighs the bad. As we saw in Surah 99, on that day, people will come forward in separate groups to be shown their deeds. Whoever has done an Adam's weight of good will see it, but whoever has done an Adam's weight of evil will see that. And then, as Surah 98 concludes, Those who believe and do good deeds are the best of people. Their reward with their Lord is everlasting gardens graced with flowing streams, where they will stay forever. God is well pleased with them and they with him. All this is for those who stand in awe of their Lord. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. Sometimes surprises new readers of the Quran, those generally unfamiliar with its content, to realize the outsized role biblical characters play in the text. No two figures illustrate this better than Abraham and Moses. Both appear multiple times throughout the Quran and serve as key figures in the rhetorical strategies of the text. Abraham, 
for his part, is often used as the ideal exemplar for submission to God's will and the rejection of idolatry. Moses becomes the preeminent model for the career of a prophet, reflecting Muhammad's many struggles and trials. Taken together, these two characters serve both as essential figures for important Quranic themes and illustrative guides for Muhammad's prophetic career. As we'll see, the Quran combines familiar anecdotes about these two characters with new material that heightens their narrative value relative to Muhammad's efforts. Quranic passages about Abraham are particularly interesting. For the story of Abraham, there are three elements that I think are worth highlighting. First, the Quran emphasizes a story about Abraham found in Jewish Midrash, which is a tradition of stories explaining or expanding upon the Bible proper. Second, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son, perhaps the most well-known biblical tale of Abraham, takes an unexpected turn. And third, the Quran reveals a completely original story about Abraham's foundational role in Mecca and thus changes the orientation of Islamic practice forever. We'll take each of these tales in turn. The Quranic Abraham is said to be the son of Azar, an idol maker. Abraham asks his father and family about this practice and, as Surah 26 relates, They said, We worship idols and are constantly in attendance on them. He, Abraham, asked, Do they hear you when you call? Do they help or harm you? They replied, No, but this is what we saw our fathers doing. Abraham said, Those idols you have worshipped, you and your forefathers, are my enemies. Not so the Lord of the worlds who created me. It is he who guides me, he who gives me food and drink, he who cures me when I am ill, he who will make me die and give me life again, and he who will, I hope, forgive my faults on the day of judgment. After this harangue about the ineffectual idols, Abraham is elsewhere said to plot their destruction. Surah 21 says, By God, I shall certainly outwit your idols as soon as you have turned your backs. He broke them all into pieces, but left the biggest one for them to return to. They said, Who has done this to our gods? How wicked he must be! Some said, We heard a youth called Abraham talking about them. They said, Bring him before the eyes of the people so that they may witness. They asked, Was it you, Abraham, who did this to our gods? He said, No, it was done by the biggest of them, this one. Ask them if they can talk. They said, You know very well these gods cannot speak. Abraham said, How can you worship what can neither benefit nor harm you instead of God? Abraham's critique and destruction of the idols of his father and his people foreshadows the critique the Quran makes of the Arabian idol worshippers. It also foreshadows Muhammad's destruction of the idols housed in the Kaaba and Mecca upon his successful overthrow of his opponents there. 
While the tale of Abraham's idol smashing is not part of the biblical narrative, it is a familiar tale from Jewish Midrash. The Quran's repurposing of this story thus draws a specific parallel between the great patriarch and Muhammad as an advocate for radical monotheism. It is not simply that both Abraham and Muhammad smashed idols. It's that they did so despite the fierce defense of traditionalism argued for by their tribal relatives. Muhammad's actions are justified not just by the revelation given to him, but also by the actions of Abraham, well known to at least some in his audience, whose example paved the way. This parallel is further cemented, although with a unique twist in the next Abrahamic story we'll examine. The Quran parallels the biblical tale of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael by his wife's slave Hagar, and Isaac with Sarah, but offers a new and fascinating story about the fate of Ishmael and Hagar once they are forced to leave Abraham's tent. Where the Bible is silent on their fate, the Quran tells us that Hagar journeyed to Arabia where, with God's intervention, she found sustenance and safety in what becomes Mecca. Furthermore, Abraham himself visits his son there, where Sora too tells us they together built the Kaaba. As Abraham and Ishmael built up the foundations of the house, they prayed, Our Lord, accept this from us. You are the all-hearing, the all-knowing. Our Lord, make us devoted to you. Make our descendants into a community devoted to you. Our Lord, make a messenger of their own rise up from among them to recite your revelations to them, teach them the scripture and wisdom, and purify them. You are the mighty, the wise. This addition to the Ark of Abraham's story is momentous for a number of reasons. First, and most significantly for the future of Muslim practice, the identification of the Kaaba with Abraham paved the way for the redirection of prayer. Early on, Muhammad and his followers had prayed, as do the Jews, in the direction of Jerusalem. However, after identifying the Kaaba as a house of God established by Abraham, the direction turned toward Mecca. While this change unsettled some Jews who were contemplating Muhammad's prophethood, it did help cement the conversion of those Arabs accustomed to thinking of Mecca as the center for religious practice. The story about the origins of the Kaaba not only turned the direction of prayer, it also integrated the pre-Quranic practice of pilgrimage to Mecca into the religious vision built by the Quran. Where many Meccans had previously found Muhammad's prophecy to be displacing the centrality of Mecca and the Kaaba, this revelation preserved its religious, cultural, and economic importance. In addition to these practical matters, what we might think of as the institutionalization of Islam, the identification of the Kaaba with Abraham further developed the parallel between Abraham and Muhammad. Abraham's smashing of the idols in his father's workshop to return his people to monotheism becomes Muhammad cleansing the house of Abraham and restoring it to the devotion 
of the one true God. In a sense, those Arabs reluctant to accept Muhammad's message due to its apparent radical departure from custom could now see God's message as a kind of reclamation of original devotion. Now let's look at how the Quran approaches the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son. Again, the broad outlines of this story are familiar to those who know the biblical account. After finally conceiving a son, Abraham is instructed by God to make a sacrifice of that son to illustrate his devotion to God. This story is used in both Jewish and Christian traditions to illustrate the profound lengths to which Abraham was willing to go at God's command, and as such, makes Abraham the exemplar of faith par excellence. The Quran, however, adds a few unexpected twists to the story. As told in Surah 37, he said, I will go to my Lord, he is sure to guide me. Lord, grant me a righteous son. So we gave him the good news that he would have a patient son. When the boy was old enough to work with his father, Abraham said, My son, I have seen myself sacrificing you in a dream. What do you think? He said, Father, do as you are commanded, and God willing, you will find me steadfast. When they had both submitted to God, and he had laid his son down on the side of his face, we called out to him, Abraham! You have fulfilled the dream. This is how we reward those who do good. It was a test to prove. We ransomed his son with a momentous sacrifice, and we let him be praised by succeeding generations. Peace be upon Abraham. This short passage obviously screams for interpretation. Immediately, you'll recognize that which son is to be sacrificed, Isaac or Ishmael, is never mentioned. Additionally, rather than the biblical account of Abraham's wily dodge of the question, where is the lamb? The Quran has Abraham confront his son directly with the situation. What do you think? To which the son replies, Father, do as you are commanded, and God willing, you will find me steadfast. Personally, I find this willingness on the part of the child a rather stunning moment almost as if the faith of the son in his earthly father supersedes the faith of Abraham in his heavenly father. Finally, the ram God provides Abraham as a replacement in the biblical tale is only vaguely referenced, becoming only a momentous sacrifice. Now, these issues alone could occupy us for some time, and I cannot give a full account of the role of this story in the Islamic tradition. However, we should wonder about the question of identity of the son, his role in the broader narrative, and how the son's easy acquiescence to God's commandment is understood. First, which son was bound for sacrifice, Ishmael or Isaac? Nothing preceding this account nor elsewhere in the Quran gives any clue as to which son is meant. However, the Quranic text continues with these verses. Peace be upon Abraham. This is how we reward those who do good. 
Truly, he was one of our faithful servants. We gave Abraham the good news of Isaac, a prophet and a righteous man, and blessed him and Isaac too. Some of their offspring were good, but some clearly wronged themselves. What to do with this? I would propose that there are three possible interpretations of these lines. The first is a rather simplistic, cursory reading. The son was Isaac, end of story. This would be supported by the fact that Ishmael is never mentioned by name in the rest of the chapter, despite nods to Moses, Aaron, Elijah, and Jonah. Typically, and in many instances, Isaac and Ishmael are mentioned together as brothers in the text. So Ishmael's absence here is both irregular and suggestive. However, the identification of Isaac as the sacrifice is problematized by the repetition of a key phrase, and we gave him glad tidings of a son. At the start of the story, Abraham asks God for a righteous son and is given glad tidings, leading directly to the story. After Abraham, and the unnamed son for his part, is tested and found true, Abraham is again given glad tidings, and this time the son is named Isaac. There could then only be one son available for slaughter at the time it was requested, Ishmael. This second reading has become the standard reading of the story, although relying on this sort of linear context is not a typical interpretive strategy. Finally, a third reading. Who cares? The point of the tale, at least for the Sora as a whole, is not a question of primogenitor, but rather of faithfulness. And on this count, both Abraham and his son, whichever one, passed the test. We could rightfully ignore the lines that follow the story and read the story as but one more example of how we ought to believe. This, in fact, is most in keeping with the thematic elements of the Sora and to this extent most in keeping with how the Quran itself is read. Want to know about what faith really means? Read about Abraham and his son, willing to do the unthinkable. Which son? Does it matter? But of course, it does matter, and for some very particular reasons. For one, likely dating to well before the time of Muhammad, the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula were generally considered to be the descendants of Ishmael the son cast out into the desert along with his mother, Hagar. This theory of lineage combined with the narrative about the Kaaba and the identification of Ishmael as the sacrificial son completely recenters the Abrahamic narrative away from Jerusalem and towards Mecca. No longer are the peoples of Arabia a long-forgotten or sidelined cast of characters in the divine drama but instead are centrally located at the very start of Abrahamic monotheism. The question is no longer why God would be giving this particular message to Muhammad, but rather thankfulness that God has seen fit to remind the Arabs of the monotheism to which they are rightful heirs. There's so much more that could be said about Abraham and Ishmael, Isaac and Hagar, in the Quran and the Islamic tradition more broadly. However, as an introduction, Abraham's role as the model for monotheism in the face of familial resistance, along with providing narrative justification for the centrality of Mecca to the divine story, will need to be enough. After all, 
we have another prophet asking for attention. Moses is mentioned more times in the Quran than any other figure. Moses' ubiquity makes him one of, if not the, preeminent character in the Quran, perhaps even more so than Abraham. The question, naturally, is what do we make of this robust presence? Why is Moses so repeatedly referenced? And to what end? Like Abraham, the stories about Moses both echo and elaborate upon the familiar biblical tales. And in two particular cases, the Quran provides completely new stories about Moses. But the most important thing to know about Moses' rhetorical presence in the Quran is how he so closely parallels Muhammad's own personal circumstances. Like Muhammad, Moses was an orphan, taken in and raised by those in close proximity to power. Like Muhammad, Moses is called unexpectedly and somewhat reluctantly to a prophetic career. Like Muhammad, Moses must lead a caravan of followers to safety while pursued by enemies bent on his death. Like Muhammad, Moses must convince an audience prone to idolatrous backsliding of God's plan and power. And, like Muhammad, Moses is given a text from God, the Torah, similar to the Quran delivered to Muhammad. In these five ways, Moses and Muhammad are biographically linked. And so it is little wonder that Moses plays such an outsized role in the Quran. If the text is looking for figures to rhetorically support the career and message of Muhammad, Moses perfectly fits the bill. For our purposes in this course, let's focus on two particular elements of the Moses tales, one from this list of parallels and one of the extra-biblical tales, the story of the mysterious Al-Qidr. There are a number of extended passages in the text that tell parts of Moses' story, and Surah 7 in particular recounts the conflict with Pharaoh, and the journey back to the promised land. However, the more evocative references to Moses, at least in my reading of the text, are those brief moments where we are called to remember his story. These sections punctuate the Quran repeatedly, using the memory of Moses' struggles as warnings or reminders. For example, In Surah 2, we are given brief recaps of Moses' prophetic career, a kind of greatest hits list. At verse 53, the text reads, Remember when we gave Moses the scriptures and the means to distinguish right and wrong so that you might be guided. Moses said to his people, My people, you have wronged yourselves by worshiping the calf, so repent to your maker and kill the guilty among you. That is the best you can do in the eyes of your maker. He accepted your repentance. He is the ever-relenting and the most merciful. Remember, when you said, Moses, we will not believe you until we see God face to face. At that, thunderbolts struck you as you looked on. Then we revived you after your death so you might be thankful. Then, in verse 60, remember, 
When Moses prayed for water for his people and we said to him, strike the rock with your staff, 12 springs gushed out and each group knew its drinking place. Eat and drink the sustenance God has provided and do not cause corruption in the land. Remember when you said, Moses, we cannot bear to eat only one kind of food. So pray to your Lord to bring out for us some of the earth's produce, its herbs and cucumbers, its garlic, lentils and onions. He said, would you exchange better for worse? Go to Egypt and there you will find what you have asked for. And then verse 67. Remember when Moses said to his people, God commands you to sacrifice a cow. They said, are you making fun of us? He answered, God forbid that I should be so ignorant. They said, call on your Lord for us to show us what sort of cow it should be. He answered, God says it should be neither too old nor too young, but in between. So do as you are commanded. And once more, in verse 83, remember when we took a pledge from the children of Israel, worship none but God. Be good to your parents and kinfolk, to orphans and the poor. Speak good words to all people. Keep up the prayer and pay the prescribed alms. Then all but a few of you turned away and paid no heed. Although there is much in the content of these verses that could occupy us, what I think they highlight most explicitly is the rhetorical use of the prophetic figures in the Quran and Moses' most especially. They are a reminder for us, a remembrance, zikr in the Arabic original, of God's blessings and God's judgments, of God's mercy and God's forbearance. The story of Moses in the Quran is not the narrative of Exodus dramatized by Charlton Heston or animated by the Prince of Egypt, but is instead a constant reminder of what God has given us how often we have fallen short of God's requests and yet of God's continual mercy and generosity. Moses is made to embody these traits. I mentioned earlier that Moses also appears in the Quran in ways that are not reflected in the biblical tradition. So let's turn to one of those stories now. The story in which Moses encounters a mysterious stranger. Told over some 23 verses in Surah 18, this story portrays Moses and a servant on a journey to the sea where they encounter someone the text describes as one of our servants, a man to whom we had granted our mercy and whom we had given knowledge of our own. Moses asks if he can follow this man and is made to promise that he will not question any of the man's actions. As they travel along, the man punctures a fishing boat, kills a young boy, and repairs a wall in a town where they'd just been refused hospitality. And of course, Moses cannot restrain himself from asking about any of these bewildering actions. Because Moses failed to keep his mouth shut, the stranger departs, but not before explaining his actions. The boat belonged to some needy people who made their living from the sea, and I damaged it because I knew that coming after them was a king who was seizing every serviceable boat by force. 
The young boy had parents who were people of faith, and so, fearing he would trouble them through wickedness and disbelief, we wished that their Lord should give them another child, purer and more compassionate, in his place. The wall belonged to two young orphans in the town, and there was buried treasure beneath it belonging to them. Their father had been a righteous man, so your Lord intended them to reach maturity and then dig up their treasure as a mercy from your Lord. I did not do these things of my own accord. These are the explanations for those things you could not bear with patience. The story concludes here with no further commentary or context. Who is this mysterious man? Aside from illustrating that God can work in mysterious and sometimes distressing ways, what are we meant to do with this parable? The Quran is not as replete in parables as are the Gospels, and so the story is somewhat anomalous. And why is Moses the prophet featured in this tale? The commentary on the Quran has a nearly endless series of elaborations and fables about this figure, typically called Al-Kidr, or the Green One, often portraying him as a mystic saint, an initiator into secret knowledge, or perhaps a companion of Elijah. One report even has him appear at the funeral of Muhammad. Regardless of these extrapolations, a plain reading of the text, and if we remember the connection to Moses, is that God's revelation is not always for us to understand. Even a person as great and proximate to the divine as Moses cannot see the rationale for God's actions. If Moses was befuddled by Al-Kidr, is it little wonder that we too feel so often confused by God's commands or workings in the world? Where Abraham is tested by God's command to sacrifice his son, Moses is tested by the hidden knowledge of Al-Kidr. Abraham, God's most faithful servant, was asked to kill that most desired gift from God. Moses, to whom God's words were delivered in tangible form, cannot read the mind of God. While Abraham and Moses both play important roles in shaping how we understand Muhammad's prophetic career, perhaps their ultimate role in the Quranic text is a reminder to check our hubris and remain humble before God. Even the greatest of the patriarchs could not understand or predict all that God has in store. In this way, the stories of Abraham and Moses are a reminder that even when given the clear text of the Quran, much will remain opaque. The only thing that is ultimately clear is that God's will is not ours to know. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. I've explored in earlier lectures the presence and role of Adam and Eve, Satan, Abraham, and Moses in the Quran. But there is a much longer list of characters familiar from the Bible who are also detailed in the Quran. Noah, Lot, 
Isaac and Ishmael, Joseph, Job, Jonah, Elijah and Elisha, David and Solomon, King Saul, and John the Baptist. And this list is not exhaustive. On top of these biblical figures, there are a number of figures often called the Arabian prophets, as they have no clear connection to either Jewish or Christian figures. Hud, Saleh, and Shuaib. In this lecture, we'll explore some of these additional characters and their role in the Quran. I'll emphasize two figures that deserve paramount attention, Jesus and his mother Mary, along with the relatively more minor but still important figures of Noah and Joseph. However, all of these characters pale in comparison to the figure they were made to serve, God alone. What I mean, and what would become clear, is that no matter the textual prominence of the prophetic figures, either biblical or Arabian, their individual stories are all subservient to the principle of obedience to the divine. In fact, many of the details about Noah, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus that are unique to the Quran, those components not typically found in Jewish or Christian accounts of them, underscore the preeminence of God and God's will. No one, not Muhammad, not Jesus, can be thought of as in any way approaching the power and majesty of God. Let's begin with Noah and proceed in a chronological manner. Noah's story in the Quranic account closely follows the biblical narrative in most of its major details. God has lost patience with the depravity of early humankind, save for one righteous man and his family. That man, Noah, is ordered to build a giant ark, and on it house two of every animal, so that they and Noah's family will be safe from an apocalyptic flood God intends to unleash. There is, however, one key distinction in this story that departs from the biblical narrative. Just as he began to load the ark, Noah called out to his son, who stayed away, Come aboard with us, my son. Do not stay with the disbelievers. But he replied, I will seek refuge on a mountain to save me from the water. Noah said, Today there is no refuge from what God has commanded, except for those on whom he has mercy. The waves cut them off from each other, and he was among the drowned. While there's no hint of such tragedy in the biblical or midrashic texts, the dramatization of a lost son emphasizes a key Quranic theme. In the choice between familial ties and the word of God, God's will always triumphs. Once the waters recede and the ark has settled on a mountain, Noah beseeches God, My Lord, my son was one of my family, and your promise is true, and you are the most just of all judges. God said, Noah, he was not one of your family. What he did was not right. Do not ask me for things you know nothing about. I am warning you not to be foolish. Although harsh, the message is clear. A new set of relationships has been established by God, and while they may tear apart the connections of blood, 
They reaffirm God's commitment to those who have accepted this warning. The Quranic narrative thus elevates the horror of the biblical story. Obedience to and trust in God is the only type of relationship that matters. This poses a distinct challenge to those relationships that were so critical in the 7th century and remain so today. The connection to kith and kin can often define our sense of social belonging and identity. Many of Muhammad's earlier followers were likewise torn between faith and family. But here, God rejects a notion of family based on blood and replaces it with righteousness. Sometimes, the tale of Noah tells us, adherence to God's will means losing those we love the most, though what we ostensibly gain is life itself. The story of Noah has interesting parallels to the Quranic story of Abraham that we examined in an earlier lecture. In both cases, the fathers speak with their sons just prior to the fulfillment of God's will, the flood for Noah and the sacrifice for Abraham. The difference, of course, is that Noah's son believes he can find his own refuge, while Abraham's son turns his trust over to his father and God. If we have in these stories contrasting representations of how to navigate between family and the divine, the story of Joseph offers a wholly different drama. Related with verve and detail in Surah 12, the story of Joseph being sold into bondage is the most elaborate narrative in the whole of the Quran. And once again, in nearly all details, the Quranic series of events closely parallels the biblical account. And, as always, it is the subtle differences that are key to appreciating the ethical and theological vision of the Quran. Following Joseph's enslavement in Egypt and paralleling the biblical account, his master's wife attempts to seduce him, but without success. In Genesis, the wife then hatches a plot to accuse Joseph of attempted rape, which lands him in jail. The Quranic version tells us that the husband sees evidence, a shirt torn from the back rather than the front, that implicates his wife in the seduction and he accuses her of treachery. Surah 12 continues, Some of the women of the city said, The governor's wife is trying to seduce her slave. Love for him consumes her heart. It is clear to us that she has gone astray. When she heard their malicious talk, she prepared a banquet and sent for them, giving each of them a knife. She said to Joseph, Come out and show yourself to them. And when the women saw him, they were stunned by his beauty and cut their hands, exclaiming, Great God, he cannot be mortal. He must be a precious angel. So stunning was Joseph's beauty that the wife pleads her helplessness by parading Joseph in front of her friends, who in their rapture forget themselves and let the knives slice into their hands. This component of the story is unique, and its clever device of the neglected knife richly and succinctly captures the shock of seeing Joseph. But is that shock simply his physical beauty? 
Or is there something else afoot in this story? Although the text that follows this scene is somewhat confusing, it seems as if Joseph is only now put into jail, but mostly in order to protect him from the desire of the women, as well as save the master's wife from further temptation. In the end, they thought it best, after seeing all the signs of his innocence, that they should imprison him for a while. This peculiar rationale for imprisonment isn't simply dropped. Once Joseph's dream interpretation skills are made known to the king, Joseph asks that the women be called to testify in his defense. The king asked the women, What happened when you tried to seduce Joseph? They said, God forbid, we know nothing bad of him. And the governor's wife said, Now the truth is out. It was I who tried to seduce him. He is an honest man. No further mention is made of any of the women, but this episode fueled the imagination of later interpreters. In the interpretive tradition, the wife gets a name, Zuleika, and her desire for Joseph is refigured from simply physical lust to a desire for the divine righteousness Joseph so manifestly possessed. The women's comment that he is like a precious angel is read to mean that their collective desire was for the apparent glow of godly favor. And Zuleika's unrequited love is not treacherous and lustful, but instead symbolic of love for the divine, even if misdirected. While this reading moves well into fable, it illustrates how the distinctive and unique details of the Quran lend themselves to interpretive elaboration. In the same way that Joseph's brothers were jealous of the attention their father heaped upon him, the attention of the women is taken as the attractiveness of divine favor. Joseph is loved and desired because he is close to God. While such love may induce jealousy in others, we can read this narrative as a subtle but clever argument for how God's favor enlivens those it touches. Joseph is ever mindful that his powers and fortune are due to God's grace and mercy, and even his captivity in Egypt becomes a mechanism for the realization of God's will and the saving of his family from famine. Finally, I wish to turn to another figure loved by humans and God alike, Jesus. To appreciate the Quranic Jesus, it's worth first taking a minute to remember the religious milieu into which the Quran was introduced at the start of the 7th century. I've already noted that both Jews and Christians had a presence in the world of Muhammad prior to the revelation, although the extent of that presence is hotly debated. Certainly, Jewish tribes were present in the Arabian Peninsula and were part of the merchant economy in which Muhammad himself worked. Christians had strong footholds just across the Red Sea in Abyssinia, what today forms parts of Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the Sudan. It is also possible that early Christian ascetics, by reputation if not close contact, were also part of the picture. The presence of these communities gives us some perspective on why the Quran depicts Jesus as it does. The Jesus of the Quran is in conversation with these other, and oftentimes competing, representations of Jesus. 
As Tarif Khalidi in his wonderful book, The Muslim Jesus, writes, A close reading of the Quran would, I think, convey the impression of a text revealed in an environment of argument and counter-argument, of a text struggling to establish its authority amid the sneers and sarcasm of unbelievers or the babble of quarrelsome religious communities. Of course, Muhammad's message becomes one of the voices in that quarrelsome religious community. But it's also important to note that these communities were not the same as they are today. Remember, the creeds and doctrines decided upon by the various early church councils had not yet been widely enforced. What becomes Christian orthodoxy was in no sense firmly established. It's highly likely that even among Arabian Christians, diverse and often contentious depictions of Jesus were the norm. Muhammad's revelation was but one more voice in an already complicated and competing religious narrative. So, what does the Quran have to say about Jesus? First, he is called Isa ibn Maryam, literally Jesus, son of Mary, with the reference to his mother being the rule rather than the exception. Nearly every mention of Jesus includes this full name and insistence on his matrilineal descent. It's worth adding that Arab names routinely use Ibn as a means to indicate lineage, but this device is almost always patrilineal. The reference to Mary in Jesus' name is thus subversive of custom. Additionally, Mary has a chapter of the Quran named after her, and she figures prominently in the passages about Jesus. This includes acceptance of a virgin birth. According to Surah 3, Mary asks, My Lord, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? The angel said, This is how God creates what he will. When he has ordained something, he only says be, and it is. We'll return to Mary's role and the nature of Jesus' conception shortly, but there are a few important details about Jesus to note. First, Jesus is referenced in 93 different verses in the Quran, more than Abraham and second only to Moses. It would be difficult then to overstate his prominence in both the Quranic and Muslim imagination. Second, the titles attached to Jesus are compelling and informative. Among other things, Jesus is called the Spirit and Word of God, as well as the Seal of the Israelite Prophets. This last title is taken to mean that, while Muhammad comes to be considered the Seal of all Prophets, Jesus was the final word for the Jewish community. Most enticingly, Jesus is consistently referred to as the Messiah. This word requires some further examination, which we'll get to in a moment. Finally, as a point of contrast, Jesus is definitively not crucified in the Quranic account, nor is he considered divine by any measure. According to Surah 4, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, though it was made to appear like that to them. Those that disagreed about him are full of doubt, with no knowledge to follow, only supposition. They certainly did not kill him, no. God raised him up to himself. God is almighty and wise. 
There is not one of the people of the book who will not believe in Jesus before his death. And on the day of resurrection, he will be a witness against them. This is a complicated passage to be sure and cast cast aspersions on both the Jews who were said not to accept the prophetic message of Jesus, as well as those Christians who elevated Jesus too high to the status of the divine. In a sense, the Quran seeks to resituate Jesus between the two poles of typical Jewish and Christian interpretation. Here, Jesus is a prophet, nothing more, but certainly nothing less. Perhaps it's best to assert something rather simple. Muslims love Jesus. A lot. In terms of chronic reference, Jesus looms larger than Abraham, David, and at least textually, more even than Muhammad himself. And when Jesus is discussed, he's often described in ways that would be very familiar to Christians. He is called both the son of the Virgin Mary and the Messiah. Let's pause here for just a moment. First, As the son of Mary, the Quran affirms Christian teachings about the miracle surrounding Jesus' birth. But it also dispenses with the son of man and son of God terms. While his birth to a virgin was clearly a miracle, the Quran does not take that miracle to imply some kind of divine identity for Jesus. Indeed, the Quran's position is that Christians made a mistake in thinking that Jesus was also God. Who does the Quran say Jesus was? The son of the virgin, but explicitly not the son of God. To return to Surah 3, the angels said, Mary, God gives you news of a word from him whose name will be the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, who will be held in honor in this world and the next, who will be one of those brought near to God. He will speak to people in his infancy and in his adulthood. He will be one of the righteous. This passage clearly labels Jesus as the Word and Messiah, honors him with proximity to the divine, and forecasts his miracles and prophetic character. A few lines later, Surah 3 continues, We relate to you this revelation, a decisive statement. In God's eyes, Jesus is just like Adam. He created him from dust, said to him, be, and he was. This is the truth from your Lord, so do not be one of those who doubt. This is the truth of the matter. There is no God but God. God is the exalted, the decider. If they turn away, God is well aware of anyone who causes corruption. Say, people of the book, Let us arrive at a statement that is common to us all. We worship God alone. We ascribe no partner to him. And none of us takes others beside God as lords. If they turn away, say, witness our devotion to him. Taken cumulatively, these passages represent an attempt to navigate those quarrelsome communities depicted by Tarif Khalidi. Jesus is described using many of the terms most dear to Christian conceptions of him, but his possible divinity is rejected outright. 
This threading of the theological needle is then presented as a means to arrive at a statement that is common to us all. We worship God alone. In this quest for a middle ground regarding Jesus' nature, some of the titles and descriptions afforded him are worth examining. First, the title of Messiah. Technically, the word Messiah in Hebrew simply means anointed and was usually reserved for those people chosen to be king. In the Hebrew Bible, this includes Cyrus the Great, but most famously David. Jesus was never a king, at least not in the ordinary sense of the word. And so the Messiah of the Quran must imply something else. Here we get into interesting territory. Like Christianity, Islamic tradition holds that Jesus will be the Messiah who comes at the end of days, a salvational figure who will eventually sit on a throne in Jerusalem where he will serve as a universal judge, after which time itself will end. This is the Jesus of divine kingship, although a king of justice rather than armies and territory, and is the sense of Messiah most familiar to Christians, Messiah as Christ. As we'll see momentarily, The Islamic account rejects the extent to which Christianity transformed Messiah from earthly king to the king, God alone. This association is too much for the Quran. Thus, when Jesus is described as Messiah in the Quran, it is in different and other ways. For example, he is also often described using a very particular term, al-ruh Allah, the Spirit of God. Surah 66 describes his conception. So we breathed into her from our spirit. This this last term, Jesus as the spirit of God that I want to turn to next. The Arabic word for spirit, ruh, is related to the Hebrew word ruach, meaning spirit, but also breath or wind. Most famously, when God creates Adam out of the dust in Genesis 2, He animates this lifeless clod by breathing into him his ruach, his spirit. Thus Adam, which incidentally in Hebrew means simply earth or dirt, is given life by the breath of God. Jesus, for Muslims, is that same breath or spirit of God. In some sense, Jesus is presented to us as a new Adam, a new first man. Both Adam and Jesus are animated by the Spirit of God, but Jesus is said to have been strengthened by this breath of God. I think it is this sense, Isa ibn Maryam, Aruch Allah, Jesus, Son of Mary, the Spirit of God, that defines how Messiah is understood in the Quranic text. Finally, I must note the biggest point of disagreement between Christian and Muslim views of Jesus. While the traditional Christian position holds that Jesus, God incarnate, is crucified, dies upon the cross, is buried, and then rises again on the third day, the Islamic tradition holds that Jesus did not die upon the cross. Instead, like Elisha before him, the Quran tells us that Jesus is taken up into heaven and that the body upon the cross was a substitute, only an appearance of death. Jesus himself did not die. This lack of death, this mortal elevation to heaven, allows for Jesus to return again as judge of the apocalypse. 
at least according to the hagiographies of the prophets that followed the Quran. Again and again in the text, Christians are castigated for mistaking Jesus for God. The Quran explicitly rejects the Trinity or any other association with the divine. It is this error above all else that the Quran finds in Christian doctrine. All of this matters for two reasons. First, such an association between a man, even one as remarkable as Jesus and God, borders on a kind of idolatry in Islamic tradition. Second, to make someone or something equal with God is to lessen the divine. In other words, the Quran does not desacralize Jesus because it's opposed to him, quite the contrary. But the Quran does wish to limit the association so as not to sully God's oneness, what the text calls Tawheed. Making Jesus a man, even one called the Spirit of God, is done so to preserve God's nature. We could continue to explore the broader Islamic conception of Noah, Joseph, and Jesus, the way later interpreters and poets expand on the subtle hints in the Quranic text. In addition to his role in Judgment Day, Jesus is also often held up as the model ascetic and thus becomes a favorite of the mystical branch of Islam, the Sufis. The Sufis, too, make Zulaika a saint, a model for divine yearning. Mary's story also deserves more attention, as there is scarcely a mention of Jesus that doesn't include her. The descriptions of Isa ibn Maryam most clearly underscore the human birth of Jesus. That is, despite his miraculous conception at God's command, he is still the son of a woman. It is little accident that Mary alone of all women has an entire chapter of the Quran named after her. Leaving you with these hints, I hope, inspires further investigation into the text and its literary afterlife. For the Quran itself, however, the message could not be clearer. God is alone, unique, powerful, both judgmental and merciful, wily and loving. Whatever adjectives we use for God, however, one is the operative principle. There is only one God, and no family, lover, or individual can compare. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. When I teach my seminar in Islam, at some point in the middle of the semester, a couple of students will invariably ask, when are we going to talk about the five pillars of Islam? It's not an unreasonable question. After all, in this course, we've already discussed pre-Islamic history, the revelation to Muhammad, and the collation of it into the Quran, the primary themes and characters in the, in the text. But it's fair to ask, how does any of this translate into practice? How is the Quran used as a model for Muslim life and behavior? When my students ask, I typically reply, oh yes, those. Can you find them for me in the Quran? I get a few puzzled looks, and then students say, well, it talks a lot about prayer and giving money to the poor, and about God. Yes, yes, all true, uh, but are there any pillars in the Quran? 
How often do you have to pray? How long do you fast for? What do you do on the Hajj? As it happens, none of these questions are answered in the Quran. But it's also the case that the five pillars are a mainstay in descriptions of Islam and a succinct summary of the Muslim community's ritual practices. The question is, how did these customs develop out of the Quran? Especially when some rituals are elaborate and prescriptive, but only sparsely described in the text. For example, while we are exhorted to pray repeatedly, the Quran never tells us how or how often. To answer these sorts of questions, the early followers of Muhammad imitated his practice, and the record of these practices comes to be called the Sunnah, what we might literally understand as the practice of the community. These practices are often contained in a different body of literature, the Hadith, that has come to assume an authoritative position second only to the Quran in terms of textual guidance for believers. Even with this, however, questions invariably arise. The process of interpretation of the Quran and Hadith together with other authoritative sources is called Ijtihad. In this lecture, we will explore the process of Ijtihad in reference to the five pillars, illustrating how the Quranic text comes to be supplemented with a variety of sources. Sunnah, Hadith, and Ijtihad need a brief introduction before we dive into the five pillars themselves, and I'll address each in turn. As I said, the Sunnah is rather simply the practice or tradition of the community, in this case meaning the community of believers in both Mecca and Medina, as well as the example of the Prophet himself. For instance, as I said, while the Quran repeatedly prescribes prayer, how to pray is never explained in the text. Helpfully, for both us and the believers, Muhammad regularly prayed, and his followers learned the ritual practice of prayer from him. This kind of rote education became the sorts of details the community, called the Ummah, would pass along from believer to believer. As Muhammad's message spread, the community closest to the Prophet obviously could not attend to or control in person all the necessary information needed to instruct new believers in proper piety. As the needs for instruction grew, so did the body of literature in which the Sunnah was contained, the Hadith. Hadith is an important and complicated part of the broader story of Islam. This includes some technical concerns that I can only mention in passing, for example, the Hadith tends to record sayings or actions of the Prophet, and sometimes those of his closest companions, but it is not exhaustive of the collective activity of the earlier followers. So, something can be part of the Sunnah without having a precisely corresponding Hadith. I realize this is somewhat confusing given what I've just said. While there is great overlap between Sunnah and Hadith, some parts of the community practice are understood as a consensus activity based upon the Quran, Hadith, or tradition. It's what believers do. Hadith is primarily a record of the words and deeds of Prophet Muhammad and can thus clarify and explain Sunnah, 
but is not constitutive of the whole sunnah. We can think of hadith as a kind of history of the earliest moments in the formation of the Islamic tradition, but something that entails more debate and argument than practice itself. In terms of length, the hadith literature vastly outnumbers the Quran in number of words and is, as I just said, interpretively a much more contentious affair. While some limited hadith is broadly accepted in the global Islamic community, much of it is subject to great dispute. These disputes can range from the technical to the theological. We'll discuss the hadith in more detail in this lecture and others, but the main takeaway is that this body of literature is the established record of the Prophet Muhammad's words and deeds, and thus serves as the most authoritative interpretation of the Quran. If someone came to Muhammad for guidance or in search of clarity about a particular verse, what Muhammad is reported to have said would obviously become the mechanism by which that part of the Quran is understood. You might well imagine how disputes over the authenticity of Hadith might then lead to disagreements over how the Quran itself is interpreted. And interpretation itself is our next subject. Ijtihad, as with so much in this course, has a long and complex history. When questions about the Quran require reference to the Sunnah or Hadith or some combination of text and reasoning, we are then firmly in the realm of Ijtihad, which can be translated as the struggle to understand. In order to know how to be a Muslim, it's necessary to engage in Ijtihad, combining the authoritative source text with other records communal practices, and philosophical reflections to arrive at a detailed picture of Islamic practice. One element of this interpretive tradition is called tafsir, the careful reading of the Quran and Hadith, often entailing highly technical analysis of lexical, linguistic, and theological elements of the text. Our main takeaway should be that the practice of Islam does not arise full cloth from the Quran alone, but is rather a combination and accumulation of traditions and interpretations. In this sense, ijtihad is a constantly evolving phenomenon. As new questions and issues arise, the community returns to these texts and traditions to find answers to everyday questions. So, when combined... Al-Qur'an, Sunnah, Hadith, and Ijtihad provide the general parameters for the ritual practices that create Islamic identity. This is not to say there isn't still debate about these practices, but the broad outlines of communal tradition become apparent, what we can technically call orthopraxy, or right practice, for the majority of Muslims. Since the focus of our course is the Qur'an itself, Let's examine how the Quran presents the foundational elements of orthopraxy and highlight where Sunnah, Hadith, and Ijtihad are necessary for completing the picture. As we'll see, it took perhaps 200 years for these traditions to develop into the form we have them today, but each one has clear roots in the Quran itself. Commonly called the Statement of Faith, the Shahada is a two-part proclamation that signals one's adherence to the central tenet of Islamic identity, 
La ilaha illallah wa Muhammadun Rasul Allah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. This phrase is said over both the newborn infant and the dying, and is the statement a convert attests to in front of witnesses. It is ultimately what makes a Muslim a Muslim. The Shahada, however, appears nowhere in the Quran, at least in this form. What we do have in the text, however, are numerous passages or phrases similar to this passage from Surah 112. Say, He is God the One, God the Eternal. He begot no one, nor was He begotten. No one is comparable to Him. The assertion of God's oneness, Tawheed, is something we've seen repeatedly emphasized in the text and is indeed one of the primary rhetorical concerns of the Quran. Over and against the polytheism assumed of the pre-Islamic Arab tribes, the unequivocal monotheism of the Quran is perhaps its defining feature. Surah 112's insistence that God is not begotten also implies that the Christian tripartite God is rejected. The second half of the Shahada, and Muhammad is the messenger of God, is likewise found littered throughout the Quran. For example, Surah 4, verse 170 reads, People, the messenger has come to you with the truth from your Lord, so believe, that is best for you. For even if you disbelieve, all that is in the heavens and the earth still belongs to God. God has the knowledge to decide. The word translated here as messenger is Rasul, the same term used for Muhammad in the Shahada, and it has a rather particular connotation. As Roberto Totoli describes it, apart from Muhammad himself, this term is only employed in direct connection with Noah, Ishmael, Moses, Lot, Jesus, and with the Arabian messengers Hud, Saleh, and Shu'aib. That is, no other biblical prophet is referred to as a messenger in the Quran. Other figures, Abraham, David, Solomon, are referred to as Nabi, translated as prophet, a term also used for Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. The precise distinction between messengers and prophets is not clearly elucidated in the Quran, although there is a suggestion that God's messengers deserve personal obedience in ways not required or expected of prophets. In this sense, a messenger, Rasul, is marginally superior to a mere prophet. Regardless of the distinction, Muhammad is clearly both prophet and messenger. The formulation of the Shahada then, which foregrounds God's oneness and Muhammad as messenger, is deeply rooted in the Quran, if not literally stated there. Different iterations of the phrase, however, can be found on coins from the 9th and 10th centuries and came to be widely accepted as a ritual assertion, perhaps in the 11th century. After the assertion of faith, prayer is the most regular, visible religious activity in the Islamic tradition. And, as you might expect, it's mentioned numerous times throughout the Quran. Most of these occurrences, however, are in a rather general sense, akin to God observing rhetorically, you pray to your Lord, 
or in describing the activities of earlier prophets, such as when Abraham prayed. In a few passages, however, there is discussion of both the times of prayer and what we might call the ritual purity required to perform the prayer. Surah 17, for example, discusses prayer as a regular recurring activity. So perform the regular prayers in the period from the time the sun is past its zenith till the darkness of the night. And recite the Quran at dawn. Dawn recitation is always witnessed. And during the night, wake up and pray as an extra offering of your own so that your Lord may raise you to a praised status. Surah 62 also makes mention of what sounds like a particular day of prayer. Believers, when the call to prayer is made on the day of congregation, hurry towards the reminder of God and leave off your trading. That is better for you, if only you knew. Despite this, the Quran is silent on when this day of congregation is, nor does it spell out explicitly the number of daily prayers. Both of these are left to the Sunnah and Hadith. The setting of five daily prayers comes, in fact, from perhaps the most famous extra-Quranic story about Muhammad's life, the night journey to heaven, or mirage. The story is too wonderfully detailed to recount here in full, but it's worth taking some time to illuminate its contours. After all, it serves not only to tell how Muhammad was given visions of the afterlife, as I discussed in a previous lesson, but also to explicitly establish Jerusalem as a central location for Islamic religiosity. The basic idea is that Muhammad is said to have been transported at night to Jerusalem upon the magical beast Barak. He alights atop the ruins of the Temple Mount, where today resides the Dome of the Rock. From here, Muhammad ascends a ladder to heaven. Along the way, Muhammad meets numerous biblical prophets who affirm his prophethood, and he is then given a brief audience with God. During this meeting with God, Muhammad and his community are assigned 50 daily prayers. As Muhammad descends from the highest plane with these instructions, it's recounted that he is asked by Moses what he has been told about prayer. Aghast at the number of prayers assigned to Muhammad's community, Moses says he knows from experience that people cannot sustain this. Moses instructs Muhammad to return and beg for fewer, lest his followers resist the instruction. Muhammad does so, and the drama repeats itself until Muhammad has negotiated just five daily prayers. Moses once again encourages Muhammad to return again and ask for fewer. But Muhammad is said to have replied, I have begged so much of my sustainer that I feel ashamed but I am content now, and I shall submit. While this is not the whole story of Muhammad's journey and ascension, we can clearly see how the tale, part of the classical biography of Muhammad, informs the interpretive tradition of both the Quran and the Hadith. This story is contained, among other places, in al-Bukhari's The Authentic Collection, a compendium of Hadith related to the life of the Prophet, composed sometime in the mid-9th century. 
Well, the rest of the story of Muhammad's night journey and ascension must wait for another time. For our purposes, it is a perfect example of how hints from the Quran are combined with accounts in the Hadith to textually affirm the specifics of ritual practice. It's entirely possible that the five prayers were already well established during Muhammad's lifetime, but the correspondence with this Hadith account adds additional legitimacy to the ritual practice, despite, or perhaps even because of, the fantastic nature of the story. One noteworthy feature of the Quran is its concern for charity, especially the upkeep of orphans and widows. In a world where both might easily have been cast aside, the Quran centers our attention on these social outliers and commands that they receive largesse from the community. As Surah 2 describes it, believers must keep up the prayer and give out of what we have provided for them. This charitable giving is called zakat and becomes an important if exceedingly vague concept. Later in Surah 2, we're enjoined to keep up the prayer, pay the prescribed alms, zakat, and bow down to God with those who bow. What exactly is prescribed, however, is never explicitly revealed. Other passages in the Quran and numerous passages from the Hadith suggest various things that are subject to taxation for the purposes of charity. They include a variety of different, though not all, livestock, certain agricultural products, especially those that are storable, precious metals, particularly if they are coins, material mined from the earth, and treasure, including booty from war. In some instances, zakat is owed on a yearly basis and sometimes at the moment of acquisition, such as with mining. Legal scholars subsequently had a heyday enumerating categories of taxable goods, their various rates and when the tax should be assessed. Furthermore, there is the question of who should collect the tax. Is it a governmental concern or is this charity freely given in addition to ordinary civil taxes? Much of the traditional debate negotiated over items that strike us today as archaic. How to categorize camels and horses relative to other livestock, or whether copper and tin were of a category analogous to gold and silver. Most of these debates have receded into history. Instead, many Muslims simply set aside 2.5% of their income or worth and donate it to charitable groups every year. This regular act of piety has become the de facto response to the technically obscure but morally clear commandment, give out of what we have provided for you before death comes to one of you. And he says, my Lord, if you would only reprieve me for a little while, I would give in charity and become one of the righteous. God does not reprieve a soul when its turn comes. God is fully aware of what you do. As with so many other components of the text, it remains an interesting and telling feature that modern interpretation often resorts to this sort of technically precise rendering of an ambiguous textual instruction.
The most physically demanding ritual in the Islamic tradition is fasting during the month of Ramadan. We'll look at the Quranic passages specifically related to this in a moment. But there are two things first worth noting. First, abstaining from food or other necessities and pleasures is not unique to Islam, as you probably already know. Indeed, various forms of fasting are familiar from any number of other religious traditions. In this sense, the Quranic injunction to fast is a common practice. Second, most of the passages related to fasting suggest that it should be done as penance for some sin or moral failing. For example, Surah 5 says that the atonement for breaking an oath is to feed ten poor people with food equivalent to what you would normally give your own families, or to clothe them, or to set free a slave. If a person cannot find the means, he should fast for three days. There are a number of other similar pronouncements of fasting as a kind of punishment for wrongdoing. Where then does the fast, saum in Arabic, during the month of Ramadan come from, and how is it observed? Relative to the other pillars, the fast is given fairly detailed description in Surah 2, where it's declared that fasting will occur from sunrise to sunset during the month of Ramadan, the ninth month in the Islamic lunar calendar, because this was the month when the Quran was first revealed. This Quranic rationale had another appeal. As Islamic historian Carol Hillenbrand says, at a purely practical level, when he was setting up his community of Muslims in Medina, Muhammad's choice of Ramadan for the month of fasting was astute and far-sighted. This month was one of the pre-Islamic months of truce, when warring tribesmen would lay down their arms. In this way, fasting as an opportunity to reflect on God's generosity and the trials of the less fortunate corresponded with an already established time of peace and contemplation. For the fast itself, eating, drinking, and sexual intercourse, what we can reasonably read as general physical pleasure, are allowed during the night but must cease once the thread of dawn is visible on the horizon. Allowances are made for those ill, pregnant, nursing, or traveling, and one can exchange fasting with additional charity or fasting on different days if necessary. As the guidelines to fasting are so clearly delineated in the Quran, there is very little interpretation necessary for this pillar. Obviously, the festive post-fast meals and lengthy additional prayers are additions, some of which are drawn from the Hadith, but the practice itself is clear in the Quranic text. Of the additions, there is one that is almost quaint in its observation, but is a universal favorite. A Hadith tells that Muhammad preferred to break his own fast by eating a date, and so to this day, many Muslims follow his example by eating dates before moving on to a larger meal. Visually arresting, and today a huge logistical challenge, the Hajj, or pilgrimage to Mecca, is the last of the five pillars. In many ways, this is the most complicated of the pillars, and has a combination of pre-Islamic, 
Quranic and post-Quranic elements to it. We won't explore the Hajj itself in great detail, but it's valuable to know what the Quran has to say about the practice. While only mentioned some 14 times throughout the whole of the Quran, the context of many of these verses suggest that the contours and traditions of the pilgrimage were well known to the Quran's early audience. And indeed, as we've seen, it was pilgrimage to the Kaaba in Mecca that had made this Arabian town a central place of religious activity during pre-Islamic times. Thus, when the Quran references the pilgrimage, its general parameters and significance would have already been known. One key difference, and something we saw in an earlier lecture, is that the Quran reclaims the Kaaba from the house of idols it was during the early 7th century, recasting it as having been originally built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. By doing this, the Quran establishes that the Kaaba itself and many of the rituals that attend to the Hajj were initiated by Abraham and Ishmael's mother Hagar, and as such are simply a return to their original monotheistic intent. So when Surah 22 commands, Then let the pilgrims perform their acts of cleansing, fulfill their vows, and circle around the ancient house. The intent and context of this instruction would have been clear. The integration of ancient practice with a new perspective is made even more explicit in Surah 2. Safa and Marwa are among the rites of God. So for those who make major or minor pilgrimage to the house, it is no offense to circulate between the two. Safa and Marwa are two hills near Mecca, between which it was said Hagar ran in search of water for her infant Ishmael. This verse seems to assure pilgrims that this act, ostensibly practiced by the pagans, was likewise of monotheistic origin. In this way, the Quran fuses together pre-Islamic ritual practice with a thoroughly Abrahamic interpretive scheme. Multiple accounts of Islamic history tell of Muhammad's own pilgrimages to Mecca in the years before his death. That evidence, combined with the established customs, became the foundation for the Hajj as we know it today. As with all the other pillars, the details of this ritual practice are left vague in the Quran, but especially in the case of the Hajj, there is a clear and well-known established custom to which would-be pilgrims could refer for their own practice. While the five pillars do not exist as such in the Quran, I hope it's evident how each one is firmly rooted in clear textual injunction. The organization of these acts into official orthopraxis, however, requires going beyond the text of the Quran, relying upon the tradition of the Prophet and his companions, as well as interpretive exercises by successive communities. The Quran as a text builds a foundation for a community, and as we see in other religious traditions, no one text is exhaustive in explanation and detail. The living out of a religious tradition relies upon the efforts of humans to elaborate and interpret how a sacred text becomes practically exercised. In other words, it's ijtihad. And so, as I hope is clear, 
The ways in which the Quran is read and interpreted to create Islamic tradition rely upon a rich practice of text and tradition. As we'll see in my next lecture, this kind of interpretive activity can take us to exciting and sometimes dangerous territory. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. I need to be honest. The question of Islamic law, commonly though a bit erroneously called sharia, and the even more problematic word jihad, deserve well more than 30 minutes of your time. I could easily spend this lecture simply dispelling myths and misunderstandings about these two words, but this wouldn't necessarily leave you any closer to understanding what they are. What I want to propose instead is an introduction to how Islamic jurisprudence, called fiqh in Arabic, is grounded in particular Quranic injunctions, and then illustrate some of these legal considerations in relationship to jihad. Other scholars have written multiple volumes on both concepts, but I think there's a way to understand their function within the text of the Quran that points toward the later elaboration and codification of both concepts in the tradition as a whole. And, I should add, we'll see how both terms lend themselves to near-endless dispute. But to start, what's so scary about sharia and jihad? No other words in the Arabic language cause such widespread consternation in American society. Part of the problem is that they so often remain untranslated. Creeping sharia sounds foreign and unfamiliar to many ears, but I'd guess that searching for God's will would ruffle fewer feathers. Likewise, global jihad conjures images of the burning twin towers, but the universal struggle for justice is something we might all want to pursue. The two interpretations I've given here illustrate the divide between how sharia and jihad sound to those unfamiliar with the terms versus how they sound as concepts to many Muslims. But if we can learn to appreciate quinoa, yoga, and cappuccino, there might yet be hope for sharia and jihad. Sharia can be translated rather simply as divine will, or more literally as path or way, what God wants from us and for us. As in Christianity and Judaism, this is more easily asserted than it is discerned. One scholar notes that Sharia's original use meant a watering place or path to water, a God-given, life-providing way. For example, here is how it's used in Surah 45 of the Quran. Now we have set you on a clear religious path, Sharia, so follow it. Do not follow the desires of those who lack knowledge. In this example, Sharia is an almost existential concept. Once on God's trail, stick to it. 
This is the prevailing usage of Sharia in the Quran, and it both sounds and is a long way from some form of penal code or authoritative legal practice. The discrepancy then begs the question, what occurred between these Quranic utterances and the concept as it's so often used today? The short version of a long answer is that an extensive interpretive tradition developed as Muslims attempted to derive ethical, legal, and political customs and institutions from the Quran. However, the notion of Sharia as a system of punishment, hadud in Arabic, does have Quranic origins to shy away from verses that command or allow for corporeal punishment would be dishonest. The trick, as far as I see it, is to understand how the Quran negotiates between the religious path of a believer and the juridical pronouncements aimed at the community. If we can outline the rhetorical objective of the text, we can better understand how the sophisticated tradition of Islamic jurisprudence developed. The same is true of jihad. Literally, jihad means simply to struggle. And struggle, of course, can apply to many things. Struggle against one's enemies. Struggle to do the right thing. Or struggle to learn a new language. In the Quran, jihad is employed in all of these senses. Physical force, moral effort, personal challenges. And it does not lay out any comprehensive system for understanding the term. For instance, Surah 61 says, You who believe, shall I show you a bargain that will save you from painful torment? Have faith in God and his messenger and struggle, jihad, for his cause with your possessions and your persons. That is better for you if only you knew. Ignoring any context, one could read this multiple ways. Engage in armed struggle on God's behalf. Struggle to be generous to the poor or needy with your time and wealth. Or struggle to avoid sin so that you might enjoy paradise. Additionally, there's another Arabic word, kital, which means more literally to fight, that is used in the Quran, and it is quite distinct from the discussions of jihad. What seems evident in the text is that ideas about what we today call just war theory, the moral framework for aggressive action, are interspersed with broader concerns about what is incumbent upon believers in their exertion on God's behalf. Nevertheless, some interpretive traditions began around the 9th century that used the term jihad in more exclusively military ways. This was, as Asma Asfaradin notes, despite the fact that the term jihad in Quranic usage is clearly a multivalent word, and as even a cursory reading of some of the related literature reveals, was understood as such by early religious authorities and scholars. And of course, the multivalence of the word is completely lost in the post-9-11 non-Arabic-speaking context. In this case, the subtleties of a complex term are drowned out by the justifications of self-righteously murderous terrorists and in a kind of supreme irony, also by those wishing to disparage all of Islamic tradition by equating Osama bin Laden with all Muslims. Obviously, we can and need to do better. (laughs) 
In order to illustrate how Sharia and fiqh, that is jurisprudence, work in the Islamic tradition, I think it would be useful for us to work through a relatively simple interpretive exercise, similar to one I use with my students. Once we've engaged in this particular sort of Quranic interpretation, we can return to the question of jihad and think about its meaning in the text. In class, after explaining the basics of Islamic jurisprudence, I ask my students a rather straightforward question. Can Muslims drink beer? Then I ask them to issue a fatwa about drinking beer. Fatwa is another one of those unnecessarily scary words. In Arabic, it simply means opinion. And in the legal sense, it means a judge's or lawyer's opinion or ruling about a matter of law. And, as with all opinions, legal or otherwise, we often find a range of viewpoints. So, how would we go about constructing a fatwa about whether or not Muslims can drink beer? Clever students quickly note that, being human, Muslims are entirely capable of drinking beer, seeing as how they possess mouths and throats and stomachs. And this is partly the point. There's a keen difference between can and should. But it's attention to these sorts of small details on which so much legal wrangling depends. Once we've gotten the smart aleck answer out of the way, there are a few questions. First, what does the Quran say about beer? This question reveals a foundational question. What sources of authority apply to an observant person? Obviously, the Quran is the first source of authority, but not necessarily the only one. In addition to the Quran, legal opinions rely upon the Hadith literature, the collections of sayings and actions of the Prophet, along with the Sunnah, the customs of the community during the Prophet's lifetime. In our test case about beer, unfortunately, the Quran, Hadith, and Sunnah are all silent, offering no guidance. But Dr. Oliver, you might be thinking, I thought it was common knowledge that Islam forbids alcohol. It's this assumption that makes our test case so interesting. There's no singular Islam that sets out clear rules about all manner of life. Just as for Christians, Jews, and Hindus, much daily activity is a cumulative process of textual, historical, and social interpretation. While it's true that many Muslims eschew drinking alcohol, how that became custom is a rather interesting process of interpretation. So, in the case of beer, about which the Quran is silent, at least in a literal sense, another source of legal reasoning is required. Reasoning by analogy, kias in Arabic, leads us back to the Quran in that we can find instances in the text that mention alcohol. There are, in fact, only three such places in the Quran, but they are instructive. Surah 4 offers the most straightforward guidance. You who believe, do not come anywhere near the prayer if you are intoxicated, not until you know what you are saying. This is obviously clear enough. Don't be drunk when you pray. But it's far from an outright prohibition. Second, we can look at Surah 2, which says, They ask you about intoxicants and gambling. Say, there is great sin in both, and some benefit for people. The sin is greater than the benefit. While this can be read as more clearly restrictive, there's obviously still some ambiguity present. Finally, In Surah 5, we read, You who believe, 
Intoxicants and gambling, idolatrous practices, and divining with arrows are repugnant acts, Satan's doing. Shun them so that you may prosper. With intoxicants and gambling, Satan seeks only to incite enmity and hatred among you and to stop you remembering God in prayer. Will you not give them up? This final verse seems to be the most unambiguous of the three, equating intoxicants with Satan's doing. However, the translation I've quoted here is somewhat misleading on this account. The word translated as intoxicants in both Sora 2 and Sora 5 is kamer, more commonly translated as wine, and likely meant wine made from either grapes or dates. It was the only alcohol specifically mentioned in the whole of the Quran, and is the same word used in Surah 47 when describing the pleasures of paradise. Although we should remember that wine in heaven is said not to be intoxicating. Thus, if we are to read the Quran literally and at face value, being drunk at prayer is forbidden, and calmer is to be avoided. So can Muslims drink beer? One might reasonably argue that having one beer wouldn't get you drunk, nor is it calmer, so what's the harm? But given the general Islamic prohibition against any sort of alcohol, other sorts of interpretation obviously take place. While I said a moment ago that the Hadith is silent about beer, it isn't silent about alcohol in a more general sense. There are a number of Hadith that claim the Prophet Muhammad, in response to questions about other sorts of intoxicants, grouped them in with Kamar as forbidden. But as I've previously discussed, not every Hadith is accepted as authoritative by all Muslims. Given all of this, we thus far have three sources of authority, Quran, Hadith, and analogy, and all three leave some room for ambiguity. Taking up and evaluating this ambiguity thus becomes the job of the legal scholar. Let's take a look at an extended passage from one such opinion to see how this works. This opinion is from the Hanafi school, one of the four primary Sunni legal traditions. Forbidden drinks are four. One, kamar, the juice of the grape fermented until strong, gathering foam which settles. Two, that juice boiled until less than a third of it is gone. Three, the infusion of dates, which is sakar. And four, the fermented infusion of raisins. The first of these is kamar. Some people say it is a name for every inebriating drink. According to the Prophet's hadith, every inebriator is kamar. He also said kamar is made from these two trees and pointed to the grapevine and the palm. The prohibition of kamar is absolute, but the prohibition of other drinks is suppositious. Yahya ibn Ma'in disputed the authenticity of the first hadith. The second is the demonstration of the ruling, establishing the name kamar for all strong fermented drinks made from these two sources. This passage goes on for some time, continuing to debate the scope of the prohibition, but we can see some of the key features in legal argument here. Recognizing the dispute about how kamar is to be understood, the scholar notes two hadith, one that expands the definition and one that delimits it. 
the author then rejects the first hadith by appealing to another scholar. The opinion, a fatwa, also discusses the penalties for drinking kamar, said here to be 80 lashes, but also opines that drinking other beverages that are analogous to kamar does not warrant the same punishment as the prohibition is one of opinion and not direct revelation. While this fatwa is something of a minority opinion, indeed, the three other Sunni legal schools hold a stricter prohibition against consuming any alcohol. It illustrates how the debate about the Quran developed during the classical period from the 8th to 12th centuries. What distinguishes the legal traditions from one to the other is how they prioritize the various sources of authority available to them. All schools accept the Quran as obviously preeminent, and the Sunnah and Hadith are collectively the second source of authority. But here, differences began to emerge. Some schools, in hoping to attain the fullest account of the time of the Prophet, sought out and accepted as legitimate vast amounts of Hadith sayings. Others, as in the example above, were more suspicious of different Hadith collections and engaged in vigorous debate as to what sayings were acceptably authentic. This inevitably resulted in a smaller corpus of Hadith for some schools, and they thus turned to other forms of argument. I've already noted one of these sources of authority, kiyas, or argument by way of analogy, and the other principal option is ijma, or the consensus of the community. In addition to these, tradition in a broad sense, called taklid, a juror's professional opinion, ijtihad, concern for the public good, or political authority might additionally supplement or supplant a line of legal opinion making. Regardless of the order or weight given to any of these sources of authority, legal opinions sort actions into five distinct categories. Required, permissible, neutral, reprehensible, and forbidden. So, following our test case above, the Hanafi school of law found the drinking of alcohol, other than the forbidden kamar, to be reprehensible, though lawful. While the three other schools, the Hanbali, Shafi'i, and Maliki, find drinking any alcohol to be forbidden. These schools are named after famous early scholars, some of whom were intentionally developing legal principles and others not, but each is associated with a certain attitude toward the different sources of authority. For example, the Maliki school often favors a kind of communal traditionalism, while the Hanbali school emphasizes sunnah and accounts of the prophet, an approach we today might call originalism. Shiites have their own distinct school, characterized by an emphasis on hadith that pertain to the Prophet's cousin Ali and his family, as well as a rejection of both kiyas, analogous arguments, and ijma, community traditions. These are replaced with the authority of the imams, a class of scholars given special consideration in the Shiite tradition. Given all of these complexities, and not to mention numerous details I can't account for in this brief space, it should be no wonder that Sharia is an exceedingly complex and diverse phenomenon. 
even within a given legal school, diversity of opinion tends to be the rule rather than the exception. For this reason, when I hear fears about creeping Sharia, I'm more confused than anything else. What is it that's creeping? Some particular legal opinions? As is the case with any other legal system the world over, the opinions of lawyers only ever have effect when coupled with the power and authority to enforce those opinions. This brings us, finally, to the question of jihad. While a jurist or scholar might opine about the necessity of jihad, that opinion only has force when acted upon. And, as with so much else, reading the Quranic passages on jihad is especially complex, much more so than prohibitions on alcohol. Asma Afsaradin, an expert on the Quranic and historic context for jihad, whom we've turned to before in this lecture, works through some of these complications for us. We can look, for example, at one of the more notorious passages from Surah 2. I'll quote it at length to give both context and a sense of how the text engages in a kind of internal debate about fighting. Fight in God's cause against those who fight you, but do not overstep the limits. God does not love those who overstep the limits. Kill them wherever you encounter them and drive them out from where they drove you out, for persecution is more serious than killing. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they fight you there. If they do fight you, kill them. This is what such disbelievers deserve. But if they stop, then God is most forgiving and merciful. Fight them until there is no more persecution and worship is devoted to God. If they cease hostilities, there can be no further hostility except towards aggressors. There's a lot to unpack from these verses. First, it's useful to note that jihad as a word is not employed here at all. The word translated as fight is a term I mentioned earlier, kital, and is quite distinct from jihad. Second, nearly all of the Quranic verses that continents fighting, either kital or jihad when used in a somewhat martial sense, engage in this kind of oscillation between exhortation and dissuading. While fighting is sometimes endorsed, so is the cessation of fighting when aggression has ceased. Indeed, the Quran repeatedly counsels that God prefers peace. Third, these verses are routinely interpreted to mean that fighting is legitimated only in response to aggression and that aggression itself, or preemptive war, is forbidden. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Afsaradin reminds us that many of the Quranic verses regarding fighting are read in historical context and are taken to refer to specific crises experienced by Muhammad and the believers. In this instance, some commentators understand these verses to apply exclusively to Arab polytheists during one particular moment, and thus are limited by that occasion. Afsardin then goes on to illustrate how, after Muhammad, the meaning and applicability of jihad, including whether or not offensive war was prohibited, became an object of intense juridical debate 
as the first two great Islamic empires expanded. For instance, jurists from the Shafi'i and Hanafi schools disputed the concepts of Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb, the abode of Islam and the abode of war, respectively, within which fighting might be limited or justified. These ideas of places or lands where fighting would be forbidden or allowed are not found in the Quran or the tradition, but were promoted during the Abbasid Empire's long rule as means of categorizing the various lands they conquered or engaged with during its imperial expansion. In other words, some version of what we can call Islamic just war theory was developed based upon ambiguous elements of a complicated text in relationship to the evolving political needs of a global empire. As history progressed, ideas about jihad likewise evolved, always contextually shaped, and they continue to evolve today. One way jihad has been understood is by differentiating between two types of struggle, what have come to be called the greater and lesser jihads. According to this reading of the text, the lesser jihad is of the military sort, the kind of jihad a nation-state might engage in. The greater jihad, however, is more difficult and is the spiritual struggle against one's carnal self. Numerous hadith support this reading of jihad, and it became popular among theological, philosophical, and mystical interpreters of the Quran and Islamic tradition. And, contrary to some assumptions, it remains the most prevalent view of jihad among Muslims today. For the vast majority of Muslims, both today and throughout the past, reading the Quran and putting it into practice is the challenge of accepting God's will over and against our own selfish desires. Rather than a book of laws or political theory, the Quran is most often read as a meditation and reflection on our individual struggle to live in accordance with God's mercy and compassion. So it is fitting that we conclude our course in the next lecture by delving into this personal exercise that lies so close to the heart of Islamic faith. This course contains recitations of the Quran in a secular context. We've now spent some significant time talking about the history of the Qur'an as a text, its major figures and themes, and its role in shaping Muslim life and religious practice. And in many ways, we've only just begun delving into the interpretive permutations the text has taken in its 1,400-year history. But I say that in pause. Is the Qur'an 1,400 years old? That question is actually more problematic and more pregnant than you might think. In the first two centuries after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, debate grew about the nature of the text. If this is the revealed word of God, and if God is, by nature, eternal and unchanging, does this not mean that the Quran itself is eternal? 
That is, perhaps the Quran always existed with God, but was only revealed in time and space when delivered to Muhammad starting in 610 of the Common Era. If that is the case, then how do we understand those passages of the text that refer to very specific historical moments, such as battles Muhammad fought or dangers the early community confronted? To hold that the Quran is eternal means that God's omniscience extends beyond the present moment and into the future as well. What I mean is that the foreknowledge of an eternal Quran would also suggest a kind of predetermination, a sense that our fate is already mapped out for us and that God is always and already aware of what we will decide, say, and do. In short, an eternal Quran seems to require a belief in predetermined fate instead of free will. However, if we do not have free will, how can God be said to be just? If our fates are decided, then so too are our actions, both right and wrong. Is God judging us and sending us either to paradise or the fire based upon decisions we are fated to make? Where is the righteousness in that? These questions, and there are many others, form the heart of the philosophical and theological consideration of the Quran. Philosophy and theology are related and can overlap, but we might differentiate between the two by saying that philosophy, called falsifa in Arabic, adopting from the Greek, is concerned with knowledge itself, whereas theology, in Arabic called kalam, is more interested in God's nature and will. Obviously, if God is ever-present, then falsifa and kalam converge and spill over into legal matters. If all we can know comes from God, and if all that exists was created by God, then how we ought to behave in the world is a question of discerning God's will for us. Small surprise, then, when little practical distinction is made between philosophers, theologians, and legal scholars during much of the Islamic classical period. Those three disciplines were often combined by singular figures— Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, to name three of the most prominent Muslim intellectuals, at times engaged in all three pursuits, sometimes adding both practical and medical sciences to boot. But that is not all. If all that exists was created by God, if, as we read in the Quran, He is with you wherever you are, He sees all that you do, Control of the heavens and earth belongs to him. Everything is brought back to God. If this vision of God's ubiquity is the case, then what is our relationship to God? Is God within us in some way? Are we reflective of a component of God's nature or self? This possibility that there is a divine spark within everyone can lead to a kind of pantheism, a notion of divine presence in all things. Such a vision might then lead one to pursue an encounter with or experience of this divine presence, a dissolution of one's mortal self into God's totality.
In other words, a philosophical proposition about God's nature can reasonably lead to a quest for a mystical experience. The mystic tradition in Islam is called Sufism, or Tasawuf, to use an Arabic term meaning to become a Sufi. And it represents yet another and quite prominent interpretive approach. If legal and theological interpretations of the Quran traffic in technical analysis of the text, and if philosophy combines the Quran with rational reflection, then Sufism can be thought of as the interpretive tradition that preferences knowledge gained through experience. Historically, all of these modes of interpretation have intermingled and overlapped in the Islamic tradition, just as they often did in pre-modern Judaism and Christianity. In fact, there's something somewhat artificial about separating theology, philosophy, and mysticism into discrete units. As I've mentioned, practitioners of these disciplines often roamed across our modern concept of intellectual boundaries. In this final lecture, I want to suggest why we ought to think of Kalam, Falsafa, and Tasawuf as overlapping and complementary components in the quest for knowledge about God. We might imagine a kind of Venn diagram where God is the ultimate but unattainable aim, and each discipline is a kind of interpretive method that yields a portion of wisdom, though never absolute. In such a map, the area of collective overlap of these three interpretive schemes should not be thought of as the truth itself. Instead, each method overlaps with the Quran at the center. The text is the surest revelation of the divine, but then adds to our knowledge about God through additional means. So theology begins with the Quran and then expands upon it with exegesis and application of the text. In this sense, it's the method most literally reliant upon the Quran. Philosophy, for its part, also begins with the Quran, but then adds human reason and reflection on the natural world as a supporting or perhaps competing source of revelation. And Sufism also begins with the Quran, but interprets the text through human experience. And experience in this sense might also be heightened by specific practices, intensive prayer, ritual dance, breathing exercises, or the like. While we cannot here cover even a modicum of the vast theological, philosophical, and mystical interpretations of God in Islam, we can examine how each one begins with the Quran and then moves outward toward a broader conception of the divine. This allows us to understand the centrality of the Quran for these methods, as well as appreciate how these methods differ. So let's explore a representative example from each, keeping in mind that we've only scratched the surface of a rich and diverse conversation. The Islamic tradition holds the Quran to be unique and inimitable, called ijaz in Arabic. This description of the text has taken a variety of forms, often relying upon those surahs that challenged skeptical listeners to produce something akin to it. As Surah 52 says, If they say he has made it up himself, 
They certainly do not believe. Let them produce one like it if what they say is true. This challenge was variously described as unmet or not accepted. In conjunction with this concept of inimitability, the Quran is also held to be uncreated and eternal, called Qadim. It's this last concept that we'll focus on here. As Farid Isaq describes it, no controversy has influenced Islamic scholarship in general, and Quranic scholarship in particular, as decisively as this one. The controversy Isaac refers to here, whether the Quran is created or eternal, was simultaneously political and theological, and in many ways was the foundational issue for the very development of Kalam as an Islamic science. There are two figures whose intellectual heritage becomes central to this dispute, and both rank among the most important figures in the early interpretive acts that created Islam as a religious tradition. Hassan al-Basri and Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Hassan al-Basri, most famous as a mystic and foundational figure for Sufism, was born perhaps a decade after the Prophet died and was said to have befriended many of the close companions of Muhammad. While we do not have any of al-Basri's original works today, a variety of texts were attributed to him. One is called the Epistle to Abdul Malik against the Predestinarians. While likely written one to two hundred years after his death, the title of the work suggests how al-Basri's successors clearly sided with those advocating for free will. The fundamental notion here is that, in order to preserve God's justice, humans must have free will so that come judgment day, God can render righteous punishment or reward. The school of thought, which came to be known as the Mutezala, emphasized a rational approach to interpreting scripture and its relationship to the divine. As Isaac describes it, in dealing with the issue of God's attributes, therefore, and in particular with the attribute of speech, their primary concern was to uphold God's absolute unity, uniqueness, and immutability. To suggest that anything, even divine revelation, shared in any of these characteristics, they argued, would detract from God's utter beyondness. Their principle of divine justice resulted in a rejection of notions of God's arbitrary rule and predestination. If the Quran were eternal, they reasoned, It followed that all the events narrated therein were preordained. The players in all of these events would thus all have had their fate sealed, even before birth. The Mutezalites, having gained political favor in the mid-ninth century, persecuted those who argued otherwise, although their heavy-handed techniques seemed to have accelerated their demise. Nevertheless, their view staked a clear claim to one particular account for the nature of the Quran. Ahmed ibn Hanbal, whose name became associated with one of the primary schools of jurisprudence, vehemently opposed the Mutezalite position. Instead, he articulated a vision of God in the Quran that emphasized God's absolute power and authority. For ibn Hanbal, free will would represent a limit to God's omniscience, which could not be continenced. 
And because God knew all things, past, present, and future, Ibn Humbal understood the Quran as literally God's speech. Refusing to support the notion of a created Quran, Ibn Humbal was imprisoned for dissent. Over time, however, Ibn Humbal's position eventually won the day, and there have been a series of interesting repercussions for this. The one that primarily concerns us is the idea that the Quran is timeless and thus cannot be interpreted as a product of its era. This has, at least in some circles, limited the interpretive options for the text. Thus, one strain of theological thought takes the text in a literalist fashion, adhering to the Quran in what we might call an originalist manner. It's this mode of interpretation that is often characterized today as fundamentalism. However, even with accepting the Quran as uncreated, a strict form of predestinarianism rarely took hold in Islamic societies. While this is partly because fatalism is a largely untenable position in any society, other factors include our other two modes of interpretation, philosophy and mysticism. For its part, the Islamic philosophical tradition has often used the Quran in interesting ways to generate alternative methods for understanding nature, creation, and human society. One basic but foundational principle relies upon the word ayah, literally meaning sign. Ayah is most commonly known as the word used to demarcate verses in the Quran. A chapter is called a surah, a verse is called an ayah, or ayat in the plural. Philosophically, the various ayat of the Qur'an are understood as signs from God, but the ayat of the Qur'an are not the only way God is revealed in the world. Indeed, the Qur'an often uses the word ayah to refer to the natural world. Surah 42 says, Among his signs, ayat, is the creation of the heavens and earth and all the living creatures he has scattered throughout them. He has the power to gather them all together whenever he will. In another variation, in Surah 2, Jesus is said to come possessing ayat. We gave Jesus, son of Mary, clear signs and strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. While it's possible the ayat here refer to the gospel Jesus preached, it could and is also read as the miracles God empowered Jesus to perform. These miracles were the signs of God's presence and power. The takeaway is that God is revealed to humans in myriad ways. The Quran itself is the most obvious indication for the Islamic tradition, but it is not the only means by which God might be known. And for philosophers, the Quran can be read to encourage searching for additional signs of God. A passage from Surah 3 is central to this enterprise. There truly are signs, ayat, in the creation of the heavens and earth, and in the alternation of night and day for those with understanding, who remember God standing, sitting, and lying down, who reflect on the creation of the heavens and earth. This is taken to mean that those with understanding, that is, the philosophically inclined among us, can find evidence for God in creation itself. 
falsifa, is thus the process of reflecting on the creation in order to learn more about God and God's nature. One explicit and representative example of this endeavor is the philosophical novel Hayya ibn Yaqzan, composed by the Andalusian intellectual Ibn Tufail in the mid-12th century. The novel, named after its protagonist, relates the story of a human child abandoned on a deserted island where he is raised by gazelles. As Ibn Yaqzan matures, he undertakes a systematic and rational examination of the natural world around him and is said to have arrived at an ultimate truth. When Ibn Yaqzan does eventually encounter another human in the form of a Muslim castaway, the two men begin comparing knowledge and its sources. They realize that both have arrived at the same ultimate truth, but one through rational analysis and the other through received tradition, that is, the Quran. This being a philosophical novel, the conclusion they draw is that while revelation and religious trappings are useful for the masses who cannot or will not study the world, reason provides a kind of unmediated access to divine knowledge. The story of Haya ibn Yaqsan is emblematic of many strands of Islamic philosophy. The Quran, and with it, Sharia and religious custom, are necessary for those not disposed towards philosophy, but those with talent can attain the same knowledge without a textual or ritualistic intermediary. Nature itself is the ayah of God. In this way, Islamic philosophy preserves the centrality of the Quran for ordinary people, but attempts to articulate additional or alternative sources of authority. The Quran's authenticity is maintained, but some are released from reliance upon the text for knowledge of God. Perhaps the greatest proponent of this position was, unsurprisingly, Ibn Tufail's student and friend, Ibn Rushd, often known in the West as Averroes. Ibn Rushd's contributions to not just Islamic philosophy, but global philosophy are hard to overstate. Dante, in his Commedia, saves Ibn Rushd from the Inferno, along with Avicenna and Saladin, curiously, and describes him as he who made the great commentary. This refers to Ibn Rushd's role in translating and commenting upon the works of Aristotle. It was from Ibn Rushd's work that Aristotle, who was basically unknown in Europe during the 10th to 12th centuries, was translated into Latin and then various vernaculars, thus reintroducing Aristotelian thought to the European continent. To be plain, without the work of Ibn Rushd, Thomas Aquinas and Dante Alighieri would likely have remained ignorant of Aristotle. While we cannot unpack all of Ibn Rushd's work today, I think it valuable to say that he articulated different ways to read the Quran, as well as different ways and persons for whom its instructions applied. I do not mean to suggest that Ibn Rushd advocated for dismissing the relevance or authority of the law and the Quran, but rather that those who could discern God's nature via reason would not need to rely upon revelation or custom in order to live according to God's will. 
Ultimately, Ibn Rushd's work combined the Quranic injunctions to examine the ayat of God with Aristotle's concern for the material world as reflective of the Creator's nature. Ibn Rushd's relatively materialistic or natural approach to understanding God contrasts with the Sufi tradition. As with theology and philosophy, I can give no complete description of the mystical tradition of Islam here. However, there are examples of how Sufis approached the Quran as a text that tellingly contrasts with the approaches of both the theologians and the philosophers. Karl Ernst, one of the foremost scholars of Sufism writing today, notes that the question of Quranic interpretation has always been a multifaceted one and that even the most literalist reading of the Quran had to deal with the problem of interpreting certain verses metaphorically. In particular, the verses that described God in human terms, referring to the face or hand of God, for instance, had to be understood metaphorically if they were not to be anthropomorphic. How should one understand the description of God sitting on the celestial throne? The answer, of course, is that such verses can only be understood as symbol or metaphor, and thus even theological and philosophical interpretive approaches had to make recourse to these sorts of literary options. The Sufis, for their part, took these moments in the text as an invitation to read much of the Quran as metaphorical or symbolic, and combined these readings with a keen appreciation for the human experience of divine presence. And, just as the philosophers found portions of the text that seemed to confirm the need for rational interpretation of the natural world, Sufis found other passages that confirm a need for different sorts of methods. To illustrate, Ernst quotes from an early passage in Surah 3, It is he who has sent this scripture down to you. Some of its verses, ayat, are definite in meaning. These are the cornerstones of the scripture. And others are ambiguous. The perverse at heart eagerly pursue the ambiguities in their attempt to make trouble and pin down a specific meaning of their own. Only God knows the true meaning. Those firmly grounded in knowledge say, We believe in it. It is all from our Lord. Only those with real perception will take heed. This passage is different for many different reasons. One is that we once again see ayat employed in a way that seems specific to verses, and yet we recognize that not all ayat are definite in meaning, and this opens up, or even demands, non-literalist interpretation. Second, The term translated here as ambiguous is instead, and quite reasonably, translated by Ernst as symbolic, thus begging the method, as it were. But most important is the final line of the passage, only those with real perception will take heed. What's interesting is that a version of this phrase is repeated in Surah 3, and is something I referenced a few minutes ago during our discussion about philosophy. Verse 190, quoted before, references those with understanding. But it turns out 
but the Arabic can be translated differently. That is, in Ernst's translation, verse 7 and 190, repeat the phrase, those who possess the inner heart, instead of those with understanding. What this translation suggests, and something taken well, to heart by Sufis, is that understanding the Quran is not simply a matter of intellect, but is instead a matter of emotion and experience, that there is knowledge and wisdom in the heart. This emphasis on human experience as a guide to the Quran's message is, of course, elsewhere supported by the Quran itself. In one of the most famous passages for Sufis, Surah 50 says, We created man. We know what his soul whispers to him. We are closer to him than his jugular vein. We are here again at the center of the human body, the heart and the jugular vein, through which our life literally flows. The proximity of God, God's very intimacy with human life, a kind of echo of the first creation of humankind, is thus a call for searching within ourselves for knowledge about God. God is closer to us than we can know. And so an inner examination of the self, in Arabic the term is nafs, and is central to mystical interpretation, an examination of the self is a journey towards discovering God. This, then, provides our third method for interpreting the Quran. Aside from the obvious technical passages of the Quran, the text's symbolic and metaphorical passages require that we experience the text through our own self and the understanding of personal encounter with the divine. While this approach to the text is not without its danger, indeed, some have taken this too far and found in the Quran evidence of pantheism and identification of the self with God, the intimate personal reading of the Quran has had a vast and enduring appeal to Muslims across the globe. Indeed, the mystical reading of the Quran and its resistance to staid literalism or overly intellectual philosophizing has been perhaps the most widely influential approach to the text historically and globally. It was, after all, Sufis who carried their understanding of the Quran as a personal experience of God across Central Asia and into Southeast Asia, as well as into North and Sub-Saharan Africa. It's perhaps little wonder that European colonialists, especially the British, were fascinated upon their discovery of Sufi practices. Here was something completely other than a technical or political approach to Islam, and one very much at the core of everyday Muslim experience. The whole history of Sufism, from the ecstatic experiences of characters such as Al-Halaj and Al-Bistami, to the poetry of Rumi, Attar, and Jami, to the entrancing movements of the whirling dervishes in Istanbul, or the astounding Qawwali musical performances of Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, Sufism provides a richness of practice and experience that has often been the rule rather than the exception to Muslim life. And not just for Muslims. Jalal al-Din Rumi is one of the best-selling poets in the United States in the 21st century, despite having died in 1273. Although many English versions of Rumi's poetry delete or elide his Quranic references, the Persian of Rumi's verse is steeped in a deep love for 
and knowledge of the text. He was also a theologian and keenly appreciative of the many debates within the tradition about the Quran. Let's conclude our time with Sufism with a passage from Rumi that echoes our earlier discussion about the nature of the Quran. Though outwardly you seem to rule your wife, inwardly you are ruled by her whom you desire. This trait is found in humankind alone. Such love lacking in animals shows their inferiority. The prophet said, Woman prevails over the intelligent and dominates wise men possessed of hearts, while ignorant men seek to prevail over women. Men like that are slaves to animality. For tenderness, kindness, and affection are human, but harshness, lust, are animal in nature. For woman is a ray of God, no worldly beloved. She is creative. One may even say she's uncreated. So we've come full circle. The debate about the Quran as created or uncreated, which leads in some quarters to a literalist or restrictive reading of the text, circles back to us in Rumi, where an analogy about love suggests that the quest for authority and domination are the aims of the ignorant. Instead, it is the lover, he or she who strives for tenderness, kindness, and affection, that best knows the uncreated nature of God's revelation. I think this emphasis on love is in many ways a fitting end to this series on the Quran. While it's true that love as a word is not a central feature in the text of the Quran, love is certainly a central experience for Muslims regarding the Quran. As an object, it is cherished and cared for. As a message from God, the Quran is the vehicle by which love for God is processed. As a gift via the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran is representative of the way God loves and reveals all of creation. As a kind of recipe for day-to-day experience, the Quran structures our love of the divine. And as a key for unlocking the personal encounter with God, the Quran is unparalleled. Indeed, I would argue that no text is as singularly important to any major religious tradition as the Quran is to Islam. There's a curious phrase in English that we use without reflecting on it, to know or memorize something by heart. What we typically mean by this is to know something so deeply that we can always conjure it, birth date, an address, a password, or perhaps a bit of poetry. In 2011, a film was released called Quran by Heart, a documentary that followed three different 10-year-olds as they prepared for and took part in a contest for memorizing the Quran by heart. This is a regular contest that draws over 100 contestants from 70-some countries. The children are given a chapter and verse and asked to recite it upon command. Many of them do not speak Arabic as a native tongue, but have nevertheless committed the Quran to memory to such a degree that they can recall a phrase from a foreign language with the barest of prompts. It's an immense undertaking to know the whole of the Quran, literally chapter and verse, in the way savants might know baseball statistics or subway maps. Yet it's not an uncommon practice. Many Muslims seek to commit the whole of the text to heart, and for them it is indeed a labor of love. 
to have the whole of God's revelation committed not just to memory but to heart is something the followers of Muhammad have been doing since the very first revelation. The very construction of the Quran as a written text was thus a recording of these commitments by heart, these expressions of love. So, what do I hope this course has instilled in all of you? Uh, My first and primary hope is that these lectures have complicated your relationship to the Quran. Whether you are religious or non-religious, Muslim or non-Muslim, I hope I've offered new information, but more importantly, new angles by which we can study and appreciate this most important of texts. The Quran is multifaceted and multivalent and has operated within Muslim practice and experience in more ways than 12 lectures could ever hope to convey. But I do hope I've opened up a conversation about the text's complexity, both internally as a thing and externally as a phenomenon. As a scholar and teacher of religion, my aim is never to confirm or deny personally held beliefs, but rather to deepen and complicate our understanding of religion. The scholar Max Mueller once said, He who knows one religion knows none. In this spirit, we must examine our own religious traditions as well as the traditions of others so that we might fully come to know what it is we ourselves believe. Such study, I think, necessitates both honesty and openness. We need to be open to the beliefs of others, whoever they are, and honest about our own positions if we ever hope to arrive at something reflective of the truth. Rather than convince anyone of any one thing, my approach to the teaching of the Quran is to limit interpretive hubris. If we take seriously for a moment the idea that God is, by necessity, unknowable in totality, then we might also recognize the danger of thinking we do in fact know God's will with surety. In the spirit of this pursuit, I'll conclude with the Sufis. Rabia al-Adawiyah, was a 9th century ascetic from Basra in present-day Iraq. Formerly a slave, it said her owner set her free upon seeing her devotion to God. However, at some point, the people of the city thought that her remaining unmarried was problematic, and thus proposed to her marriage to a fellow Sufi, Hassan al-Basri. She assented to this, provided he could answer four questions. As the story relates... Then she asked, What will the judge of the world say when I die? Hassan answered, That is among the hidden things known only to God Most High. Then she said, When I am put in the grave and Munkar and Nakir, the angels who question the dead, query me, will I be able to give a good answer or not? He replied, This also is known only to God. Then she asked, when people are assembled on the day of resurrection and the books are distributed, in which hand will I be given mine, in the right or in the left? He replied, this is also hidden. Finally, she asked, when humankind are summoned, some to paradise and some to hell, to which shall I be summoned? He replied, this too is hidden, and none knows what is hidden except God His be the glory and the majesty. Then she said to him, Since this is so, 
and I have these four questions with which to occupy myself, how shall I need a husband with whom to be occupied? Tradition holds that Rabia remained unmarried. Her story, of course, echoes the Quran and its singular focus on God's ultimate judgment. Competing for more distracts you until you go into your graves. No, indeed. You will come to know. No, indeed. In the end, you will come to know. No, indeed. If only you knew for certain, you will most definitely see hellfire. Then you will see it with the eye of certainty. On that day, you will be asked about your pleasures. It's my hope that this introduction to the Quran has been itself a pleasure. While we've covered a lot of ground together, we've also managed to only begin an exploration of one of humanity's most significant and inspiring books. Any one of the lectures in this series could serve as a starting place for additional study, and I hope you found your curiosity aroused. There are also almost innumerable other topics that we've unfortunately had to pass over in silence. So no, there is much more to discover. Personally, in returning to the Quran again and again, I found the study of it to be endlessly rewarding. Thank you for starting or continuing your study of the Quran with me. <laughs>